It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Welcome to the mop-up for July 5th, 2021. I'm coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage in Manhattan where the temperature is 87 degrees and partly sunny. And I'm David Feldman bringing you first world problems on a third world income. On today's show, if all goes well, and it usually doesn't, Ethan Hirschen Feld will be Berg will be Feld will be here. Uh, John Ross. I haven't had sleep. I uh, there was a lot of noise going on last night. Dogs were barking from all the fireworks, and I haven't been uh, sleeping well. I hope you all had a healthy July Fourth. I especially wish a happy July Fourth to our listeners in Canada and England, where I think you did better in the deal than we did. Well, let's take a look at some of the stories we'll be following. I hope we'll be following these stories if our guests are silly enough to show up on July 5th here in the United States, where we celebrate our freedom by being slaves to pork and cattle and beer and friends who make us eat things like potato salad that aren't good for us. I personally rather do a podcast. The Pope is expected to stay in the hospital for seven days. The Guardian is reporting that Pope Francis is alert and breathing without assistance. The 84-year-old Pope will stay in the hospital until next week. He had some colon problems. He underwent a, a left hemocolonectomy in which one side of the colon is removed. So now he's Half an asshole. I know I like the Pope. I apologize. I, I shouldn't have said that. This is offensive. You know, we're, we're supporting the Ukraine military. Remember, we impeached Donald Trump because he was holding up arms to the Ukraine military. Well, The Guardian is reporting today that female troops in Ukraine were supporting these soldiers. They are being forced to parade wearing high heels. This is uh, 
your tax dollars at work. Black high heels before Labor Day. I am offended. That's why would you? Well, somebody said, I think it was John Hayes. Somebody said at office hours that all soldiers should be forced to wear high heels. This is sweet. Andrew Cuomo's daughter, Michaela, has declared herself a demisexual. That's not like Ashton Kutcher, who uh, this is a demisexual, somebody who can only have sex if they are emotionally connected to the other person. Andrew Cuomo's daughter gave an interview and she said when she was in elementary school, she feared that she was a lesbian. There's nothing to be afraid of. And uh, but then when she was in middle school, she came out to her family and close friends as bisexual. When she got into high school, she discovered pansexuality and said, quote unquote, that's the flag for me. She's recently learned about demisexuality and she is now identifying as a demisexual. She will only have sex with somebody who she has an emotional bond with. Okay, that's that's sweet. That's uh, well, breeders. Speaking of breeders, if you are part of the uh, pandemic people, if you're one of the pandemic people who wanted a dog to keep you company, I see them all over New York. These are young couples who went out and got purebreds to keep them company during the the pandemic. Now they're returning all the the purebreds because they realized they got to go back to work. Breeders, I don't know, you know, when you watch the Westminster Dog Show and they celebrate purebreds, breeders should all be arrested and locked up. In Los Angeles, my friend Carol Rooney got pet stores to stop selling purebreds in Beverly Hills. You're not allowed to sell uh, any dogs that come from a breeder. You should not be buying dogs from breeders. There are consequences to breeding animals. They throw out the ones who don't live up to the standards of the Westminster Dog Show, which also should be against the law. The Daily Mail is reporting today that there's a newborn eyeless puppy named Teacup. She's a cross between a miniature schnauzer and a something, a, a terrier. She was born without eyes and she was dumped by her breeder uh, at the big fluffy dog rescue in Nashville about a month ago. And uh she had no suckle response. They couldn't even, they had trouble feeding her. And she isn't expected to weigh more than eight pounds. That's how she was bred. And she has no eyes. And her breeder just threw her away. It's sad. When you support, when you buy a dog, you are murdering other dogs. You should only buy dog, only get dogs from a, a shelter. There is no need to be breeding dogs. And if you're a breeder, uh, I wish you a lot of pain in your life. You create a lot of pain and uh, it's not a good way to make a living. I know everybody's strapped for cash, but selling selling life is not the way to uh, pay your bills. Russia 
uh, is cracking down, as all authoritarian regimes do, on the LGBTQ community. The biggest health food chain in Russia had an ad featuring lesbians, conservatives, fascists in in Russia were outraged that an ad for health food featuring lesbians was shown on Russian television. And the owner of Vikasville, this is the health food company, apologized yesterday for exposing Russians to lesbians on Russian television in the state of Georgia, not the, not our state of Georgia, the country, Georgia. The Tbilisi Pride Parade was canceled as far right protesters burned the rainbow flag. LGBTQ activists in Georgia's capital, that's Tbilisi, decided to cancel a gay rights parade after their or, or office was uh, broken into by far right protesters who filmed themselves ransacking the the office and burning the rainbow flag. That's what fascists do. They have a long and storied history of turning on the LGBTQ community, Hitler, uh, of course, and the Republican Party. Disney has decided to remove the ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls greeting from the the fireworks display at Disneyland. They're just saying hello, everybody, because everybody identifies differently. When I was bringing my kids to Disneyland, spending money I didn't want to, that we didn't have, they would always say, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, greetings from the Magic Kingdom. They're no longer saying that. They're now saying, give us your money. And the people who work here sleep in cars because we don't pay them a livable wage. That's what they're announcing. Well, this is July 5th, the day after July 4th. Uh, that July 4th, of course, is when we, our founding fathers signed the Declaration of Independence. July 5th is when John Hancock called up the other guys who signed the Declaration of Independence and said, thanks a lot, assholes. Thanks. I have the bit. You left me with the biggest signature. You know, this thing isn't going to work out. They're going to come for me first. They're going to kill me first, you assholes. That's what happened on July 5th. John Hancock, he, he thought everybody was going to sign it that large. That was our Declaration of Independence. And Chile has begun drafting a new constitution. And maybe it'll hold as long as America doesn't intervene in their domestic politics as we did back in, was it 73? When did we kill Salvador Allende? When did Henry Kissinger murder Salvador Allende? I, I think it was 73. Uh, they're, they're building, they're writing a new constitution, Chile. We'll talk about this later in the show. We, we could never write a new constitution. We're incapable of doing something like that. By the way, they had a president. I think her name was Bacalay. She now works over at the UN. She was a single mother who was an atheist. Chile elected for president a single mother who was an atheist. I think she was also is also a doctor. Can you imagine this country? We can't e can't even elect a uh, a female. Bolsonaro is facing more corruption accusations, according to Al Jazeera, Brazil's 
fascist president, Bolsonaro, has been accused of being involved in a scheme to skim salaries of his aides. More bad news for Bolsonaro, and uh, we'll, we'll stay on top of that, of course. Hey, do you have $50 million? William Randolph Hearst's old mansion, they can't seem to sell it. I'm not talking about uh, San Simeon up the northern coast of California, which everybody should go visit. It's Hearst Castle. He had a home in Los Angeles. JFK stayed there. It's a mansion where Jackie Kennedy and JFK had honeymooned back in 1953. It's 28,000 square feet in Beverly Hills. And it is the mansion where Jack Waltz and the Godfather woke up and found a severed head in his bed. They say they're having trouble selling this house because it's associated with that crime, which uh, wasn't real. It was from the Godfather. I would I would buy it if they could bring the price down. I would love to live in the house where Jack Waltz woke up next to uh, a horse's head. Uh, John Kennedy stayed there. I'm sure he woke up to something far worse than a horse's head, knowing his sexual predilection. Speaking of people with uh, wonderful sexual predilections, Bill Cosby, <laughs> I apologize. I shouldn't be giggling. Bill Cosby is out of prison. He raped 60 women. 60 women have come forward saying they were raped by Bill Cosby. Last uh, Friday show, Felicia Rashad, we talked about this. She's the Dean of Fine Arts over at Howard University. And uh, she played his wife on the Cosby show. She was somewhat intimate with Bill Cosby. She knew him very well. Claire Hoxtable, when he was released from prison last week, she tweeted, thank God they've corrected an injustice. Bill Cosby is free. The the dean of fine arts at Howard University, Felicia Rashad, didn't realize that might offend victims of sexual abuse, especially her students or people who attended Howard University. They complained. They're asking her to resign. And she immediately penned a letter apologizing, saying, and this is really a bold statement that Felicia Rashad made, and I salute her. She says she does not support sexual assault. And I thought that was very brave on her part to correct the record. She's in no way in favor of rape. Bill Cosby is making a comeback. He's going to do a documentary. He made a statement when he found out that People were calling for Felicia Rashad's firing after she tweeted support for Bill Cosby. He uh, he made a statement. Howard University, you must support one's freedom of speech. Ms. Rashad, which is taught or supposed to be taught every day at that renowned law school, which resides on your campus. That was uh, his rambling statement uh, in defense of uh, Felicia Rashad, he uh, didn't seem to support people's freedom of speech, especially when they accused him of rape. I think his lawyers uh, try to silence the accusers, as we know. I'm getting older. I don't follow sports anymore, but when I was growing up, I used to listen to Marv Alpert, 
Marv Albert. I should pronounce his last name if I'm going to pretend I was actually interested in sports as a kid. No, as a kid, I used to listen to Marv Albert do the play-by-play for the Nick, uh, the Nick games. They're basketball, I believe, and the Rangers. I used to listen to him do the Rangers and the Knicks. And after 55 years, he's calling it quits. And I have very warm memories of listening to Marv Albert uh, doing the. He was a genius. When I used to listen to him as a kid, I could not believe how brilliant he was. I don't watch sports anymore. I I know he's uh, pretty popular nationwide. The prime minister of Luxembourg is in the hospital with COVID-19. Luxembourg Prime Minister Javier Battel is in serious but stable condition, and he will remain in the hospital for the rest of the week. He's trying to shake a bad bout of COVID-19. It's not over. The Delta variant, they're reporting, is in full swing right now in California and Europe. If you read some news reports, you you see that the European economy is coming back. But Barron's has a piece today warning that this Delta strain could ruin not just the economy, but uh, start killing people again. I, I would recommend wearing a mask. I'm shocked. I was at the Apple store yesterday and their employees were masked optional. I'm shocked that people in New York City are not wearing masks when you consider how many tourists bringing the Delta strain, uh, how many tourists come to the city now. Some sad news. One person died uh, after an accident inside an Adventureland amusement park in Iowa. One person is dead. Three were injured at an amusement park, a water ride in in Iowa, I'm not a fan of water rides because I know what people in Iowa do when they get in the water. They pee in the water and uh, sometimes they go swimming with diarrhea. Did you see the gif that the CDC put out? You should not swim with diarrhea. You know what's worse than swimming with diarrhea? Yes, you know, I'll say it, swimming in diarrhea. It's January 5th. I'm doing a show, okay? Calm down. Uh, yes, you shouldn't swim with or in diarrhea. This is sad. An NHL player has died from a fireworks accident. The National Hockey League's Columbus Blue Jackets goaltender, Matisse Kivilniuks, died from chest trauma due to a malfunctioning fireworks mortar blast. That's sad. I don't understand why people need to play with fireworks when they have guns. Well, just play with your guns. They're safer here in America. CBS is reporting that what's left of that Florida condo has been demolished. That's a sad story. I'm not really talking about it. Uh, It's just too depressing. So we'll move on. A new study shows that people making more than $250,000 a year in the United States Many of them got a $1,400 stimulant, stimulant, a stimulus payment. So we know uh, that's good. That's that's what they uh, that's what they need. Joey Chestnut broke his record 
I don't know if you watch this stuff. It's fascinating. Joey Chestnut broke his record. He ate 76 hot dogs in 10 minutes on July 4th. He is the the this is his 14th win in Nathan's famous hot dog eating contest that they hold every July 4th. 76 hot dogs in in 10 minutes. Uh I pity the exhaust fan in his bathroom. What a, what a disgusting way to get famous. What what a dis- 76 hot dogs in 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 10 minutes. Jesus. He says everything's a little snug. Yeah, you think? All right. Uh Clyburn House Majority Whip Jim Clyburn, he's third in command in the Democratic leadership in the House. He's about, I'd say, 110. If you remember, he was the one who derailed Bernie's run for the presidency last year when he endorsed Joe Biden for the South Carolina primary. Remember that? Remember Joe Biden hadn't won a single primary and suddenly they realized that Bernie was going to win and they circled the wagons around Joe Biden, Hillary, Obama, Bill, Clyburn, Pelosi. And they convinced Buttigieg, who was in second place, to drop out so Joe Biden could win South Carolina. Clyburn orchestrated that. And he gave an interview on Sunday saying that we should get rid of the filibuster. I think we should get rid of Clyburn first. Some good news, Miss Nevada is a transgender woman named Cataluna Enriquez. This is the first time a a transgender woman will be competing in the Miss USA pageant. That is a uh, a step backwards for transgender people. I don't know why we have to have beauty pageants. It seems like a, a waste of beauty. I don't know if uh, does. Trump's I don't think Trump still owns. I don't think Trump owns anything anymore. Tucker Carlson. It's just a gig to him. My friend Janine told me that years ago he said he didn't mean anything. He said he was just trying to make lots of money. But there are consequences. He has talked about this, this spa in Koreatown where a transgender person disrobed, allegedly exposed her penis to a child. I don't believe that is true, but protests uh, were announced after Tucker Carlson drew attention to this for ratings and it turned violent. There were protests scheduled outside the spa. And I don't know if you saw the footage. Maybe I can play it for it. Let me see if I can find it. It's really this is what happens when people say things just for ratings, when there are no they don't worry about the consequences. And this is what it looked like on Saturday. Uh, Well, I'm not going to find it. Okay. I thought I had it. Is this it? Let me see. After an an overnight standoff that shut down a major highway. Well, let me see if I can find it. It's July 5th. Uh, Let's see. Is this it? Francis was admitted to Rome's Gemelli Hospital for intestinal surgery on Sunday. The first time he has been in the... Okay, we'll move on. I'm learning new technology. The vice president 
the Los Angeles Times is reporting that Vice President Harris is not getting the honeymoon that she expected. And many Democrats are worried that she's going to be the nominee in 2004 and lose big. This is, uh, well, I would expect that. She didn't win a single primary when she ran for president last year. A new report coming out of Politico says that her office is dysfunctional. Business Insider wrote about this as well. The uh, several administration officials describe Harris's office as, quote unquote, a shit show. And uh, two people who work for Harris's office told CNN that many of her employees are exasperated by how dysfunctional she is. And she's got a lot of unhappy people working for her. I don't think I don't think she can win in 2004. And this is a problem because I don't think Joe Biden is going to make it to 2024. Did I say 2004? I don't think I'm going to make it to 2024. I'm going to show you a story that the New York Post, it's a right wing rag, is reporting on. I want you to think of corporate America and what they pay, the amount of money that they waste in salaries. And I'm going to tell you this story and think about how rare this is in government. And it is local government. This is a headline from the conservative New York Post. Loophole allows retired New York Police Department Chief Terrence Monahan to make $430,000 a year. Okay, that's outrageous because he's now working for Mayor de Blasio. So he's collecting two salaries and making $430,000 a year. Right. That's a lot of money. That's your tax dollars. But but how often does that happen in government? It never happens in the federal government. Never. I think Fauci makes about that. And he's the highest paid person in the federal government. This never happens in the federal government. Nobody clears more than a quarter of a million dollars a year if you work in the federal government. There's never a story about a federal employee double dipping. And there are about, what, 3.5 million people who work for the federal government. So, yes, locally, sometimes they they work the system. And the uh, NYPD chief, uh, Monaghan, is collecting $430,000 a year. But think of corporate America now and and the waste, the, how they waste stockholders' money paying $430 million a year to somebody who does absolutely nothing. That's why I brought this story up, because it is shocking. You rarely, you rarely hear about a government official making close to half a million dollars a year. And, and it's a loophole. They don't celebrate it. They're ashamed, unlike in corporate America. AOC is more powerful than a lot of uh, people want her to be. Uh, The New York Post is reporting that her endorsements in last week's uh, New York City elections, half of those elections, half of those endorsements paid off. Half the people she endorsed for city council won. So she is a force to be reckoned with. And uh, we like AOC. Some people here don't because of force of the vote. But I like AOC. 
Boris Johnson today announced that COVID restrictions would be lifted in Great Britain by July 19th. What do you think? Is that too soon? The cinema opens July 19th. Full capacity. Uh, Full capacity. Starting July 19th. The Duchess of Cambridge is self-isolating at home after she was exposed to COVID-19. That's according to Buckingham Palace. She's fully vaccinated. That's kind of scary. And the statues of Queen Victoria and Queen Elizabeth were toppled in Canada after more discoveries of the remains of hundreds of children in unmarked graves at former indigenous schools. Yes, that's uh, Joe Biden says getting vaccinated is patriotic. That was his July 4th message. The price of gasoline in America has gone up to four dollars and thirty nine cents for Supreme. Four dollars and thirty nine cents. And it should be triple that. It should be about twelve dollars a gallon. But people are blaming Biden for the uh, high price of gasoline. And you should be blaming Biden because he's in bed with ExxonMobil. The New Republic has a new story exposing the Biden administration's ties to ExxonMobil and oil lobbyists. The New Republic reports today that National Climate Advisor Gina McCarthy has met at least twice this year with oil and gas industry representatives. I don't know if you saw that great story that News 4 in Britain did, where they did an interview, an undercover sting on a lobbyist named Keith McCoy. He, they pretended they were looking to hire a lobbyist and they hired this, they did an interview uh, with this guy, Keith McCoy, undercover interview, and he just opened up and talked about the kind of money that ExxonMobil throws at people like Joe Manchin and Chris Coons. They do it through shell operations, and the Biden administration is deeply in bed with ExxonMobil, Blinken, and uh, a lot of lesser-known Biden cabinet officials all are on the payroll of ExxonMobil, which explains why we're still fracking. Seth Rogen gave an interview over the weekend accusing the American Olympic team of racism after they said that, and I'm not pronouncing her name properly, Shah Kadi Richardson was kicked off the the Olympic team for smoking pot. She's a a sprinter. She tested positive for marijuana. And Joe Rogan, not Joe Rogan, Seth Rogan, said it's racism. And Joe Biden said he was proud of Carrie Richardson's uh, response. She was on the Today Show. She apologized for smoking pot. And Joe Biden said he was proud of her and stands by the Olympic Committee's decision not to allow her to compete in the Tokyo 
Olympics. That's that's good. Too bad. Uh, maybe he should fix her up with Hunter. I think they might. Uh, Matthew McConaughey is going to run for governor of Texas. He says America. This is what he said on his Fourth of July speech that America is going through puberty. Uh, the Academy Award winner is seriously considering challenging Abbott for uh, governor of Texas, as is Alan West, the congressman from Florida, the QAnon supporter. Alan West is also going to be running for governor of Texas, and Texas deserves both of them. J.D. Vance, he's a venture capitalist who wrote Hillbilly Elegy, and he is running for Senate in Ohio as a Republican for Rob Portman's seat. He, uh, according to Vice, deleted all his anti-Trump tweets because he wants to be the next Republican senator from Ohio. So you get rid of any anti-Trump tweets. There's a new book out by uh, Michael Wolff, and he says that Donald Trump, right before he left office, had discussed pardoning Jelaine Maxwell to keep her silence. She, of course, was Jeffrey Epstein's procurer. Wolf also writes that uh, when when Melania and Donald are in Mar-a-Lago, they are roped off and they eat alone like caged animals. And Michael Wolf says there's no evidence that Melania is actually staying at Mar-a-Lago other than occasionally seeing Donald and Melania dining together. Uh, what else? Is, is, uh, do we have uh, Dave Cyrus here? He's here. Okay, I didn't see you. Sorry, I was just killing time. Hello, Dave Cyrus. You ready? Happy July 4th. Happy 4th of July, David. Thank you. It's the 5th, but that doesn't matter. When we come back, is it the 6th or the 5th? I think it's the 6th, right? Today's Tuesday? Well, we pretend it's Tuesday for the podcast, but uh, when, when we're recording it live, we can't lie and say it's Tuesday when everybody here knows it's, it's Monday. We'll be back with Dave Cyrus after this. It's time for our comedy virus. Let's all welcome Dave Cyrus. Dave Cyrus is a comedy writer. He has written some of the best movies out there, including The King of Staten Island. He writes for Fox's Let's Be Real, SNL, and he comes to us from his lair either in Los Angeles or Brooklyn. Where are you today? Brooklyn. I live in Brooklyn. Did you have a nice July 4th? I had a wonderful July 4th. Thank you for asking. Did you celebrate? Did, did I you say- observe? Did you observe? No. You're not. You're not observant. Okay. I looked for mouse poop. Mm-hmm. That's. I've become an expert on mouse poop because if there's mouse poop, it suggests that there may be a mouse. Right, which is good news. It means you don't have rats. Mm, yes. 
and I'm, I'm not only becoming an, an expert on mouse poop, but I think uh, I'm seeing less and less mouse poop. And my mother said he just may be constipated. You may have mm-hmm. a constipated mouse. You He's may pay attention. To thanks, you. mom. Thanks. What do you do about so, mice? Uh, I mean, I haven't really had to deal with them in a long time. I, when Why? I, did, I, I don't know. I mean, I remember I, when I was in LA, I once had to get like poison because there was uh, upstairs rats that the, one of the neighboring apartments had rats for some reason, but I never really had mice here though in New York. They don't, there aren't a lot of mice in New York, you know, they're pretty much all rats. No, that's not true. I've heard that in Manhattan, in the main city areas, the rats have killed all the mice. That's not true. Okay. Because if that's true, I will. You have uh, rats. I, I will be. <laughs> I won't be able to finish today's show. So. Well, no, you you haven't seen it. You're just assuming it's mice because you're eyeballing the size of the poop. But no, I've seen mice in my apartment, and they're mice. They're not rats. Okay. And, and, well, what and, you have to know is that there, and this is something I looked up. There are only certain humane ways of killing them. Like you're not supposed to use poison because poison is, it can kill other animals. You're certainly not supposed to use traps because that is torture. Uh, the only way to kill them, and you're not supposed to drown them either. That's another thing. You're only supposed, the only ASPCA approved way of killing them is a golf club. And it's, <laughs> it's, the, it, it's the only way to do it humanely so that they don't feel anything. Hmm. But you have, but trust me, you have to have a really good swing. Okay. If you do it wrong, then you're just torturing them. Now the rat, wanna, the rats in New York. I think they're Norwegian. And, uh, yes, that's true. The, the the brown rat came across, came here from Europe. That's on a boat in North America came from. Yes, on a boat. I guess the yeah. Vikings brought it, right? No, 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 no. It would have been later. It would have been they were brought by the uh, by Europeans after Columbus, not the brief time that the Vikings were here first. The Norwegian rat, and and mm-hmm. it's really taken to to New York City. But they can't fit through holes. Rats are big. Yeah. I've seen rats in New York. Yeah. They can't fit through well, these there, holes. There are believed to be dozens of rats in New York. Maybe even more. More than 12. Multiple dozens. Yes. Really? Mm-hmm. I've heard that there are more rats than there are people in New York City. Well, that's true, but also the people you speak to only consider Jews people. (laughs) So what do you what's on your mind? I covered some stories here if you want to talk about them or I can show you another story that I thought. I mean, I'll talk about what you want to talk about. Uh, I know that uh, Seth Rogen uh, said it was racist that the that uh, an Olympian was disqualified marijuana use. I don't. I have to find out what the other cases were of people blowing that, you know, because if, if, if white people are blowing the exact same uh, drug test and not getting punished, that's an extreme. Well, what Michael Phelps, all Michael Phelps did was smoke dope. Right. And did he, did he lose the same? Did he, I mean, I remember him being in trouble. I mean, I just, I had no idea that there was a discrepancy between 
white athletes who have blown these tests, which would be extremely uh, unfair and racist. Or if, conversely, Seth Rogen just saying that because he's assuming it, which, I mean, obviously there's lots of racism in terms of the way black people get treated with drug use. I don't know that the, I don't know that there's any white guys who have been busted for pot in the Olympics and got a different treatment. If so, that's something that needs to be addressed immediately. Right. Um, well, do you but, think it's wrong uh, that that Olympic champions are smoking pot? No, absolutely not. It's not a it's not a performance enhancer in any way. And a lot of people have used marijuana rightfully and lost uh, lost things that they shouldn't have lost for completely made up reasons. There have been fighters, uh, athletes who had to use marijuana for inflammation because it is a non addictive, uh, excuse me, a non-physically addictive painkiller. It is not dangerous the way opiates are, and there's very few other drugs that can do what they do. It's for cancer patients. But look, the fact is, it does not improve your performance in a sport, but it does provide health constant. It does provide help with your health in a way that other drugs can't, and we shouldn't be discouraging. I mean, in football, you could be disqualified from playing football for smoking weed, but not for having a severe opiate addiction. That's stupid. In, Mar- in, in the UFC, in, in mixed martial arts, there have been fighters who had their wins overturned because they had smoked pot in their downtime, and whereas other fighters kept wins that they were busted for steroids about. So you're talking about it, the NC, the, the Nevada State Athletic Commission was considering smoking marijuana a more serious crime for a combat sport than doing steroids. That shows an extreme bias that is really negatively affecting athletes because she did not win because she smokes weed. Plain and simple. It's really stupid. It's amazing that she could win considering well, she smokes so weed. I it, would think smoking it, it weed certainly didn't help. Yeah, it didn't help. Yeah. But she probably, oh, here's the other thing, David. She wasn't high when she was performing. She didn't get, she didn't do a bong hit. But marijuana is not a performance enhancing drug. It's not. Although some people say they think better on it. But that's, I don't know. Whatever. But it's nobody, not, nobody that would not, not be classified as. It does not help you think quickly. That is not, that is a certainty. It does not help you think on your feet. That it, is it not, not what I've been told. It might not hurt you, but it really, look. Do you smoke dope? When Nick D was that? Do you smoke dope? Of course. And isn't sativa the one that you smoke to be funny and to write better? Uh, not me. I don't think it makes me write better. I don't think it does any. I don't think it makes you more productive or anything. It's just something you do for various reasons, but it's certainly not a physical performance enhancer. There's just no. There's no. World is it a mental? It is it a mental performance en- enhancer? No. I don't think so. I, I really don't think so. There are people I know, com- comedians and comedy writers, who say if it weren't for pot, they wouldn't be funny. Well, I don't know. Not, I would have to find out specifically who we're talking about to determine if they are funny at all. How often do you so, smoke pots? It's July fifth. I'm just don't curious. You, don't you worry? Are you ashamed that you smoke pot? No, no. But I'm not letting you lead me into this. Whatever, whatever you're trying to do here. I'm, we're talking about, about a very commonly used drug that is legal to use in many states now. I, I've told you, I smoke pot all the time. I have no compunction about it. And 
it's not something that I would ever think, oh, I'm going to fight someone. I better smoke some weed no, first. Right. Or but I'm you've never go, done I'm much. I'm going to go race someone. I'm going to do a, you know, smoke a joint. That's not how it works. You've never, and, you've never done my show high. Mm, not too high. <laughs> you've never, you know, you would be terrified to do my show stoned. No, I, I'd only really have a problem if it was in person. You know what? You're going to have to send me your urine. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, anyway. Do you know who um, Mike Steinell is? This no. is he's going to be on late. He does the music. And Mike. Mike had a, a part in a movie uh, five years ago that warns about pot. Did you ever, can I play you a clip of it? Sure. This is Mike Steinell. He does the music and he plays the bad boy in this documentary that I think it was an ABC after school special five years ago, warning kids about the dangers of pot. We'll talk about this in a second. Uh, well, we would have to play the music. Hang on. See, hang and this on. This was from 2016. This was from uh, maybe tw it looks a little older. It might have been 2015. This is mm -hmm. uh, Mike Steinell. Because they, they did stop having after school specials in 1986. When? Mm, impossible. In yeah. No, that's impossible. Uh, OK, not going to find it. Look, marijuana law has always been kind of a joke. It's always been something that seemed to be a lot more about an excuse to punish uh, blacks and Hispanics. Right. You know, because they it was a as a you know, way of sort of demonizing immigrants back in you know, the 50s or 40s when the uh, tax hemp stamp act was and you know, in the 30s, of course. I mean, it's always just been a sort of it's like abortion. People pretend it's really offending them, but really they're just mad at other people for enjoying something they don't. Not abortion, sex. Right. But but yeah, it's always just been like marijuana has often been used like slut shaming as a means of people who are particularly boring of trying to feel superior to strangers. Bill Cosby's out. There's going to be a documentary. Yeah. Bill Cosby is a free man. He's and a free miraculously, his eyesight came back. <laughs> I know. I know. What's going to happen in the comedy community? Is Jerry Seinfeld, are they going to embrace him? Are they going to welcome? No. no, no, no. Here's one thing I will say. A lot of people looked at Bill Cosby and said, well, this is going to go exactly like Louie. They all let Louie back in the clubs and they're going to do the same thing with Cosby. I would not want to have done a show with Louie. I do think that the clubs let Louie back too soon. But what Louie did and what Bill Cosby did are not in the same universe. Louis did something very bad. Louis did something he should pay for, that he should be apologizing for to many, many women, and that he sh and that people should see our consequences. Bill Cosby should be locked in a hole till he dies. There is a difference between those people. I do not think Louis C.K. should spend his life in prison for what he did, but I do think that he should suffer consequences because he really hurt a lot of women and harassed a lot of people in a way he shouldn't have. But he didn't do what Bill Cosby did. Bill Cosby is an animal who needs to never see the light of day. How do you explain Felicia Rashad? Felicia Rashad is an idiot who I think personally 
believes that he did this, but thinks like Judge Joe Brown, that any woman who would spend time with a celebrity deserves whatever. Or a married man. Did you see what Judge Joe Brown said? No. Jesus Christ. This guy was a TV judge for years, and then he just got an interview where he basically, it sounded like he was saying, yeah, he did it and good. Because a TV are, judge just, said that? Judge Joe Brown, you know Judge Joe Brown. We need ethics. Judge this- Joe Brown was a TV judge who he went, he went on this rant where he started saying that, oh, these women, they, they get drunk and they dress provocatively and they meet That's these celebrities. And he's basically just sounds like he's describing every woman he's ever spoken to. And he just says how they deserve it because they put themselves. It was. It's really interesting that you say this because I used to watch uh, Camille, the wife. Mm -hmm. And why does she why does she stand with him? And it occurred to me that she felt this is my husband. You were sleeping. You were flirting with a married man. You deserve whatever happens to you. That's that's how Joe Brown looked at it. I think they're where these women deserve whatever happens to them if they have the audacity to not cover themselves up and stay at home with their fathers. Right. I mean, that's it's, it's like a Saudi Arabian thing where they're just like, well, if you leave the house alone, I guess you deserve whatever happens to you. You know, that it's like that a good woman is someone who literally has never been in a room with anyone who's not her husband, her brother or father. Right. I mean, it's insane that these people are jumping through these mental hoops to forgive someone like this. Because Felicia Rashad is probably someone who grew up believing, or at least was taught, maybe manipulated by Cosby to believe that you're a good woman. You would never have dinner with a man. You know, this these women did. They, these weren't dates. These women who were lied to, told that they were having auditions for Christ's sake. Like these are women who were manipulated in any possible way to get them in a room alone with him, and then he attacked them. It wasn't even always drugs. A lot of these women were physically attacked by this larger, not 80-year-old at the time man. And I I really can't, and, and no, my answer is, I am saying my prediction, you will not see almost anyone in the comedy world embracing Bill Cosby. You will see a very small number of inconsequential nobodies talking about who who probably also have a lot to say about conspiracies and vaccinations talking about uh some sort of witch hunt against bill cosby i do not personally think you will see any chain comedy clubs ever allowing him to perform he's going to be performing in bars and restaurants with single owners and getting protested single owners because you you can only boycott that club and not the right. rest of their. You're products. not going to see the improv. You're not going right. to see the Laugh Factory. You're not going to see Uncle Funnies. You're not going to see Zanies putting this piece of shit up. Now, there's a Trump connection because the D.A. who made the deal that Was allowed him to Trump in the impeachment. Right. And that Don Jr. apparently has been posting about how excited he is that that. Trump that that Cosby is out, which makes sense because, you know, how do you tell the difference between, you know, one person is going to accuse of all these people. Another, you kind of you're always going to err on the side of women are liars. If you're Donald Trump, Jr. Um, I watched him open for his dad. I didn't see that. I did read 
some funny clips. Yeah. And he, he said, uh, this is what Don Jr. said. He said, I don't need to be doing this. I'm I'm a New York state. Uh, I'm a New York real estate developer. And I'm thinking, no, you're yeah. not. <laughs> you're no, just laundering not. money also, for your fun. Donald Trump Jr., uh, very wealthy, very successful, doesn't need all of this. Oh, um, but if you want him to say hi to your grandpa, it'll be $200. <laughs> He's also on Cameo, desperately trying to make a couple of bucks. Did you see his tweet last week where people were actually oh. concerned that he's taking some substance? No, wait, what'd he say? He was just attacking Cyrus Vance's office for indicting Weisselberg and and people said there was something with his jaw and a slurred speech. It suggested that he might have been doing. Oh, I did see someone yeah. showing that he's been doing the telltale Coke jaw thing yeah. where he moves his jaw back and forth. Uh, I mean, look, a lot of at what at what point out. are we supposed to feel sorry for Don Jr. and stop hating him? Why would we? Why? Because he's because he, he his father calls him an idiot. His father to his face has repeatedly said, I can't believe I gave you my name. He is jealous of Jared because his father fawns moons all over Jared and treats Don Jr. The way Don Jr. deserves to be treated. Don is having this relationship with Kimberly, who cannot be good for him. Right. And no, and, no. I mean, he's being pretty used, it seems. But and I he's mean, weak. Look, you know, I mean, he's State basically weak. He was very aloof. What? The Golden State Killer's parents were very aloof. And, and Don, were, that's not. why Don shoots endangered species in Africa. Yeah. Well, yeah, because he thinks it makes him a big man. You know, he thinks, look, I mean, he's just a very, very visibly unhappy person who... And it sounds like he's crying at the speech that he gave opening for his dad. It's it really I don't mean I'm not saying this uh, metaphorically. It sounded like a cry for help. It sounded like he was crying. It, it was, I mean, I think that he's a person who is very lost right now and is desperately trying to seize power because you have to understand. His father seized power in a way that even himself and his family thought was impossible. Everyone was like, oh my God, it's this easy to just do this? This right. is scary. So I think Don Jr. thinks that like, oh, it's that easy. I can do it too. But also the, the, the Trumps have this very weird situation where it's like, it's not going to be one or the other. Either you become king of the earth or you get punished for all your crimes. And the only way you're not going to get punished is if you become president again. Right. So I think that there's a sort of sense of fear with Don Jr. because it must feel like this house of cards is collapsing. It must feel like the walls are closing in, right. especially when you realize that you don't have the power you used to and your popularity is still going down. And now a lot of people are being really screwed over by the insurrection in terms of employment. All these people who thought that they were going to move on from the Trump administration, have jobs in Washington or not, because the insurrection gave them the excuse to ban everybody from most jobs, which they should have been banned anyway. Yeah, I think Donald Trump Jr. is a great example of someone who is a classic sort of uh, coked up con man desperately trying to lie as fast as possible to get out of the room. Yeah, I, I don't want to end up feeling sorry for him. But when I, I saw don't see him, why you would. 
Yeah. You're going to feel sorry for anyone. I mean, Eric's the one who doesn't seem to have the wherewithal to even know what's going on. Well, before you go, I found the, the, the after school special that Mike Steinell was in. He did the right. music and he plays Mike. He plays himself as a, a young drug dealer. And I'm going to talk about this with him. But it, it does. I think this is an accurate depiction of the dangers of marijuana. And we should uh, we should watch it and then discuss because it's uh, it's important and it's great work by, uh, if I can find the, here it is, Mike Steinel, Professor Mike Steinel. He does the music and the acting. He plays the drug dealer in this. Uh, you might want to gather your kids uh, and, and make them watch this. You become more dependent on one another, but your pleasure in each other's company becomes less satisfying, and you depend more and more on the pills to help. Finally, the pills are not enough, and you're ready for the second act of your three-act tragedy. You've heard Mike and the group talk of toking up a joint. You know it means smoking marijuana. Mike is more experienced than you in the ways of narcotics, but until now he has never suggested that you toke up together. But the pills don't give either of you the desired effect any longer, and in the insecurity of your relationship you feel a need to find some new experience to bind you together. So a suggestion that only a short month ago would have been repulsive now is considered. The smell and the taste are anything but pleasing. It makes you cough and your throat becomes dry and hot. You feel like you're floating. You concentrate on one object, a tree in the distance. It's called fixing. As you concentrate, time slows down. You hallucinate that is you dream. This is called tripping. Your depth perception is affected. If you had to step off a curb or get out of a car, you would probably need help because the distance might be exaggerated. On the other hand, distance might seem to diminish. As with alcohol, the problems don't disappear. They only temporarily seem to vanish and return with jarring force when the effects of the drugs wear off. But when you get on narcotics, it's like starting a never-ending downward tailspin from 30,000 feet. You become less sure of yourself, your surroundings, your friends. Quarrels are more frequent with your parents and loved ones. You try to convince yourself you're right, but deep inside you know you're not. You lose your sense of values. You think of little else but another blow-up, your newfound language for smoking marijuana. You've completed the second act, and the third act curtain is just about to go up. You don't know it now, but when it does, it's the beginning of the end, the point of no return. That's, that's actually the only... Hang on, that is the music. That, that's Mike Steinal as the, the drug dealer, and you can hear his trumpet playing. We'll, we'll play it for him later on in the show. That, was that an is after, exciting. That's his that after-school special that he did. I've seen an anti-marijuana video that did not involve the woman having sex with a jazz man. <laughs> <laughs> now, is marijuana a narcotic? They call it a narcotic. I mean, I don't know what the definition of narcotic is. I just know that. There is the the way they treated weed back then was so antiquated and kind of sad. It was it's from the sixties. That's from the sixties. 
this was a time when a when drinking this was a time when drinking water instead of scotch with dinner was called coming out of the closet <laughs> and they were obsessed with telling people like i said because marijuana was the drug of black and latino people at the time uh, that's what they associated it with. And they thought this was a great way of telling them to stay the hell out of the country, basically. was right. the, re- the same reason why prohibition of alcohol was big when Italian and Irish immigrants were the immigrants they were trying to keep away. So, I mean, it's, it's just really stupid, especially when you consider that, like, there are several things that only weed can do. They, they have yet to create a drug that properly stimulates appetite during chemotherapy that's not weed. They have yet to create a drug that is a painkiller without a lethal dosage that is not weed. Yeah. So, and look, and you saw that you saw that video. The people writing that video are just kind of arbitrarily making up what they think weed does to people. Like, let's be like this was a movie in the '60s when everyone making movies was on weed, and that's why the anti-weed ones are the worst ones. I agree with everything they said. I think. Pot leads to death. I agree That's with that. Stupid. I do. That's dumb. All right. Dave, <laughs> Dave Cyrus. Don't boycott Ricky Williams. Dave Cyrus is a brilliant comedian and comedy writer. His latest movie is The King of Staten Island. He writes for SNL, Fox's Let's Be Real, and countless other shows that are too painful for me to enumerate. The, the yeah, jealousy yeah. will just uh, make it impossible for me to continue. Are you doing any stand-up this week? Uh, yeah, I think I'm doing the uh, the roast battle at the New York Comedy Club Thursday again. Oh, I'm doing okay. I'm doing another judging there, so I'll be doing that show. All right, buddy, great job, right. thank you. When we come back, John Ross and Ethan. <laughs> Hot 
times in the city Hot times in the city Welcome back. <laughs> You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. If you would like to sit in our Zoom room and join the conversation, go to davidfeldmanshow.com and hit attend a live taping. This Friday, office hours, we just did 24 hours of office hours and hours and it was phenomenal. It was just great. Joining us are two of my favorite people, John Ross and Ethan Hershenfeld. <laughs> two beloved guests. And, and, you know, before I say hello to John Ross, Ethan, John has been requesting. He says, I, he, he, John is sick of me. And he says, I want to do the show with Ethan. So I said, well, okay, do it with Ethan. But Ethan, you should be doing the show. Well, Go ahead. There, there was something that I wanted to talk about that with Ethan. Um, but uh, first, I have to take care of a little ombudsman business. Okay. One second. Yeah. So, all right, David, repeat after me. Ready? Ready. Yeah. Ch Ch Pot Lay. There's a T in it. No. Say it. Do it again. Ch Ch Pot Pot Lay. Lay. Chipotle. Kamala. <laughs> okay, and now also get out a pen and paper and write these words down. Okay. You're, you're no longer allowed to use any of these words. You ready? Yes. Frog March. Frog March. Okay. Dang it. Humunculus. Humunculus. I've been thinking of getting rid of that word. Yeah. But and, I've, that's um, how I describe Jeff Bezos. Well, you describe several people that way. And human excrement. Human excrement. What's another word? Fundament. I like fun. That, that's Rabelaisian. If you read Rabelais, he refers to. Uh, Human excrement. I think, uh, homunculus first appeared in my brain when Woody Allen describes Wallace Shawn as a hum homunculus in, I think it's Manhattan. So. Let me give yeah. let me give a proper introduction. John Ross is a farmer, no longer a gentleman farmer. That's problematic, and he is a great comedy writer one of my oldest friends, and Ethan Hershenfeld, Thug Thug Jew, watch it on YouTube right now. Everybody loves Ethan. Well, I was gonna, that's one of the things I wanted to- Go ahead. Get into a conversation with Ethan about, but first I wanna wish you guys happy holidays, my least favorite holiday of the year. I'm with you. I'm oh with boy. You. Yeah, yeah. Cause you have a dog. Because Firework. I have yeah. a dog and she's, yeah. 
was cowering in the closet in the corner, shaking all night long. Thank goodness they canceled the fireworks here in Provincetown uh, this week because I think because of COVID, they're still taking it seriously. So the dogs were given a break. And did you hear about these places like out west where because of the drought, they canceled the fireworks because they were afraid of fires and people got so angry. How dare you not let us maybe burn down past the state? And it's just, it's so infantile. This like, I don't even understand. So you, you go, ooh, go boom, go boom. Like, what do you even... I, I think it's a... I had it's the, a I think the association is to warfare equals America is great. Go USA. Boom. I think that's it. That, it's really quite a, a direct link to feeling uh, powerful. I had the I had the experience of flying on the 4th of July. Me too. And we were coming into Me land too. and I was watching fireworks going off below. And I had the, the distinct impression that we were being attacked by a gay army. <laughs> <laughs> I experienced that too, flying into LA. Yeah. And I look out the window and then I realize the engine was on fire. But uh, no, I, it was beautiful coming into LA, seeing the fireworks. What did you guys do for July 4th? Uh, my, my sister who's nearby, she had a friend who was having, uh, she has an annual thing where they bake a lot of desserts and then you watch the fireworks, which was nice, but there, there were just scattered homemade fireworks this time, but it's like a sugar high and then, uh, fireworks and then, uh, and your sister's a doctor. Yes. Yes. Is it healthy? Um, Are you allowed to, I don't mean to violate a trust, but you would think a doctor would, was it a vegan you know, no sugar, just fruit juice, sweetened sweet. I'm afraid there were a few bowls of fruit, but then there was a lot of baked goods, which definitely, definitely I was doing the the cheat. Yeah, the cheat with some baked goods. I had some eggs and things in there. Yeah. You go to a barbecue and it's basically, hey, it's good to see you. Let me let me take advantage of your vulnerability because you're hungry and only offer you stuff that will make you hate yourself. Let me just give you just fat and mayonnaise and sweets. And so you'll just hate yourself for a week. That's what July 4th means to me. What did you do, John? You look happy. I, I'm, I'm, are you OK? No, we didn't do anything. Um, really, um, my my daughter had worked uh, on the farm and came went straight over to a friend's house. And then by the time she got home, she was just so exhausted. She fell asleep and my wife was on a tear wanting to clean the house. So you look happy, though. You look you look very content. Well, I don't know why that would be. What uh, kind of farm is it? You're, so you have I, an actual farm. No, I do not. But she works on uh, a beautiful organic farm not that far from here. And she's 16 and she sometimes works in the field sometimes she works in the wash barn sometimes she works in the store they have you know a store nice. so uh we get un so i've i've kind of i have a homestead so i have a giant garden that i've kind of not tended so much this year because she can bring home everything from the farm for free so and you, you have woodchucks who are farming, hungry you have i understand you're doing a little bit of uh farming yes yeah. And also, I wanted to show you guys what happened in the woods this week. Look at these beauties. 
Do you know what they are? I've identified them with the help of a Facebook group. You can always trust Facebook. <laughs> with uh, your life. They're Bolit, they're Bolitas. Bolitas is a family of mushrooms, which is a very big family. There's about 300 types, apparently. And some of them are, are, are very delicious. These wow, they look fake. Those look like... I know, like the prop department. Yeah, yes, exactly. But these Bolitas, someone is telling me, are, are bitter. The bitter Bolitas, which... I, I don't know. We'll see. I'll cook them. But the bitter Belitas was the name of Eddie Pepitone's last but special. Not poisonous, just not delicious. I'm sorry. What? They're considered. They're not poisonous. They're just not delicious. Apparently, the, these bitter Belitas. But you know, they're 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 pretty amazing. I mean, look at these things. They're 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 big. Well, speaking of mushrooms, yeah. My my daughter is obsessed with mushrooms and, and built a special box in which she cut holes to put her gloves through to it's a and i forget what it's called an airtight box where she is going to propagate mushrooms and make them but she claims they're going to save the world because they can sequester carbon from the air wow and they contain i didn't know this i was just reading about it to see if to make sure i'm not poisoning myself but they contain carbohydrates they contain protein they contain fat it's just bizarre that this thing that just pops up in the woods has everything in it and it's not a plant so if you're plant-based it's not plants it's a fungus right. Right. Uh, so but you're growing uh marijuana yes a friend from california sent me seeds and they're they're doing quite quite now, well now but this is your first go around now i did it last year for the first time and i uh -huh. I have some stuff to tell you. Okay. Uh, how, many, how many plants do you have? So six is the legal limit. I put eight in the ground and only six survived. So now, I have six. And you know you have to sex them. You know about the boys and the girls. I don't even know about that with humans. So there's <laughs> a thing with that with plants. What is that? You've got to get rid of the boys. Oh, I think these are already. Uh, I oh. think my friend sent me the seeds. They were already just feminized. Yeah. Real because you know well, we call them woke. What sensamia means? Sensamia without balls, oh. without semen, without seeds. Wow, that's why the, it grows without seeds. Sans uh -huh. semen. Wow. Um, and I so didn't know that. Get rid of the boys, otherwise they get fertilized. Uh, all right, so you, you're going to have that many <laughs> six plants. That's how many I had. I had planted, I think, eight and two turned out to be males, and I ended up with six. Okay. Now, we're, I'm sure they're growing fantastically. Right now, all the rain and everything else. I mean, where I live, this is a 500,000-year-old uh, glacial bed, so it's all dead fish. So things grow like crazy. You're going to have more marijuana than you could use in 20 lifetimes if you were a heavy smoking pothead. I it's heard gonna, that. It's going to be so much. Yeah, my neighbor told me, my neighbor told me that his friend did it, had six plants, and then was just giving it away, that there was tons oh, of it. But I don't see that happening yet. They're only this tall. They're only like, you know, two and a half feet tall. And, but we'll they'll, see. Yeah. They'll be over six feet tall by the time. Wow. Yes, and now, there's also so much that goes into it. There's so much science. Do you know anybody like you're going to have to get a jeweler's loop? Do you know about that? And look, I don't. At my, 
it, it, there's a very specific time that you need to harvest them because the trichomes, which are little kind of mushroom toadstool looking things that come up on the leaves, they're almost not microscopic, but you have to look at it fills with this clear resin. And when 30% of the resin is starting to get cloudy, that's when you want to get them. If, it, if they get too cloudy, if you get it too early, it's not psychoactive enough. I if see. you wait too long, yeah. you, it, you get couch lock. I think. <laughs> they, well, why that, wouldn't you wait? Wait, wait, if you wait too long? It, it, it paralyzes you. You get this much more of a body high as opposed to a, a, a head high. If you smoke it, you'll just kind of. Is that is that how you determine how the there, pot makes it, you feel? There's there's part of it is that part of it is the strain, which would, I don't know what type. But here's the real thing wow. that I've got to prepare you for. It's, okay. By the way, before you say this next thing, just so you know, based on how much I have to know from what you've told me now, I'm already switching back to beer. But go ahead. But go ahead. I'm taking notes. Bad. <laughs> you know what you're really paying for? Why weed is so expensive? It's the labor. Uh huh. There's so much labor. It takes so long. First, you've got to, when you cut it down, you've got to instantly do an initial trim where you're trimming off, you know, the big leaves. That's not that hard. But then when you have to get down to the part where you're snipping off the leaves so that it doesn't, you know, crush around it. Um, I measure time in um, David Feldman podcasts. <laughs> like, it's like a light year. <laughs> So it takes like three David Feldman podcasts to get through like one plan. It's unbelievable. Well, let me tell you this. I'm my, I have a family member who's been coming over to, to use my basement here as his drying spot. Oh, you have it. Oh, perfect. But, but he's been doing that. He's a, he's a few weeks ahead of me in the growing. And so he's over here several times a day for several days in a row. So I, I can tell it's a lot of work. He's snipping. He's got fans. He's got de, a dehumidifier. He's, he's yeah. got, he's got oh, so you've got experts helping you. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah I'm going to, I'm going to delegate because. Uh, but the, so, but the best thing I've done with it, because I don't use, much marijuana, but I made like an extract uh-huh. where, you know, first you carboxylize it. You have to kind of cook it. Like if you eat marijuana, it doesn't do anything to you. You have uh-huh. to cook it first. And uh-huh. then you, I, you, I added like um, grain alcohol, like Everclear. And I also added valerian root and I made like a thing to put me to sleep at night. It's fantastic. <laughs> that's what I use it for. So those are my that's my advice. Wow! Thank you for all that. How that's long amazing. does pot hold? If you if you grow more pot than you're ever gonna need, can you store it, or is there it put it in a humidifier? How long can you have pot sitting around the house? I, I think if you have it in a uh, like a, a mason jar with one of those little humidifier packs, like a desiccant pack, it can stay for a pretty long time. But it is about the humidity. You don't want it to get over dry or over moist; or it'll get moldy. So right. like tobacco, you know, good tobacco can store for a while, but eventually it, you know. Well, that's what my, uh, my family member was just telling me that the, the mold thing is, a, it's a whole t- timing it exactly right. So it's at the maximum THC, but before it starts to get moldy, you got to find yeah. the moment to pick it. It's really an interesting plant and it's fun to kind of play with it like a chemistry experiment, but right. you know, I, I have mason jars in my basement is full of mason jars of weed. I couldn't, wow. I don't know enough people to get it. Is it, it good weed? Wow. 
but it's well that's the other thing what you're going to really end up growing unless you're going to get really scientific and down to it you're going to grow what i call throwback weed <laughs> it's going to be like the weed you had in the 70s and the 80s where you could smoke a whole joint and feel okay it, like you get high but as opposed to the stuff you get at the store where it's like one puff and really call 911. Well, I, I had a very weird experience last Saturday. The, the municipal pools in New York opened for the first time. You're not swimming. You're not yes. swimming with diarrhea, are you? You saw the no. CDC warning. Leave your diarrhea at home. Do not bring your diarrhea with you. Do not swim with it. I don't know if that's if that's good science right there. I feel like you should be able to. But in any case, someone handed me a sample of a, a THC beverage in the park. They were just handing it out as a promo. Oh. And I drank it later, and then I forgot about it, and I, 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 I got completely stoned. And I know it wasn't psychosomatic because I had forgotten I had it. Yeah. And people, people always say that that can't do that to you. CBD just makes you feel at ease, et cetera. It doesn't got, not get you high. But this can of something called... Um, Kalo, K-A-L-O. It did uh, almost almost killed me. It didn't almost kill me, but it got me very high. Yeah. But even when I try to give it away, people don't want it because they like to go to the store and get the thing that they know exactly how many milligrams it is. Oh, right, right, right. Eat that they want, as opposed to it's like, hey, here's a big bag of weed. You want it? And they're like, oh, no thanks. Yeah. Because oh, I, I, when I yeah. used to smoke pot, this was 30 years ago. I didn't know how it was going to make me feel. It was either going to make me happy, elated, paranoid, depressed. Now you can, you know exactly how you're going to feel before you smoke it, right? I don't know. I don't smoke enough weed to know. Yeah, I, I barely know. do it at all. I mean, that's very Here's the thing I don't understand. Huh? If you smoke pot, why aren't you smoking it all the time? Because that's what I would do if I if if there were if I would allow myself to smoke pot the way I used to. And it's this good. And I never smoked really good pot. I would just be stoned all the time. Why would you give up? Like, why would you say, you know what? This is the best I'm going to feel all day, but I'm not going to feel great all day. I'm just going to I'll wait a couple of hours and suffer through life without them. Why wouldn't you just smoke it? Well, first of all, you might have to drive somewhere. Like if you, yeah, if you get an Uber. Things to do, you know? There are things that it's not really, uh, uh, doesn't help. But what about uh, the people who tell me they do everything stoned? They drive well, stoned, they- I'm like that with alcohol. First thing <laughs> in the morning. Like all day long, I, I feel great. <laughs> Uh, I wish I could just feel I quit drinking and smoking in 88 and I haven't felt that good since I'm being serious. I, I, I just gave I said, you know what? You're done. But I just wish I could feel that relaxed and optimistic and secure as I felt when I was stoned and drunk. Have, have either of you investigated or looked or maybe done this like uh therapeutic psychedelic thing that people are doing no we shouldn't we shouldn't talk about this we told your dad and we taught we said that it's irresponsible for i would i would do it i i i enjoy i have not done them since i was probably been 30 years 
But um, no, I, I won't I, do that. No, we're going to change this up. We, I don't, I, okay. I don't approve. Uh, let's change the subject. Let's talk. So let me, yeah, go ahead. Say, um, uh, as regarding Thug Thug Jew, uh, Ethan Hershenfeld yes. special, which David Feldman does not have the um, the balls, the balls to watch, to watch. Um, and he, so he'll never see it. But I will tell you, David, here's a thing that you would appreciate about it. Not once does the man use the F word. Falashal Jew. <laughs> uh, and, and so, you know, I was just I was thinking about words and, and one word in particular. Um, yeah. and now, it was that a thing that you did because you knew you were filming it or do you never use it or no. what was your. No. So we actually did two two shows the night of the taping uh -huh. and the record company, 800 pound gorilla. They explained to me that um, to get on Sirius XM, um, one of the particular channels, Laugh USA, where you can get a lot more play if you get on there, they have those, those strict family friendly guidelines. So so we did one completely clean take uh -huh. and then the later. So I, the 7 p.m. show, I did the clean and then the 9 p.m. show, I it was less clean, but that just means there were two F-bombs in the whole hour. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, I specifically eliminated those for that, for that version. Yeah. And it was just for, I, I don't use it a lot, but I, I don't mind it if it's the right word. That, that's what I assumed from kind of hearing you talk. So I was kind of surprised, uh, you know, like David tries to, like, you should never use it, you know, which is dumb. It's a powerful word, but it got me into thinking about the other word, which is, the n-word and i want to know um you want to know why why my why my special is just full of that <laughs> <laughs> just a weird a weird choice but i felt like it was right for that special well i liked it so much because I, I, this sounds weird to say that i love the n-word <laughs> easy but, easy but i'm not not using it but it yeah, I'm. I are, are. Do you have any jealousy at all? It is so powerful. Like when you watch Dave Chappelle and he wields that word like Majolner's hammer. <laughs> it is so powerful. <laughs> and it's so funny. And I, 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 it makes me laugh. Now it's just like the F word. Somebody who's not funny can use it and kind of get by, and it's not good. And it, that's almost that's offensive. But. I love it when somebody's funny and can use that word, black comics, uh, a lot, especially female comics. It really <laughs> makes me laugh. Um, and I, feel like, I feel like we have our own version of that, uh, Jewish comics, and I like to wield that like, like uh, well, not like someone's hammer so much, but more like my grandmother's humantash. <laughs> and that word, that word is yid. Man, yid, yid, please. <laughs> no, it doesn't, like, oh, no. no, doesn't do it. Doesn't work. No. You my yid. Uh, yeah, it doesn't work. No, it does it, not work. No, it is so I'm glad we tried it though. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's there is nothing in the vocabulary anything like it. And you know, um, Dave Chappelle. Um, you know who's um, Cat Williams? You ever listen to Cat? <laughs> yes. Oh yes. my, so funny, and he couldn't do it without that word. But yeah, and it's well, well, not I'm not saying he couldn't do anything, but right. so much of what he does, he use it and it, he has me on the floor. Um, the, uh, yeah, I don't know. 
And it's probably, didn't Paul Mooney, what's that? Didn't Paul Mooney, after the Michael Richards incident, say he was never going to say the N word again? Uh, Yeah. And then he went back to saying, thing like what happens like when somebody is of mixed race and like do they get you know what i mean like um can i play something for you and i I, as long as you're walking out on an edge here there was a police chief in ohio who was either fired or forced to step down because he was caught on surveillance video ku klux klan writing ku klux klan on an African-American police officer's raincoat, okay? And when I read about this, my hatred for the police went up, and I went, how dare he? And and what do you you think about this, and what do you know about it? I didn't hear this story. I I heard the story, and... um, I'm curious to how much you know, because then I'm going to show you the surveillance video. Well, to me, it's all about the guy whose coat it was left on. What does he feel? It's all it, that's the only thing that matters is how that guy felt and how he took it. That's what matters. We don't have any context. The, the cop who did it said it was part of some joke. I, I could understand some scenario where you explain the whole joke to me. I'm like, oh, OK, that's that's kind of funny. That's not that bad. Like if the other guy was in on it and it, you know what I mean? It doesn't, I can't think of that scenario, but I can imagine it being explained to me. So I don't have the context. That's like this, you know, context is everything. You know, everybody's so mad because was it Hunter Biden who was using the N word, you know, and it, it was like, he was saying it to a fellow lawyer or something going, you my N word. And, and it wasn't yeah, ER. It wasn't ER. It ended with an A, which right, is different. Right, right, right. Which, to me, you could make the argument that they're saying it in a in a jovial way that is because they're fans of the culture. And yet, if two other guys say, I don't want to go in that restaurant, I understand they're letting uh, African-Americans eat there. Oh, that's okay? Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's so much more evil right. and hateful, whereas two So context is everything. I don't know the context. You want to play this video? I'm going to play it, and I want to set this up. I was reluctant to play this because I've been thinking a lot about it. But since you... T- so before I play it, the world is changing underneath the feet of baby boomers. And some have learned and others haven't. There is a, a way in which, and I've been part of this, a way in which people interrelate at an office. I have been the Jew at an office, and I was aware that I was the only Jew in the office. I was the resident Jew, and there were Jew jokes. And there was a part of Clearly me... It was not a law firm. It was not a law firm. There were... Jew jokes. This is a writer's room and you were the only Jew? That is another myth about all comedy writers are Jewish. That's a whole other story. I'm not saying all, but one out of how many? Not as many, not as many comedy writing rooms are Jewish as you think. That's, that's, but that's a whole other issue. I have been in situations, social situations, work situations where I was the Jew. And to and some people couldn't get over the fact that I was Jewish and they, I didn't think that they were evil or anti-Semitic, but they were very much aware 
that I was Jewish. And by making jokes about it, it kind of eased the tension. And I know that African-Americans have to do that in workplaces when they're the only African-American. They kind of make it okay to make minor jokes because we we're just teasing and it's playful and it's, it, it, you have to you have to address the elephant in the room it's better right. than everybody thinking it and tiptoeing around it so you make some jokes that are hopefully not you know offensive to anybody right and i can't speak for african americans but i do know being the only jew in a room is also a source of power because there's something like they're on edge this is interesting and- and you control the banks. <laughs> I control the banks. And if if you're African-American or if you're a woman or if you're gay, there's a power, a pride that comes with your being unique and different from everybody else. And so the jokes, when they're not hurtful, they're OK because it's just releasing some tension. Now, it's changing the, the, the world is changing and we're being told that those jokes are unacceptable. I understand that. And quite frankly, I didn't like being the resident Jew. I would have preferred to be the resident African-American. I think they're cooler than. No, I, I, I don't. I would. I'm an American. I didn't like being the resident Jew, but I did it. And. But in the back of my mind, I didn't like it. OK, but. I accepted it and I didn't think it was evil. Now, I'm going to show you the clip of this police chief in Ohio. His last name is Campos. And this is him putting the the KKK label on this African-American police officer's jacket. And you'll see that. Go ahead. I wanted to just say before. I I just wanted to repeat what you said, which is. In all these situations we're talking about, the, John is right. The key is how does that person feel about it? Right. So let me right. to say that those jokes are, are in good fun and yada, yada. And it's just and it's it really is all about the experience of the person who's the who's the subject. Anyway, go ahead. Right. And so and so please keep in mind that this is for people who are listening. John knows that. So, you know, if you want to do a play by play, if I ever find the clip, that would be useful because. Uh, where is it? Um, hang on. Sorry, folks. It's July 5th. Oh, to the videotape. I know. It's July 5th. So I'm a little, uh, where, where, there we go. I hope this is it. Uh, okay. Here we go. This is a police chief in Ohio. 68 basically started to fall apart are you see him can you hear me yeah i can see him so he put the kkk thing on the guy's jacket and he leaves the room but he's standing around so he's waiting he knows that the african-american police officer is going to be coming right back to see this and he is standing there talking and waiting his name is Police Chief Anthony Campo. He was forced to retire from the Sheffield Lake Police Department. Now, here's the African-American who, who sees his jacket oh, he laughing. and he starts yeah. laughing. And the police chief is standing in the doorway for the reaction. 
And now the police chief is walking in hands in pocket and he brings in his friends says, look at this. Somebody left a KKK sign on whatever this officer's jacket is. So obviously the police chief. Does that guy have filling on his left arm? Or is that? No, I think that was the cord from his. Uh, oh, I swear. OK, so no. so so you, you see all the other they're their duty. They're coming to the end of their their. Uh, session, their work session, and they're, you know, all white, morbidly obese police officers. And the police chief, do you think that that was intended to intimidate, to provoke that that cop? Before we get to that, I I always want to go to these places and commit a crime in front of one of these cops and get into a foot chase with them. (laughs) Because I just feel like I could be running backwards and taunting. <laughs> they are obese. The other, the, the offensive thing about it, apart from the KKK thing, is just that he's doing pranks. I just find pranks in general stupid and offensive. Right. So, especially when there's more important work to be done. But here's a question: Who reported this? I, I think the African American police officer reported it and said he so was uncomfortable. I, with I it. get that he would have to put on the happy face and go, right. oh, ha, 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 hilarious. You right. put cake, you put Ku Klux Klan on, on my desk, on my right. jacket. Aren't you funny? That's fantastic. Hello. <laughs> yeah, but, but didn't it looked like a genuine. It's from it's a, it's the shot is from behind him. It looked like a genuine like show like belly laugh. Yeah, it. it, it yeah, but then maybe he had a chance to think about it. Right. Sure. Yeah. And the times have changed and you don't have to put up with that anymore. Maybe uh, he thought he would get a promotion if that guy was out of there. I know. I know. Is Jim Earl here? Yes. Uh, his name. Yeah. Oh, oh, he's here. I didn't see him. Where is he? Oh, there you are. I'm just I'm coming down off a great acid high, guys. I heartily recommend it, by the way. Acid is good for you. But it's sulfuric acid. <laughs> oh, that's re- that would be harmful. That'd be, I don't. Is sulfuric acid the stuff that smells like vomit? Remember in high school, they would work with sulfuric acid and the hallways would smell of vomit. Is that what I would? Anyway. That's not what you were smelling. Oh, okay. Uh, Ethan and John, we should do this segment, uh, John and Ethan together. I would love to do that again. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I have no idea how to preserve the chat. uh, Because when I have to leave, the David Feldman show appearances are like kryptonite to me. And I start getting weaker toward the end. (laughs) And I have to close out of the thing very quickly. I'll email you the chat. Email it to me. Don't read the chat. Your email address. Well, it was just that you had put your email address in the chat. And last time, and I was like, we closed out, and I was like, Oh, I had okay. So what I need is, I just need Dave. I'll ask David to give me your email. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks. Happy, happy, um, the happy Fourth of July. But more importantly, then the Fourteenth of July, Independence for France. That's coming up. So yes, let's, let's think about that. Thank you. I'll see you Thursday. I'll play a game with you and your dad. That was fun. We played. How much are they worth? That was really yes. funny. So we'll, we'll, do yeah, we'll see you then for the game. Okay. Yeah, your dad was very funny in that. He's hysterical. When we come back, right. thank you. When we come back, Jim Earl. I don't know. I. 
Welcome back. <laughs> You're listening to the David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Joining us is Emmy and Peabody award-winning comedy writer, Jim Earl, who is uh, working with a Zoom. You have a, you, you, you have a new camera, I see. Those are impressive books, Jim. You have to unmute yourself. Unmute yourself. Yeah. You're the one who uh, muted me. <laughs> Come on, Freaking Jim. John Houston, expert uh, directory here. Still haven't mastered the simple volume. All right, stop behaving with you know with the Zoom. I'm sick of you playing with is toys. It, is, oh, did you notice my my bookshelf? Did, no. What? I, look at this thing I've got on my nose. Hang on. Look at that. That's a tick. You should do a tick check before. You think that's a tick? You enter the house. <laughs> Definitely. Zoom in. Do, 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 let's do the interview this way for July 5th. Just zoom in. Uh, <laughs> uh, joining us is Jim Earl. All right, let's, let's get this back to normal. Can you hear me all right? Yes, I can. How was your July 4th? What, what did you do for July 4th? Uh, I uh, I uh, lit a Roman candle up my ass and uh, no, a rocket over Kennebunk, Maine. That's just a regular weekend for you. What did you do special? And then and then July Fourth happened. And then July. Where's Martha? Well, you didn't invite her. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. You need a, somebody to help you with things. No shit. <laughs> I know, Martha. Martha, he, he Dave says he invited you, but I. Oh, he's full of shit. Martha, it's on. Oh. Anyway, so what did you? So seriously, what did you do for July Fourth? Thanks for the invite, Dave. I sent you an invitation, Martha. Yeah, to what? Yeah, what to her AOL address? She hasn't been on AOL since nineteen ninety. What did we do for uh, yeah. July 4th? We stayed indoors. It was kind of rainy. Yeah. Did and you watch we any movies? We were afraid of gunshots and explosions. Did you watch movies? Yeah, probably. Can't remember the movies. We watched a lot of K-dramas, uh, K K-comedies. What are those? Korean comedies. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you might as well. Uh, you're a writer. I'm sorry. I'm I'm really. If I seem a little together right now, it's because I just came off a a little uh, ecstasy and acid. I like I like to do one right after another in so, order. To and you don't care that that I've specifically said that we have kids who might be listening and they might be influenced by you and think it's okay to do acid have you ever done acid? you know people have Many bad times. trips Pe i wholeheartedly advise people to do it adults <laughs> <laughs> I, I really do i think once you do it you have a whole new way of looking at things and i think a lot of people want to look at the world the way jim earl does well you look at it differently you look at things differently but it's yeah, not it conceivable that you could have a really bad experience 
microdose. Well, you got you have to do it under the right conditions, mm. just like everything else. And Americans are right so smart. What are the right conditions? A quiet place, a safe space. Where I mean, this is America. How safe is that? Can you guarantee twenty-four straight hours of calm in America? Uh, the bright conditions I advise are right in the middle of a busy subway, <laughs> and uh, people screaming everywhere around you, pushing you around. <laughs> That's great. No, I did the first time I did it was uh, actually it was a lot of fun. It was uh, in the middle of uh, Sproul Plaza, Berkeley, UC Berkeley, and there was no yeah. nothing bad, no, no bad feelings, no paranoia, no thoughts about having to go to the emergency room. It was just one hundred percent perfect. No. It was very nice. You have to be under the right frame of mind. You have right. To so don't you think it's a little reckless? Mentally. Don't you think it's a little reckless considering how mentally ill this country is? There there's so many unresolved mental health issues that this country is suffering from, don't you think it's a little irresponsible to suggest that young adults trip when there are so many doorways in their brain that have not been opened yet? This would open another one. <laughs> don't you think that certain certain doorways should remain shut until adults have addressed their psychological, their mental health issues. Don't you think it's a little irresponsible to suggest that Americans who are getting dumber and dumber try hallucinogens and open those doors on their own? I don't think that's a good idea. What was that? Yeah, I, I don't think it's a good idea. Uh, I think it's a great idea I, under the right conditions. Uh, under the, LSD, under the uh, right been... conditions. Under the right conditions. Yeah, everything under the right conditions, moderation in all things. You know, it's uh, used to, uh, the, I believe psychologists are going to bring it back to use in uh, for PTSD. Yeah, psychologists. Yeah. Not, oh, not uh, your friends. Not something Terry, you do with, not something that you should do with your friends and see how it goes. Harry Grant uh, dropped acid over 300 times to help with his depression. It helps yeah. with de depression. And, uh, you know, you, you have to have a little common sense with it. Prepare yourself mentally and physically. Be in the right place, in a comfortable place that you're comfortable with. Have some music ready to listen to, uh, a movie to watch, some TV. Do you know anybody who has had a bad trip? Not nothing like the cliche bad trips that I do. Uh, Jack Webb. I, you, I know. Uh, three people who had really bad trips. So, well, they're the anomaly. Yeah. And so I think people should be careful suggesting that you casually try hallucinogens. That's my. I didn't say, I didn't say casually, I said plan it. I think plan most it. Americans are too stupid to, to plan a trip <laughs> properly. I think that's a careless thing to tell some repressionable youth that they're too stupid to understand things. I think I think just, just people should have an open mind about things like that. It's, it's uh, do you really you know, believe that or are you just provoking me? No, I really believe it because I've I've dropped acid many times and I've had a great time almost every time. Almost you know, every time. Any any trips to the emergency room? No, absolutely not. Because no. of your health insurance. 
But if you had good enough, no, I had no trips. I had no during no panic. Jack Webb trips to no the panics. emergency room. Okay, I didn't flush my baby down the toilet. I uh, I didn't die and finally get as high as I wanted to get. I didn't. Nothing. None of that happened. I, th- I think you're being a little hysterical over this. I think you know you have to you have to plan it out right. Have the right frame of mind. Know what you're doing. Be around the right people. Oh, Martha's here. Martha's here now. Hang on. How do I get her in here? I don't know. You've only been doing this twenty years. You think I'd get good? Thought about getting somebody to help you. Uh, You would. Nobody would want to work on this. I'll do it for twenty bucks a week. You would pay me twenty bucks a week to work on this show. I'd pay you twenty bucks a week to not do the show. <laughs> Martha, I just joined you. Hi, David. Where are you? I'm here. We can't see you. Well, that's okay. Well, you didn't give her time to prepare. She's got a. Yeah, I didn't get the invite until late this afternoon. I, oh, you, so I did give it to you. What do you think of my I, nose? I just found it. What do you, what do you, you think? didn't tell me. You, you, What's on my nose? What do you think that is? Let's do some telemedicine. That's a deer tick. All right. It's a deer tick. Have you done a deer tick check? Uh, You have to be out in the woods to get Lyme disease. You're not going to get Lyme disease in the city. You have trees in New York City. There isn't a single tree in New York City that wasn't planted by a human being. Did you know that? There is not a single tree in all, at least in Manhattan, that wasn't planned. All of Central Park, Olmsted planted each tree, planned where each tree would go. There isn't one natural plant or tree in Manhattan that wasn't put there by a human being. And that infuriates you. It does. And See, that's another reason why you should take acid. It'll relax you. It'll it'll open your up, open your eyes up. You'll see colors you've never seen before. You'll look at a flower in a tree in the park and think, I've never looked at it from that angle before. And then the next day, you'll think back on it and think, wow. Suppose enlightenment is overrated, Jim. I don't know. You have a lot of people on your whole uh, podcast seems to be dedicated to some sort of enlightenment yet you close your mind off to uh, probably one of the most enlightening experiences you could ever have but we should do a show where i where i trip would you like i've gone on, on stage at the holy city zoo this is a After. side of you that i didn't know existed i, I always I, I always think of you as being you know sober taking well, care of you can't get addicted to ecstasy or or, or acid. That's, so that's not a word you use. As a matter of fact, the more you use it, the, the less effect it has on you, and then you stop using it. Okay. Let's talk about language, because you're a writer, right? I'm a, I'm a language expert. <laughs> there was a, a piece that I saw on the CNBC website where they warn you about trying to sound too smart. And these are the words that you should not use 
Let me see if I can find them. Uh, it's July 5th. Uh, okay. Martha? Yes, you ready? David. These are, uh, this is from CNBC. Want to sound smarter? Avoid these 24 overused words and phrases that make you sound pretentious. This is from grammar experts, Kathy and Ross Petros. They were on CNBC. And here are some, this is interesting. These things drive me crazy. 3 a.m. in the morning. We, we know it's in the morning because it's a.m. Absolutely. Huh? Literally. Yeah. A.m. Literally. You should you say 3 a.m. or say 3 in the morning, but don't say 3 a.m. in the morning. Absolutely essential. It's redundant. You should just say totally. it's, it's essential. If something, something's either essential or not. That's totally correct, Dave. <laughs> Actual fact they say you should not say actual fact because all facts are actual. However, in a post-truth world, I, I would still say actual fact, wouldn't you? They could be supposed facts. Yeah. Is it supposed or supposedly? It's both, isn't it, David? Did, didn't Kellyanne Conway say that? Didn't she have? Didn't she say all? Facts are up for debate. She said something about that. Don't say at this point in time or at the present point in time. It's at this moment. At this moment. Yeah. Say that instead. Don't say depreciate in value. Something either depreciates or appreciates. I appreciate that. That's good, right? This is very valuable. Don't say eliminate completely or eliminate entirely. Eliminate means that you've gotten rid of everything, right? Like every morning, Jim, you eliminate everything, right? Well, not, not entirely, no. Oh, but you still, I, you still say I'm eliminating. But you, you can eliminate part of something, can't you? And we, we are talking about you rounding up the peoples of Kenny Bunk, and we're not talking eliminating about- Eliminating all day long. Yes. So you're, there you're doing your, your Jewish heritage thing again. You're accusing others of being uh, you know, genocidal maniacs. Right. And that's probably why you, you kind of lorded it over all the other writers. As a, as a vegan, you do eliminate completely, don't you? Every morning. Well, I'm not a vegan. I wish I were. I You're not I a vegan? As high, high class as you. I'm a vegetarian. I'd like to be a, a go completely into being a, a vegan, but uh, it's it's very hard at the moment. You got. I have to. I like cheese. I'd like to find some cheeses, uh, artificial cheeses, artificial. You can buy artificial cheese at the store. I know, but good ones. There's so many. You, you have to really search out to find. Have you tried one, making one your one. own cheese? What was that? Have you tried making your own cheese? And I just can't cut it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't oh, say man. combine together or join together. Don't say end result or final outcome. Don't say estimated at about. It's estimated at about $5. You, you say estimated approximately. Right. 
uh, exactly. X estimated around. Don't say exact same. Something is either the same or it's. It's the exact same thing. Right. Don't but say you know, favorable approval. What is his favorable approval rating? Go well, ahead, you, Okay, but what about people who are just having fun with the language or like have, in a poem or a song? Or uh, let's say the language is evolving to whether these things are no longer as redundant or redundant. It's redundant. That's the exact same thing. Yeah. You shouldn't say, th I'm, I'm calling Howie Klein. I'm getting ready for Howie Klein, if I can find him. Hey, it's- Oh, thanks, thanks for cutting into our spot. I'm sorry. That's pretty impolite and rude, you know? You could have done that- Do you feel badly? Spot. Do you feel badly? I feel bad about it. Well, you shouldn't say feel bad. You should just say, what should you say? Oh, you should say, I feel bad. Don't add the Lee to it. That's the general consensus of opinion on the usage of the word feel badly. And you shouldn't say general consensus of opinion because it's in close proximity of bad grammar. And apparently you're not allowed to say in close proximity. In my opinion, you should be allowed to say that, but you're not allowed to say in my opinion. What is your opinion? You, you're supposed to, my, in my opinion, you should say, I think, instead of, in my opinion. Or you could say, my opinion is. But that would make grammarians feel badly. We don't want to piss them off. See, I bet Howie Klein's done acid millions of times. In the final analysis, that was... So you're going to just gloss over that. The Kennedys always used to say, in the final analysis, you shouldn't say that. You shouldn't say, in the process of. Most unique, something's either unique or not. Something can't be the most unique experience of your life. Mm. It's really uh, unique. You can't say that. Something's either unique or not. It's the exact same thing. But what if you just want to put some, uh, yeah, a little flair on a phrase and you take liberty with the language? That's what art, that's what art is about, isn't it? Breaking the rules. Yes, but sometimes grammar. if it's artistic, but if you're just trying to sound smart, it's offensive. Well, that's, I guess that's in the, yes, I have the beholder. I guess that's in, in their opinion. I think you're right. Uh, we should postpone this until later. You're not allowed to say that. Don't say postpone until later. You're either going to postpone something or not. And uh, don't say uh, past history or past memories or past records. Those are all uh, verboten. That's it. That's from uh, CNBC. Is verboten. Howie Klein here? Yes, yes, I am, I am. Oh, good. And, and you sound clear. This is good. Jim Earl, Martha Previtt. Wait, we got 10 more minutes left. No. <laughs> you, do, you do this all the time to us. I can't. Howie's here. Howie Klein is here. We run a tight ship here, Jim. Well, he can talk about acid with us, too, for 10 more minutes. All right. Can he? Uh, you can, three more minutes. Howie Klein. I've been telling people on the show Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC. They raise money for progressive candidates, and he writes down with tyranny. Uh, we've been talking about acid, and I've been telling people 
that they should be very careful on the show telling people to uh, try acid. Yay! <laughs> what What are your thoughts? Do you think acid is safe? Do you know anybody who had a bad trip, Howie Klein? Oh, you're talking to me? Yes. Um, I, 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 uh, my nickname in, in college uh, was uh, Tripmaster. Uh, I was very much into acid. It was a big part of my life. And one of my roommates uh, and I uh, took acid, took exactly the same uh, dose of acid from the same person. We got it, you know, from the, we, got, <laughs> we just got the same acid and we took it. And he never came down from his trip. He was, you know, we were both teenagers and uh, similar, similar in a lot of ways. And he, uh, you know, we, I took the acid, I had a great trip, it was wonderful. He took the acid and that was it. He was never the same and eventually jumped off the Brooklyn Bridge and stabbed himself with a butcher knife on the way down. I had visited him in his mental institution a few years before that. It was a horrible, tragic thing. But my time taking acid was just absolutely wonderful. I, I just loved it. And so some people will say, well, he had he had psychological issues that had not been addressed. It's not acid's I, fault. That, that may be the case. I don't know what the case is. I, I don't know. I mean, he had, it wasn't like his first time taking acid. He had taken acid other times. Um, it was oh, it was a terrible tragedy. Yeah, I have a, a problem with people coming on this show and trivializing acid. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it with a doctor. I'm not saying it doesn't have its benefits. I'm saying that it's not something you do with your friends casually if you're young no. or old, right? Well, that, I agree with you. I mean, that, that's when uh, around the time that I stopped taking it was when people started doing that. I mean, every acid trip I ever took, and I took a lot of them, was like a very uh, big, big deal. It was a very spiritual experience uh, on one level or another. I mean, even like, you know, uh, if, if a Rolling Stones album came out uh, that day, I would take acid so I could listen to it. And that was what I mean by a spiritual experience. Right. Um, but um, yeah, every every trip was really amazing to me and really important to me. And then like late, years later, I, I people were like take, dropping, <laughs> dropping acid and going to the disco and dancing. And I thought, wow, that's like, really different and you know i couldn't imagine anything like that i mean it was it, my my trips uh, were were much more introspective and uh you know there were a lot about self-discovery rather than like kind of physical and dancing and stuff like that that wasn't that wasn't where it was at for me but it was for other people right but i yeah i, I was like a, a big fan of acid i always thought of it as like one of my favorite drugs right jim earl you get the last word, Jim, on this topic, and then we're going to talk to Howie Klein. Uh, no one's here. Here is trivializing taking acid. I've said repeatedly, plan it out, know where you are, know who you are, you know, and, uh, and be in a good place with good friends. Okay. That's, that's the way to do it, you know, and uh, there are benefits, medical benefits to it right. uh, as well. Hmm? Right. I just think it's irresponsible to have comedians, anybody oh. besides a doctor talking about this stuff. Oh, well, it's like saying that anybody but a nobody can talk about nuclear power, but a nuclear physicist. It's, uh, we, you know, we're human beings. We, okay. We, 
we have a right to talk about things and to to, to tell about our experiences with this. Okay. And a lot of people have had great experiences with it, as Howie obviously has. And, you talk, Okay. I was going to make a know. bad joke about his friend. Okay. Howie, uh, Klein, let's talk to Howie. Jim Earl, thank you so much. And AOC. Bye, AOC. Bye, everybody. We have AOC here today, Howie. Oh, great. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Say hello Don't to Howie, AOC. Don't forget to buy some merch. Okay, thank you. Bye. <laughs> what are we going to get? Is, is there any, you have a question? Howie, do you have a question for AOC? Do you have a question for AOC, Howie, before we say goodbye? No, I don't. I, I, it's not AOC. It's a, it's a, uh, like a facsimile. <laughs> Bye. Thank you, Jim Earl, and thank you, AOC. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Don't forget to get your merch. People who didn't even have merch before are now having merch. (laughs) Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you, AOC. That's Uh, disrespectful. All right. Howie Klein, uh, I'm frozen. Am I frozen? I'm frozen. Hang on. Frozen? Yeah. But we'll just keep, we'll soldier on here. Um, So what, what, AOC, what? why do people why are why are there people on the left who are so angry with her is it because it's simply because of medicare for all i just read that the congressional the progressive congressional caucus is pushing biden to introduce legislation that would lower the age of medicare to what 60 or 50. Well, he during the campaign, he, he, uh, one of the things he campaigned on was lowering it from 65 to 60. So Biden campaigned on that. Obviously, um, progressives want to get it uh, down as low as they possibly can in, 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 any, in any way they can. So I don't know what they're asking for in this particular ask. Uh, I, I, I would imagine since he's already committed to 60, they'll probably ask for 65. I'm yeah. sorry, for 55. <laughs> Given it's the Biden administration, they're going to ask t- to raise it to seventy-five. Yeah. Uh, let's talk. Well, B- Biden is on the record and, and on tape saying uh, it's got to be come down from sixty-five to sixty. So I think Bernie and the Progressive Caucus are looking to push it a little further, and that will also, you know, that will make it when they when they start compromising on it instead of the compromise being sixty-two and a half. The compromise might actually be 60. Right. Right. So let's talk about Paul Kane. You have a piece over at Down With Tyranny. In time. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know, Paul. You know, I, I did. Uh, you know, I did, Who is I, he? Who is he? I thought it was incredibly stupid. And, and I never thought of that guy as being stupid before. Who is he? He's a columnist for the uh, Washington Post. And your title is? Sorry, Paul Kane, running a pack of conservative losers is not the way forward. So this is Kane urging the DCCC to run centrists, 
basically. In well, what, what he was what he was specifically talking about, yes, that that and what he specifically was talking about was the the ones who lost last time, the the Democrats who lost in in uh, twenty twenty. To have that, he thinks they should all run again. And the fact of the matter is, is that there were no good Democrats who lost their seats in 2020. Thirteen Democrats lost their seats. They were all conservatives. And there's a reason why they lost their seats. And part of that reason is because they were uninspiring. uh, And Democratic uh, voters, some Democratic voters, just thought, why the hell should I vote for them? I mean, a lot of them were, I mean, all of them were from the Republican wing of the Democratic Party. None of them backed um, Medicare for all. I use as an example um, uh, I, I took someone just like from one of their districts. So in other words, people say to me when I give that argument I just gave you, oh yeah, but the Medicare for all people won, but they were all in blue districts. Well, that isn't true. Uh, uh, Paul, um, I mean, uh, um, what's his name? Uh, Matt Cartwright is in Northeast Pennsylvania, and Matt is in a, 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 an R plus five district. Trump won the district, and um, He's a Medicare for all guy. He's got an A from Progressive Punch. And on the other hand, some of these people who lost are in in less red districts than him. But what they all had in common is they were all against Medicare for all. They were pretty much all against the Green New Deal. They were all very conservative from the Republican wing of the Democratic Party. And, uh, and they lost their seats. And they should have lost their seats. They deserve to lose their seats. And the idea of bringing them back now is horrendous. And, and, and uh, Kane, as well as um, the, the head of the DCCC, Sean Patrick Maloney, and, uh, and also uh, the speaker in waiting, Hakeem Jeffries, they're particularly excited about Max Rose. And they're, you know, using the same stuff From that Staten he was Island. when he was... It, to push him. He's from Staten Island and, and part of Brooklyn. And they're, they're saying, um, well, he got a purple heart in Afghanistan. Yes, he's been, you know, talking about that uh, in every single campaign he's ever run and, and every excuse he ever has to bring it up. He talks about his purple heart. Well, he just lost his election talking about his purple heart. So now they think he's going to win because he's going to talk about his purple heart. Doesn't work that way. The guy was in Congress for two years. He was a total piece of crap while he was in Congress and his, the voters weren't interested in him. So they defeated him and now they want to run him again. That will guarantee that the Republican in that district, uh, Nicole Maliotakis will win again. And meanwhile, there is a, uh, a young woman running, uh, who is a progressive and, uh, you know, what, what is it that they don't like about her that they're trying to drag, uh, Max, uh, Rose into running again. So, so, in, that, in, so in defense of the detroit- it wasn't just about Max Rose and just about Matt Cartwright. It was about you know a whole slew of, of uh, awful candidates who um, who the D-Trip wants to run again. And 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 Paul Kane, not under, not I, I don't think he from reading what not just what he wrote but what he left out. I don't think he understands the difference. In in defense of the DCCC, I know a little bit about Staten Island. They went for Trump. I, I don't think anybody on Staten Island voted for, for Biden. You don't. You don't know. You, you don't. You're wrong about knowing about Staten Island. You're talking about the Staten Island of of, of a long time ago. Staten Island has changed. Staten Island uh, it does elect Democrats to office. By the way, Staten Island and many people voted for Biden. By the way, and Staten Island uh, has now a very significant. 
uh, have very significant communities of color. It's not what it used to be of all just a bunch of, you know, racist white guys. It's not like that anymore. Okay. All right. And and, and the Democrat can win there, but not some Republican light Democrat. Why should someone vote for him if uh, when there's a Republican? Why vote for a fake Republican or or a quasi Republican when you get the real thing? Right. And that's why he lost. And, and like I said, it's not just about Max Rosen, Staten Island. It's also about, um, you know, people like uh, Kendra Horn in Oklahoma City. Terrible, horrible. Uh, and, and I had a, a good um, uh, update on that post, as a matter of fact, today, because someone who is very active in the progressive movement in Oklahoma City saw the story and then wrote uh, wrote some more to it, which I added on as an update about how awful Horn was and how people like himself in the district just wanted to get rid of her. And it's not that they voted for the Republican. It's just they didn't, they didn't vote for her, even though they were, Demo- they were activist Democrats. They just didn't want her in there voting with the Republican. Voting, she voted against the minimum wage increase, for example. You know, what, is that a Democrat? How do you how how are you a Democrat if you're against raising the minimum wage? Right. Tell me who. uh, Melanie, is it Melanie Cornelise? You just endorsed Melanie Cornelise in Virginia. We're starting to roll out um, uh, a a bunch of uh, endorsements for people who are running in 2019. So Melanie is. is a is a Bernie type candidate. Uh, she's very progressive. She's running in a uh, conservative area, but again, just like with Staten Island, it's a conservative area that's changing. So it was very very conservative, and now it's more of like a swing district. It's um, you know, which came as a very big surprise to people. People weren't expecting that. So now, uh, you know, she's not running as a Republican light. She's an all-the-way progressive. She's an activist. She's from, uh, uh, what is that, Moms uh, Demands More or something? Uh, M-O-M? For, on gun violence. Yeah, that's right. They're, they're against gun violence. Yeah. She's, been, she's been a leader of that group in, in her town, uh, which is Chesapeake. And she's um, now running for Congress against a conservative Republican. She won the primary, and uh, and 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 what I'm what I'm what I, this is the first of a lot of. Um, what, what is she running uh, for? I'm confused. As Virginia has the House of Delegates, which right, is their right. state legislature. Other right. states they might the Assembly or the House of Representatives, right. but in in Virginia they call it the House of Delegates, and 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 that's in 2019. So that's that election is coming right up. They they will be electing all 100 members of the House of Delegates. So right now the Democrats hold that house, although not by a wide margin. Uh, and, uh, you know, it would be very helpful if she could win. Great. Erica Smith, North Carolina Senate candidate. Yes, she was a, a prominent state senator until she decided to run for the U.S. Senate. And then she retired from her seat. The thing that makes her different, there are a lot of things that make her different. One is that she's extremely progressive uh, and very smart. But um, another thing that makes her different is that she's not one of these, all of the other candidates who are running are from the cities. They're all big city people addressing big city issues. That's it. She's not. She's a, she lived her entire life 
in in, a, in the rural parts of uh, of uh, northeast uh, North Carolina. She uh, her house is on a dirt road, and she doesn't. I mean, she yes, of course, she addresses uh, issues that people who live in cities are are interested in. Yeah, that's a, definitely a big part of her and her platform. But she's also talking to rural North Carolinians, and there are a lot of them. And the other Democrats don't. They don't know anything about it. All that, all they, all you'll just hear Democrats who don't know anything about rural issues. All they say is, give them broadband. Give them everybody gets broadband. That's it. Doesn't go any further than that. And yes, they need broadband. It's a very important issue. I'm not trying to make less of it, but that isn't the end of it. There's a lot more to it. And uh, one of the things I love about Erica is that she's addressing it. In fact, Erica is now on on a tour. She's doing 100 counties. That, that's how many counties there are in North Carolina. 100 counties in 100 days. Wow. And uh, that includes rural counties that Democrats don't go to. She's going to counties where Trump, uh, you know, won 70% of the vote. She's going to them anyway. And she's, you know, if she winds up speaking with 20 people, she winds up speaking with 20 people. But she is determined to get her message out everywhere, everywhere in the state. Uh, whereas the other Democrats who are running... They're sitting in the big cities and, you know, saying as little as possible and sitting in their basements and dialing for dollars. So last week we talked about Clyburn and the DCCC sabotaging Nina Turner in the primary coming up in in Cleveland for the, that congressional seat that Marsha. Right. Voting starts two days from now. Right. Marsha Fudge is now Secretary of HUD. Her seat uh, is up for grabs in a special election. You want Nina Turner, Clyburn, and the Democrats want, what is her name, Shant, the other? I, what her name is, they don't yeah. want her. They just want not Nina. They it want not any, Yeah, no, no one cares about the other candidate in any way, shape, or form. Uh, in terms of, you know, people like Hillary and Clyburn and some crooked members of Congress and uh, Josh Gottheimer or some right winger, they, they, you know, they just don't want Nina. That's it. They're afraid of Nina. They don't want her and they don't care who the other candidate is. And I would bet if you walked up to Hillary Clinton today and ask her, who'd you, who did you uh, endorse in, in that race, you wouldn't even know. Anybody but uh, Nina. Yeah, that's right. So south of Cleveland is Akron. It's Ohio's 16th Congress. Well, let, let me just bring something yeah. up since you Nina up today, which is that um, the, the biggest newspaper in that part of Ohio, not just in Cleveland, but in all of uh, northeast Ohio, the Cleveland Plain Dealer endorsed Nina today. And what's it looking like? Oh, that Nina will win by, you know, double digits. Like she'll win like a huge majority, like gigantic Huge, huge win. And we, I, I don't think it'll be close. You don't think it will be close? No. So Donald Trump was campaigning in Ohio's 16th congressional district. That's south of Cleveland. I think that's around west Akron, of, west of Cleveland. He's going after. It's, it's, it's a little bit west and mostly south of Cleveland. And part of Cuyahoga County, which is the county that Cleveland is in, is in the 16th district, but not much. And, and it, it, it's not a overwhelmingly Republican area, but it, it's a pretty Republican area. And it's Anthony Gonzalez is the current congressman. Trump had a rally over the weekend to get rid of him. Why is Trump mad at Anthony Gonzalez? Well, Gonzalez was one of the 10 Republicans in the House who voted to impeach Trump. 
so Trump just absolutely hates him. And some guy who is like a, you know, they call, they don't call it a roadie in politics. They call it an advanced man. But if you're if you know music and you know concerts, and you know that the roadies are the guys who do the setup, and they're the advanced men. And that's what this guy Max Miller was for Trump. He was an advanced man. He's a young guy whose uh, parents are, are very, very, very wealthy, uh, uh, not just from Cleveland, but from Shaker Heights. So people who know Cleveland know what Shaker Heights is. It's where the real rich people live up on the hill. And, uh, and that's where he's from. Nothing to do with the 16th Congressional District whatsoever. And, and he's a young guy with no accomplishments other than being Trump's roadie. And, uh, and Trump made him sound like he was uh, actually the real Secretary of State. <laughs> it, was like, it, was, it was the stupidest endorsement I ever heard. It was completely insane and had nothing to do with reality. Did you watch any of the rally? Yeah, but not not in in real time and not all all the way through. Just little pieces of it that were on YouTube and a couple of uh, on MSNBC. All right, California has an attorney general. He Bonta Bonta, and he has banned travel for state employees to Florida as well as. Arkansas, Oklahoma, South Carolina, South Dakota, Kentucky, North Carolina, Kansas, Mississippi, and Tennessee. These are all states that have passed anti-LGBTQ bills. And they're also all states that have uh, that have COVID epidemics right now. They all have. And this is what you <laughs> wrote over at Down with Tyranny. You have a piece that everybody should read entitled Compared to the Rest of America. People in red states have unhappy, <laughs> unfulfilled lives. So we're basically talking about the states that are in the travel ban because of their homophobia. This is what you uh, wrote. I love this. All the really miserable states, as you can probably guess, are backward Trumpist hellholes. States filled with the kinds of people who take QAnon's insane conspiracy theories to heart and build a life around them. These are miserable people with worthless lives. They are eager to inflict on the rest of us. These are miserable people with worthless lives that they are eager to inflict on the rest of us. And then you talk about the happiness quotients, that they were measuring people's happiness. And right, this isn't just me ranting and raving. These, I mean, I'm putting some, some meat on the bones, but we're talking about scientific studies that are showing you know, where happy people live and where unhappy people live, both both worldwide and, and also uh, in the U.S. And I love this because it's true. These are I'm going to repeat this. You wrote these are miserable people with worthless lives. They are eager to inflict on the rest of us. They want to inflict their miserable lives on the rest of us. That's how they vote. They see people. They see their neighbor with a brand new boat. And they go, I got to bring well, him not down. Really usually a boat, it's usually a pickup truck. Or a brand new pickup truck. And they say, I have to bring him down. What can I yeah. do so he's as miserable as I am? And they're West, these are the states, West Virginia, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Louisiana, Kentucky, Tennessee, Mississippi, Alabama, and Alaska. And, and a lot of these states, you know, have very low educational attainment levels. They have very, very high, um, uh, you know, uh, obesity levels. They have uh, the people in these states are, are sick. 
um, you know, uh, physically sick. Uh, there's a lot of mental illness in these in these states. Now, that doesn't mean to say that everybody in these states is like that. It, you know, it's obviously not what I'm saying. It's it's an it, it, by averages. You know, when you if, for example, what's the state that has the lowest uh, educational achievement attainment? It's Mississippi. Uh, you know, Arkansas is right up there. Louisiana is up there. All those states you just mentioned are all up there, and that's. Uh, you know that that's the tragedy of this thing, that it's uh, it's for real, and and they happen to be states where COVID is going crazy, and they happen to be sta- wild, and they happen to be states where, uh, where where Trump, they were his biggest states, they're the states that that Trump did the best in, lowest education, most unhappiness, and um, and most Trumpiness. Right, and they're all part of the old Confederacy, except for Alaska. Uh, West Virginia, Arkansas, Oklahoma. Well, uh, Arkansas wasn't. Crazy. Yeah, right, right. Louisiana, Kentucky, Tennessee, Mississippi, and Alabama. And that's 18 senators. Alaska, that adds up to 18 senators. When you look at the Senate, there are the Democrats in the Senate. It's a 50-50 split. The Democrats represent 40 million more Americans in the Senate than the Republicans because each shithole state gets too so <laughs> full of people we love um when uh yeah it, you know when 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 you talk about like you know bringing making the country more democratic something that senators don't ever want to hear is you know one way to do it would be to abolish the senate or or like i've been saying for years and years and years uh, make the senate into a um you know, an honorific, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, organization like the, like the like the British finally did with the House of Lords. You know, you give them a little tiny bit of power, but ultimately they can't do anything. Right. Uh, and that's you know that's what I think they they should do with the U.S. Senate. Chile is rewriting its constitution. I think America should rewrite its constitution. Yeah. Well, you know, you're asking for trouble uh, uh, there because. Uh, you know, if we open that gate, which I, I believe in, I mean, I, like I said, I, I, I hope we do uh, uh, get rid of the Senate. But chances are, uh, you know, there's probably a better chance that we'll, we'll reinstate slavery than we'll get to do anything useful. What would happen uh, hypothetically? What would happen if we got rid of West Virginia, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Kentucky, Tennessee, Mississippi, Alabama and Alaska? Can't we just evict them? Can't we just say, you know, it didn't work out. We gave you statehood. You didn't live up to our expectations. We made a mistake, Oklahoma. We got a good musical uh, out of Oklahoma, but you're so homophobic, we can't even bring it to your state. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye. You you, You always keep threatening to secede. We get rid of West Virginia, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Kentucky, Tennessee, Mississippi, Alabama, and Alaska. That's 18 Republican senators gone. How much better would this country be if we got rid of these shithole states? You know what? I I have a better idea. I mean, your idea is great, but it's not going to happen. I have a better idea. Originally... North and South Dakota was just one state, Dakota. I say we take North and South Dakota and Wyoming, combine them into one state, Dakota. So instead of six U.S. senators, we have two. 
uh, I think that would be a better way to go. And it makes more sense. And it still would be a very, very population-wise, it would be a very small state. Right. By the way, the people who are uh, Democrats, people who are leftists in West Virginia, Arkansas, and Oklahoma, they're not offended by this. They agree with me. And they, they know. May, but some of them, I write about this on my blog sometimes. I take the same position that you, that you take, and uh, I get a lot of bad feedback on that. <laughs> uh, and, you know, yes, we could say, okay, if you live, I mean, like, I mean, if you would say you were to include Texas, then what happens to all of our friends in Austin and Houston and Dallas? Well, you know, I didn't say get rid of Texas. <laughs> How about this? I've you didn't mention Texas this time, but usually when this topic is brought up, Texas is brought up. What, what if we run America like the U.N., where you have a general assembly and a national security council where the original members can veto the general assembly? And then you have a rotating members of the national security council. So in other words, we keep the 13 original colonies minus Florida, Georgia, North <laughs> We uh, the, the six original colonies. All right. Are you drunk? Uh, well, it's January. What is it? July? Yeah, I've been drinking all day. Uh, really? No, I'm not. Uh, we're having minor technical problems. What What are you doing for uh, the holidays? Did you have a nice July 4th? I don't drink. Oh, oh I don't either. Every uh, every day is the same for me. And that's a good thing because they're all good days. But I. Uh, you know, I, I, I write I write my posts every day. What oh, is your guilty pleasure? Is it Michael Wolf's new book? What, what, of all the new books that are coming out about Trump that you know you shouldn't be reading, but you can't help yourself, what which one are you going to pick up? Well, none of them. I, I, I you know, I, when I'm reading, I'm trying to stay away from reading about Trump. That's for sure. And the book that I'm reading now is is just absolutely fantastic. I love it so much, and I recommend it. In fact, I'm talking with the author and asking her if I can um, uh, if I can ex- excerpt it for for my blog. So the name of the book itself is um, Deviations, and the author is named Gail Rubin. And the way I know Gail Rubin is, was that. When I was a DJ at uh, KUSF, one of the things I would do is I would say, look, I know nobody wants to come in and work on Thanksgiving or Christmas or New Year's Eve. I'll do 24 hours. I'll just do the whole thing. Really? And year after year after year, Gail Rubin and, and her friend would bring me fantastic, lavish dinners to the to the studio she would come in every year with like incredible meals for me and and now it turns out she's a professor and she's an author of many books and i hadn't seen her or talked to her in years and years and years and she um got in touch with me a while ago and she sent me a couple of her books and i'm reading this uh, deviations right now and hopefully uh, in the near future, you'll see it, uh, um, at least a chapter on, uh, on Down With Tyranny. It's just fantastic. And what do you, pleasure. and have you seen, do you, do you have Apple, the Apple TV, the, the new documentary about 1971? Is it free? It's free for me because Why? I, because I, I bought something from Apple and they give you like a, a year's free 
uh, of uh, Apple TV, but they have a new. You buy. I, I buy things from Apple sometimes. I, I buy, uh, you know, computers and phones and stuff like that. Well, I you might you might want to check. You may be eligible for a free subscription to Apple TV. They have a a five part documentary about 1971, the the year that music changed everything. Like the, 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 it's a book that I read three years ago, and they made a documentary about it. And Mark Breslin told me to watch this. It's incredible. They, they say that music completely changed in 1971 when you go through. You know, Marvin Gaye and uh, David Bowie and the Stones. And uh, it's just an it was an incredible year. George Harris. Oh, that's so funny that you should say that because I, I see it. I see music having changed in 1969 and for the worse. And that's when I sort of gave up on music. Uh, I see I, I, in, the, in the 60s, in the mid 60s, right until 19, say 1970, um, music really meant a lot to people. It was really, really important in people's lives and in, in, in society's life. It was very political. It was uh, went hand in hand with trying to end the war in Vietnam and experimenting with drugs and with sex. And then in, and then it became more of a business uh, in 1970. And that was when corporate rock came in. So I, I see, uh, you know, although you named artists who I love, I mean, when you talk about Marvin Gaye or something like that, that's, that's all great. But it's, um, I, you know, the, the, right up until, you know, the, the begin, well, till, I guess till like 76, 77, when, you know, artists like Patti Smith and television and the Ramones started coming, coming in, there was nothing that I liked in the 70s. But it's pretty astounding. The name of the documentary is called The Year That Music Changed Everything, 1971. Uh, I just remember. The, what, what was there? There was Journey and stuff like that? 71? Well, Journey was around, but uh, 71 you had. I'm, I'm forgetting. Oh, Layla came out in 71. The Doors, Love Her Madly. No, The Doors were before that. The Who, Baba. You were in the 60s. Remember, I hired the Doors. The Doors were a late '60s band. Uh, Riders on the Storm didn't come out in '71. Won't get fooled again. Maggie yeah, May. It, it, I, I don't know when it came out. Maybe it did come out. In Star Stairway to Heaven '71. Life on Mars. David Bowie '71. Carol King Tapestry '71. Uh, Wild Horses. The Rolling Stones. Changes. Wild Night. Van Morrison. Like seventy, and there was no good music in the in the in the seventies. I'm sure there was. I I had tuned out, so I I, I can't. I I'm sure there was, but I don't know. But uh, the what the what that the seventies are known for is corporate rock. That's what that 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 didn't exist before then, and it became the biggest thing. I'm not saying that when there was no good music then. I'm sure there was plenty, but I was listening to Indian music at the time. <laughs> All right. Howie Klein, uh, watch the documentary if you have uh, an opportunity. Or read I don't the, have Hulu or whatever that thing is called. It's Apple TV. What do you What do you recommend on Netflix before you go? Oh, I'm I'm, I'm watching something called the Forty Four Hundred. Did you watch that? No. Is this a police precinct? No. The Forty Four Hundred were Forty Four Hundred people who were who were like suddenly abducted in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and then they all came back at the, on the same day at the same moment. And 
at first you think, well, were they abducted by aliens? And it turns out, no, they were actually abducted by the future. And then the future sort of modified them and sent them back in order to, for them to stop things that made the future like horrible. So the future, you know, said we got to make this not happen so that we, so the earth will have actual, have air. Instead of what we have now, we have to make air. <laughs> right. I have two quick questions for you from the Zoom room. And, and David Cobb just arrived. Uh, hi, David. Hang on for one second. Uh, Randall Hayes from Pennsylvania asks, Howie, we have two decent candidates for the U.S. Senate Democratic primary in Pennsylvania. Do you favor Malcolm Kenyatta or John Fetterman? Uh, Fetterman. And, and and not overwhelmingly, I, 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 but yes, Fetterman. Okay, and Joe in Norway asks, Howie, are there many anti-war left veterans running or speaking out, or are they all conservative? The lack of a serious anti-war movement in America is a big problem. The, yes, there are anti-war veterans who are running. In fact, I was just... Uh, and well, you I gave us the guy from Maine, Jared, what was his name? Well, he, yeah, he's awful. Yeah. But uh, this, he's asking Golden, Jared Golden. Golden. Yeah, he's terrible. But uh, the woman that I was talking about, who, whose name I can't remember offhand, who's running in um, uh, in Staten Island, she, I believe, is an anti is a veteran who's very much anti-war. Also, uh, one who, I spoke to someone today. Oh, yes, it's someone who's running for st- the state legislature in uh, Virginia. And she's also an, uh, an anti-war veteran. Yeah, they, they're definitely good anti-war veterans around. I mean, look at somebody like, uh, oh, man, what's his name? Uh, Congressman from, uh, from Phoenix. Uh, he's, you know, very anti-war. Oh, look at or Ted Lieu. Ted Lieu in California. He's a veteran. Uh, he's a colonel and extremely anti-war. Right, right. Howie Klein is the founder. Norway can rest, rest easy. Okay. Howie Klein is the founder and trainer. You what, I'm, what I'm making for dinner. What are you making for dinner? I'm making a, 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 a you know a homemade pasta sauce. I'm so excited about it. My friend grows tomatoes, and she gave me tomatoes. So it's and she also grows basil. She gave me basil, so I'm using her ingredients that she picked while I was at her house. Right. So I'm just really excited about it. Do you know David Cobb? He ran for president on the Green Party ticket. Let me introduce you to. David Cobb, Howie Klein, David Cobb, you, you, David, have you ever, hello, ever, Howie, you, Hi. you two would love each other. You're both oh, good. Well, you're both on the same. Uh, you're coming to L.A. Bring David. Well, we'll all have dinner. Well, he lives up in Humboldt, so uh, we'll do a cross country. You and I, we'll do a cross country tour. We'll go up to Humboldt <laughs> and, then, and then to oh. Toronto. <laughs> I'll talk to you soon. Okay, thank you. Howie Klein, follow him on Twitter at Down With Tyranny. Thank you so much, Howie. Bye, David. Bye. Joining us is David Cobb. He is an environmentalist. He ran for president on the Green Party ticket, and he ran Ralph Nader's presidential campaign in 2000 in Texas. Hello, David Cobb. Let me just say something to Dan in the newsroom. Why don't we do community billboard if it's okay with you at nine o'clock? Is that okay? Sounds good to me. Yep. Okay. Good. Sorry to keep you waiting. It's happy July fifth, David Cobb. 
<laughs> well, thank you so much. You know, David, I'm glad you actually brought up uh, July 5th, where we're celebrating July 4th, because I, uh, at least on my social media feed, there is either, you know, screw America, it's an imperialist society, or rah, rah, USA. And I want to take this moment to actually name that the founding of this country uh, is incredibly complex and I don't want to sugarcoat anything. I want to honor and acknowledge that the founding of this country was in fact an example of settler colonialism. That is a fact. Uh, the indigenous people uh, that were living here were brutalized, no doubt about it, and displaced. And the founding of this country uh, and the Declaration of Independence itself is also complicated because uh, I've been doing some reading uh, uh, the people's history uh, and people's historians, and it makes it very clear there was uh, in the in the northern colonies. It, it was very clear. It was a rejection of monarchy as a form of government. It was a democratic impulse. Absolutely. The southern states were actually joining the American Revolution because of the rule in Somerset's case, where in England there had been a decision that slavery would no longer be tolerated in England or any place in England. And at the time, of course, this was a colony of England. So the southern, many of the southern states, the majority reason uh, to separate was to pervert to preserve the perverse and obscene and disgusting concept of slavery. And in the West, it was uh, a cause for continued colonial expansion. The point I'm getting at, David, is that if we're going to really be sincere about building a movement in this country, we've got to have honest conversation about the intersections of real democracy, solid colonialism, capitalism, white supremacy, and recognize that the winning narrative in a movement is an honest conversation around race, and class and the uh, the great uh, academic Ian Haney Lopez has done some amazing work on this and shows that if you actually have honest conversation about the race class narrative, you can win somewhere between 60 and 70% of the narrative. Boom. It's an amazing reality. The problem is that conversation around politics always become just in this election cycle, an electoral conversation rather than a deep political conversation. And you know who does not do that, David Feldman? The right wing. The right wing understands that it's a meta narrative that they're fighting about and elections will come and go. And we on the left are losing to a bunch of numbskull fascist imbeciles because we're falling for the trap. We're not actually building our meta narrative on peace, justice, democracy, and ecologically ecological sustainability, all of which are supermajority narratives in this country, and we end up fighting about things that we mostly agree with on the left. It's a tragic mistake. Wow. Really interesting. And I, and I see some people in the chat room who want to ask you questions. Let me uh, let me understand this. You're saying, as I understand it, people like Steve Bannon understand the power of race and class. 
and that oh, Trump yes. understood the power of race and class. Uh, and the Democratic Party is selling what? The Democratic Party is so beholden to corporate money that they're not willing to actually have a progressive populist approach to economic. So what, I, I, we so know that. Well, what are they selling? What, 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 is, what was what is Biden selling to the American people? As far as I can tell, what Biden is selling is uh, Trump was bad and I'll be nice. A kinder, gentler. Neoliberalism, a kinder, gentler neoliberalism, which you don't really get excited about. But Trump animates the voters. You get excited by that. Uh, certainly. I mean, uh, Trump, well, Trump animates a section of the electorate. Right. And again, David, I think that the, it's important to, to really uh, come to grips with that there is an election cycle and they absolutely matter. I mean, I engage in elections and uh, I work for very hard for progressive candidates uh, uh, during election cycles. But I completely understand that the real fight is for this story. Right. Think of elections as the the story of the battle where Great. we ought to be talking about the battle for the story and what's painful to me is that we have the winning story but we're not actually talking about it in ways that ordinary americans will so i'll tell you this david Feldman. you know i'm a texan by birth right uh and I, you can't take me anywhere in this country and drop me in any pool hall or bowling alley or laundromat that i can't have an honest to goodness conversation around both class and race and get most of those folks uh to to basically find some common ground Okay, what is the Republican story? The Republican story are that the uh, the the Democrats are nothing but a bunch of pointy-headed liberals. <clears throat> they have no care or concern for ordinary people. They are living in a bubble. Uh, they are limousine liberals, uh, and they care more about gays or blacks than they do about white working-class people. And oh, we lived hard. Somebody dropped it in the chat. And we agree. So we agree. So you and I are Republicans. <laughs> well, no, what I would say is. Well, we agree with that American. story. I agree with that story, don't you? Yes. And that's what's so shameful, because they're telling our story, David. Like and they're 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 telling our story because like, look, as great as your show is, you know, you're not like you're not like you and I are never going to be allowed on CNN. We're never going to even be allowed on MSNBC. Right? I'm not even allowed on this show. <laughs> well, <laughs> listen, I, I heard a rumor that all of the guests are actually uh, you know, uh, having a conversation about how to take over this show. I think if you polled the people in the chat room, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but listen, uh, it, it is an important thing. Like this is one of the reasons, David, that I have gotten so excited by these conversations is that you are willing to have unsanctioned conversation that is not you're not like you don't just spew talking points uh, uh, for the Democratic Party or even for the liberal uh, wing of the Democratic Party. Right. Like so. And, and this is what's so important. I'm not blowing sunshine up your ass. I'm saying, like, I'm excited about this conversation because there is a broad 
a group of folks who have a progressive agenda, who are trying to find each other and find ways that we can work together. And for me, I don't really care whether you are registered uh, to vote or not, registered as a Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, Green, Socialist, etc. Like, if we can find common ground to work on uh, issues that will make people's lives better, things like community land trust, worker-owned cooperatives, universal basic income, I mean, policies to be sure, right? Uh, so we're going to have to engage the state, we have to relate to the state, but I have no illusion that the uh, electoralism, I'm not an electoral fetishist, right? I, I, I will talk about elections when it's important, but I'm more concerned about telling a broad progressive populist story that unites us. Because David, I'll end with, I'll end this rant with this. I'm not fighting to save this dying system. I'm fighting to create a new system. Right. 2011, we had Occupy, which changed the conversation. It gave us Bernie. It gave us Donald Trump. That did not come out of electoral politics. The Democrats dropped the ball. The Republicans, the, the Republicans, whether they knew it or not, took the, the wave that was coming up from Occupy and gave us Trump. So, David, uh, it's even worse than that. Like, as cynical as you are, I'm reminded of the great political philosopher Lily Tomlin, who said, no matter how cynical I get, it's hard to keep up. <laughs> I'll argue that you were only partially sufficiently cynical, because I'm going to take one step back and say, look at the Tea Party movement. We have accepted the narrative that the Tea Party was a bunch of right wing uh, a-holes. AstroTurf. Uh, AstroTurf, Americans for Pro Prosperity, Dick Army, and Clarence Thomas's crazy wife that the Tea Party really doesn't. This is the narrative we were given, that the Tea Party was completely manufactured by the Koch brothers, by Ginny Thomas, and by uh, that guy on CNBC, the Chicago uh, futures trader. But there was no actual... Tea Party. So, uh, David Feldman, you are correct that that's the narrative that we were told. I would argue, like all good big lies, there is a uh, a kernel of truth. But he, let me expose the lie. I'm going to start with uh, the Tea Party and then go to Occupy and make some comparison. So, you're saying the Tea Party was a real thing. The, I guarantee it was a real thing. I know because here in Humboldt County, remember, uh, pop quiz, David Feldman. When did the Tea Party actually begin? 2008 or nine. Well, after TARP, uh, when they were going to bail out the banks, the and guy. So the TARP, the, the Troubled Asset Release Program, was that a Bush program or an Obama, Obama It was a program? Bush program. It was before it the was. election. It was both. Remember, this is really important now, and listen up folks in the chat, because uh, I see that there's a lot of conversation going on and I'll stand to be corrected, but I will tell you, you can go to the, uh, to the footage and you will see uh, uh, President-elect Obama going into the White House with George Bush. 
the troubled asset relief program, George Bush was the lame duck president and Larry Summer and a whole slew of right uh, of, of neoliberal Democrats were part of a campaign that negotiated that cam, uh, that that uh, that system. So here's the point, David. The Tea Party began as a genuine popular. It was neither left nor right, but it was populist outrage over government subsidies to Wall Street as a result of that bubble bursting. Right. And I know because here I am literally seven blocks away from the Humboldt County Courthouse. And I went down there and talked to those people and they were wearing the tri-corner hats. They were pissed, but they were not like what I would call uh, Republicans. Uh, they, yeah, they weren't. They, they could give a shit about the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. They were just pissed off. Right. And so for two solid weeks, it was roiling and building. And, you know, David Feldman, I'm old enough to remember that anger at Wall Street is supposed to be a left wing winning talking point. Right. But we seeded it because by then Obama had taken office and progressives and liberals were basking in that victory and were unwilling to challenge Barack Obama, part of which is because we were celebrating a black man as president. I get it. Uh, Bush had been defeated. I get it. But the point is they refused to do it. So for two to four weeks solid, it went unattended. And then about three to four weeks in, Dick Army, the Koch brothers began bussing in organizers and placards. And the Tea Party became a right wing phenomenon because we on the left did not organize populist outrage at Wall Street America. The Republicans the Tea Party is our fault. The Republicans are pro bussing on, on when it suits their <laughs> we couldn't bust. But the interesting thing about uh, TARP was Congress, uh, Pelosi was Speaker of the House and Congress voted against it. And the stock market went down and somehow they they voted again and it passed. We can't get one effing vote on Medicare for all, but we got two votes on bailing out the banks. Nancy Pelosi that, gave us. That, so that let's just be clear. So that's the Tea Party. Right. And then and this is the point I want to make. The Republican Party leadership basically made a deal with Dick Army and others. And the Tea Party ultimately took over the Democratic Party. Right. But the, 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 the Republican out, Party, the Tea Party took yeah. over the Republican Party. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. The Republican right. Party. And it became a merger. Right. But what's really important to remember is the Tea Party, like the impulse was not a Republican Party impulse. And most of the folks who sort of stayed with it were very clear about we're either going to destroy the Republican Party or the Republican Party is going to bend to our will. So that was it was a. But didn't it, the, it was, the, my the Tea Party morphed into the Ann Coulter, Rush Limbaugh, AM talk radio wing of the Republican Party. And it suddenly they they stopped hating Wall Street and they started hating brown people. It was the Me it was the Mexicans and it was immigration and black people buying homes that they had no business 
taking loans out on. That, that became was, the narrative. That was the Koch brothers and Dick Army at all changing the narrative about what was actually going on. So that's the kernel of truth that I was talking about. So that's the Tea Party. Here's the thing that I observed about Occupy Wall Street. I, I had the privilege of, uh, you know, I was traveling the country for Move to Amend, the campaign to abolish corporate constitutional rights uh, during that movement. So not only was I in New York City, but I probably went to literally 20, 30 Occupy encampments across the country. I know that we're running out of time on this segment, so I'll- Well, we have I'll 10 minutes. Quickly. We kept you waiting, ten, we have 10 minutes. Oh, good. So, yeah. so then I'll slow down a bit and say, so here's what I found. No, I'm saying the planet so has 10 minutes. <laughs> so Occupy Wall Street, what were they angry about? Well, it's in their name, Wall Street, right? So the, the thing that happened with Occupy Wall Street, it was growing and building. And uh, look, there was a lot of problems in terms of how to make and implement decisions. Like it was a very uh, amorphous thing, but there was a populist, it was genuinely a populist uprising with a clear, explicit left or progressive orientation. So it was progressive populism rising up. And some of the key organizers, of course, had come out of the Indignados. There's a, there's a great history to be learned about that, right? Like spontaneous revolution and spontaneous movements happen, but usually there's somebody helping to organize it, right? It doesn't just happen. Like there's like, you know, things happen because people make things happen. That's why it's important to have revolutionaries who are thinking about like the, the, the process of revolution. But David, here's the, the point I want to make, that as the, as the Occupy Wall Street was growing and getting its footing and really coming down, what you saw was, and I'm going to name it, Van Jones and others were sent by the Democratic Party to harness the Occupy Wall Street energy and turn it into the Democrats' version of the Tea Party. And so, and, and uh, for you uh, lay historians, look it up. You can literally find using the Freedom of Information Act that at the time that the OWS movement, not only in New York, but across the country, basically categorically rejected that and said that they were going to be a genuine independent force, not beholden to any electoral formation. Right. When they made that decision, the Obama and again, I'm going to name it, the Obama administration began to make calls to the police chiefs and mayors of every major city in the United States. And within a week to 10 days, those camps began to be dismantled, usually with police uh, force, excessive force, uh, mass arrests and so forth. So I put it to you like this, David, the Democratic Party leadership, not rank and file Democrats, not the people who are listening to me right now who consider themselves members of the Democratic Party, that grew uh not them but the leadership the neoliberals the 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 democratic leadership council that morphed into the democratic national committee like the leadership made the decision it's better to kill the occupy wall street movement because we can't control it because it is an authentic bottom-up progressive left expression of progressive populist outrage and that's why the democratic party is dangerous I thought Van Jones, I'm being a little facetious here, color of change. He was a victim of racism in the Obama administration and then became an environmentalist. And then he went on CNN and 
he's uh, working for near was working for near Tandon. Is Van Jones a bad guy or a good guy? No. Like, I don't believe that human beings are, as a matter of, of principle, either angelic or demonic. What I would tell you is my assessment of Van Jones is that he made some tactical and maybe even strategic mistakes about access and that he believed that through the course of his charisma, which is like, I know Van, right? He is like, his charisma is palpable, right? Uh, his intelligence, he is a smart guy. I met him during the Pacifica struggles uh, for Pacifica Radio. What I'm telling you is Van is, is brilliant and he made a tactical mistake about how to relate to the power, right? And I think that, that so like his, if you look at his trajectory and listen to the language that he used through the course of this trajectory, what you see is like when people say, I'm gonna get in the Democratic Party and change it, it never works that way. The Democratic Party power structure changes you. That's why we have to learn from the left in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia, you build from the bottom up and you make demands on the system. You don't enter the system trying to get to, to com you don't compromise before the fight begins. You build an actual movement from the bottom up that's making demands and you make them react to you. That's why we can't get involved in electoral fetishism. Elections are a tactic, but it's only a front of struggle. And so, no matter who's in charge, if it's from the ground up, they have to respond to the ground up. So you do begin to see like $300 a week given to kids in this country. That's Biden responding to the pressures from the ground up, even though we didn't win the election. Dr. Harriet Fraud has her hand raised. Yes, doctor. Uh, let me unmute you. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Let me unmute you. I just want to say right on for that. I mean, you can see that the Democratic Party put out hope and change, but did the same thing and colored it in brown. And they're the ones who destroyed the Occupy Wall Street movement, which has been the only movement since the 50s that was a bottom-up movement that defined class as the central issue. And I think that the Democratic Party is all for gender only, women against men, people of color only against whitey, but not for class unity, as an umbrella in which the handle holds up the whole thing and everything comes together. And when that is, that's why when Manchin and Sinema betrayed them, they didn't send troops out to talk door to door and say, this is what your senator is delivering to you, mister. This is what's happening to you. No, no, no. They'd rather be defeated on everything. And they'd rather... That's exactly... Boy, not we, got, we got... Because we got to have a conversation everything. We got to have a conversation one of these days, Dr. Prod, so that we can actually talk about how we build that class unity uh, where we actually do real intersectionality. Because you see, real intersectionality understands power over. They understand it's not a left versus right. It's an up versus down. Now, I'm a leftist. I'm an unapologetic leftist. And what I understand is that settler colonialism, white supremacy, heteropatriarchy, capitalism are all at its core power over dynamics that don't allow democracy. So if you actually frame these issues as 
economic democracy uh, or, uh, or, or just ordinary people having control over their lives, we win. But the problem is that we've been, we fall for the okie doke. We fall for the fake left run right uh, of the Democratic Party. And it's happened, like, I'm, like, remember, like, I got turned on to politics by Jesse Jackson in 84 and 88, worked for Jerry Brown in 92. Bill Clinton turned me into a green, right? Like, just to name it, like, I had finally gotten fed up. But I want to point out that the, the Democratic Party's uh, prime, Democratic Party's presidential primary is where progressive politics goes to die because all the energy, all the enthusiasm, all the excitement that, that progressives build within the democratic party gets crushed. And every time whoever was leading that movement has this bright idea, I know what let's do. Let's form an organization within the democratic party and shift it to the left. And here's my list of folks who did that in my own personal lived experience. And I bet it probably goes back even further than that. But here's the list. Jerry Brown did it. It was called We the People. Uh, 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 Dennis Kucinich did it. It was called Progressive Democrats of America. Howard Dean did it. Uh, it was called Democracy for America. Bernie Sanders did it. It was called Our Revolution. Like like uh, Jesse Jackson did it. It was called the Rainbow Coalition. You know what? That shit don't work. Right. Because you you have already started from a position of saying we're not going to actually challenge the Democratic Party. We're going to allow them to say how far left we're allowed to go. And that's the point I was trying to make early when I started this rant, David Feldman, that the Tea Party movement did not make that mistake. Right. And the Occupy movement wasn't going to make that mistake. And that's why the leadership of the Democratic Party had to kill it. So we have to learn the lessons, both good and bad, from both Occupy and the Tea Party. It's why I am so committed to building class unity, class unity that is not that uh, is not class reductionism. Right. Is not saying class is the only thing that matters, because I don't need to tell Dr. Fraud that uh, her gender matters in her lived experience. A black person or a brown person lives every day under like white supremacy. So your positionality matters, but make no mistake about it within that positionality, class is how the ruling elite are controlling this country. That's right. And that's why, you know, you have to, who are the corporate sponsors for the Democrats? Okay. The same, they need corporate sponsorship to run and they are sold and we have to understand that that class unity is the opposite of what the cia did sending gloria steinem into the women's liberation movement and what and also people into the civil rights movement to become black power against whitey because with class unity we actually will win because we are the mass of people creating the wealth of this country and they won't have that because they have the same corporate sponsors. And we have two capitalist parties. One is more savage in its um, assault on the working class, and the other has a slightly mediated assault on the working class, which is why Biden has done nothing about $15 minimum wage, even though inflation is going up 5% a year, if they ever get it, 
they'll they'll be at a seven dollar minimum wage and and that's why he hasn't done anything for medicare for all because he's beholden to the pharmaceutical industry the hospital industry the american medical association and also the um insurance industry you know we're all- understand the corporate sponsorship to understand who the democratic party is one of the myths is that the Republican Party marches in lockstep. I always say they march in goose step and that yeah. the Democrats, you know, we were divided into special interests. But when you look back at the past 20 years, all you read about is the Republican crack up. All you read about is the civil war within the Republican Party, never the civil war within the Democratic Party. Right. It's the Democratic Party that marches in lockstep. The Republicans are in a constant state of battle against one another. So their tools are much sharper and they have vigorous debate. And that's why they win. Plus, they have the Koch brothers (laughs) buying elections for them. No, they, they allow discussion of everything but class. Race is there as a divisive, powerful issue because race is a big issue. Gender is there as a divisive, power, you know, powerful industry and influence. Sexuality is there, but class uh, 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 that they close down. And that unity is the only thing that will win. But they don't want to win. They have the same corporate sponsors. We have two capitalist parties. We don't have alternatives like they have in Germany, in France, even in Iceland, where they just won for everyone a a four day week at the same pay. They have to work nine hours a a day instead of eight, but a four day week. And they have the same productivity because they have a communist party and they have a socialist left party and they have a green party as well as the capitalist parties. So, you know, that's a good absolutely objectively true and so like pop quiz do we think that uh, uh these countries are somehow genetically superior to this country of course not there's not an exceptionalism going on i will say this the exceptionalism actually is the antiquated voting system that we use because in all those other countries they have proportional representation so that you can actually vote for what you actually want and as long as you reach the threshold usually it's five percent uh if you can just get five percent of the vote for a national election then you get uh that proportional seats uh in the the national legislative body so i would argue if we had proportional representation in this country and people were actually allowed to vote for what they actually wanted to instead of the the sham that they play on us about how we have to accept one of the two capitalist parties as dr fraud has accurately said we only have two capitalist parties and one is more savage than the other to be sure but when it comes to class like you have to choose one right what would it look like if people could actually vote knowing that, well, as long as just 5% of the people are along with me, I could vote for my, in my language, we'd call it my ideology, right? Like the things that I actually care about. I would argue very quickly, you would actually, like that would be more democratic and whenever you, like little d democratic, and when you had that, you would actually see a profound shift uh, in, in the electorate. 
But not only that, you'd have to have no private money in elections, the way you have in other countries, where if you're found to have private money in elections, which is something Sarkozy did, and they say they're going to put him in jail, we'll see, he ran for president in France. But if you accept private money, then you're out and you're jailed. Okay, that's a different, otherwise, you know, from the very beginning of the Constitution, which had a brilliant idea of checks and balance, but not checks on who had the money. That's why 6% of the population could vote after that wonderful document, which was wonderful for its time, but 6%, because you had to be white, you had to be male, you had to have property. So all the women and all the people of color and all the non-property couldn't vote. And there was no check and balance. That's why all those slaveholders who were rich signed the constitution. And that's the check we need. And all those parties are a check and a balance. And no private money would have to go in along with proportional representation for there to be a democratic election. Dr. Freud, David was talking about the fetishization of electoral politics, that we live, you know, every two years, the horse race. And are we going to take back uh, the House? Are we going to win the Senate? And this and he's saying this is nonsense, that if it's completely from the ground up, that. You, you, it doesn't matter who gets elected. All that matters is whether or not they answer to us. Is that that's basically what you're s- saying, David? Right? More or less. Like what I would say is, like for example, Dr. Pod, I was uh, um, making the point that you know uh, the you know the, which president actually was the last one to at least publicly advocate uh, for uh, health care, uh, universal health care. Answer, Richard Nixon. Uh, Which president, actually, that great environmentalist who passed the Environmental Protection Act? Richard Nixon. Clean Water Act? Say it with me, David Feldman. Richard Nixon. But that was uh, was already passed. With some sort of progressive champion? Of course not. I'm saying that there were movements that were so powerful that he had to do those things. And here, like you mentioned, Gloria Steinem, uh, Dr. Broad, let's remember that part of what initiated that was that the women's movement was about to launch an independent political party. Because, like, like, again, like, like so electoral politics is a tool that needs to be used appropriately right so again i'm not an electoral fetishist but i do believe in like i, I managed the jill stein and john Mubaraka campaign i ran for president myself I, I i worked on jesse jackson's presidential campaign i work mostly now in local elections but the point i'm making is that if we build a mass movement that is broad deep and militant willing to be disruptive to the system, we will win. The other thing I I just, I can't let Dr. Broad's uh, amazing point go by without agreeing with her. And that is that, so we need proportional representation and we need to get the corrosive influence of money out of elections. And we have to democratize our election system. We need to eliminate the felony disenfranchisement that has been used against people of color to prevent them from being able to vote. We have to uh, engage, use ranked choice voting wherever we can. We like there's a whole suite, we, of, and we of, can't in New York City apparently. But go ahead. Yeah, we should actually talk about what happened there and why. But the the point I'm making is, if we were actually taking real democracy seriously, 
which we do not, if we actually were trying to build a democratic movement, elections would play an appropriate role. But we would also be talking about worker co-ops. We would be talking about community land trust. We would be talking about public banking, participatory budgeting. There is a whole range. Of, we would talk about corporate charter revocations, right? So I mean, wage as well as minimum wage. Maximum wage as well as minimum wage. Like you're speaking my language, lady. Like this is the point that like, like you, you talked about uh, uh, it being illegal. Let me tell you in this country, in every state in the union, it was once a felony to use corporate money to even influence elections. Look it up, I'm not making this up. This was uh, up until about the 1940s and the 1950s, the, there, there were incredibly strong uh, prohibitions against using corporate money. Corporations were understood to be tools that were creations of the state through a legislative process, what they were allowed to do or not do. So there's a whole history that is basically hidden about how we could actually have democracy, economic democracy, as well as electoral democracy. Yeah, yeah, it's totally hidden. Look, we don't have the history of what even happened in the New Deal, that it wasn't that FDR was a cool guy. It's that, that there were the marches of tens of thousands of people organized by the Communist Party. And there was the Tenants Union, a black and white, organized by the Communist Party. There were the farmers, the uh, Iowa militias, battling in the streets and killing the judges that condemned family farms that created the Farm Recovery Act. It wasn't this benevolent good guy. He came in, his big slogan was a balanced budget. But in fact, in fact, it's worth naming FDR. Like again, look it up. He said, I don't know why they're so, uh, the capitalists are so mad at me. I saved capitalism. Right. And you know what? He did. did. That's a true statement. That's true. (laughs) You know, and and I think- It was from the bottom, that's your point. That is my point. What I'm agreeing with, that it wasn't that he's a sweet guy. It was that there were mass movements, and therefore he could say to the capitalists, I will tax you at 96.8% or you won't have anything. There'll be a revolution here. And again, I think that they were right. I mean, and, you know, we can go back further and look at the progr- uh, the populist uprising uh, of the 1880s. Like, like if you actually look, there have been a few times where there were really mass movements in this country that had an understanding about class, who had an understanding about who's actually in charge. I would argue that the American Revolution unleashed a lot of that. Again, you know, it's a complicated story, That, but, but at the end of the day, Day, uh, it, it, the, the, so much of that was about a bottom-up. And frankly, the Articles of Confederation were much more democratic based on the Articles of, uh, of the Great Iroquois Confederacy, by the way. Uh, it was the, the, the Constitutional Convention and the property rights document uh, that came out of that uh, that was problematic. The populist uprising of the uh, of the 1880s and 1890s, the, 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 the industrial uh, workers' movement of the 1920s and the 1930s. I mean, if you take a look at when there were mass mili- mass movements that were broad, deep, politically educated, and militant, that's the recipe. Yes, and that's the recipe we have to build here in well, order to win. 
not in order to be politically correct or moral, which is a real problem with the left, but to win, to try to unify to win, not to show that we're politically correct and then monitor everybody's uh, microaggression, but to win together. Dr. Fraud, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things that I have come to realize is that folks who are actually playing to win have a particular mindset and yes, like, look, we do have to, we, we have to challenge ourselves and each other to do better. As Maya Angelou says, do your best. When you know better, do better. But if you're actually playing to win, you understand that you have to get in there and help to shift people and educate people. And actually, like, you have to go through that, like, consciousness doesn't just happen, right? It's no, very rarely a spontaneous thing. You have to build it, right? You have to, yeah, and you have to engage with people. What I've realized is so many people who claim to be leftists are not actually playing to win. They, they have accepted that they can't win. So instead, in our own little circles, we will police language. We will make sure that gender pronouns are correct and that you use the, the best, most cutting edge conver- uh, conversation tools, right? And, and like, that's not gonna win in pool halls, bowling alleys and ranches and factory farms. But that's to show you're morally correct. It's not to win. It's not to build an alliance, which means sitting in people's kitchens and talking to them, which is what I did for, you know, 20 hours a week for many, many years of my life. And that's how you build a movement. That's right. And you know, it's funny because I see some of the folks in the in the chatter denigrating the Green Party because of election results. And it's another example. It's like, look, election results are what they are. But at the end of, and honestly, like, like I am a revolutionary. I'm trying to restructure our society and I'm trying to engage in political education so that people understand that we have a class-based system where yes, white supremacy is part of the DNA of it, but yeah. the but but it is a class-based system and that we're either going to unite the class against the owning class, or they are going to destroy this planet. Uh, and that's why you hear me talk. Yeah, I'll talk about elections, but I also want to talk about worker-owned cooperatives, community land trust, public banking, participatory budgeting, all of the tools that we can actually use to begin to democratize the economy. You know, Dr. Fraud, uh, there's a, uh, I forget who coined the term, but the whole notion of non-reformist reforms. These are the things that I'm interested in. I will, like, let's fight for public banking so that we can educate people about finance capitalism and how it operates to begin to democratize it where we can, right? Uh, and the non-reformist reform is, yeah, fight for a reform, but only those that actually challenge the system. That's and right. that's what I don't hear Democrat and Democratic those Party options. Those are steps on the way to making a revolution and to telling people what you can do. Because really, if you have an idea that you want to win, you won't allow any arbitrary divisions between people, which are very friendly to capitalism because you can exploit people on that basis. You can enslave them on that basis. And you can keep that legacy alive and have one group serving the other, whether it's a gender division or a racial division. And that would be the opposite of what we stand for. And that doesn't mean that there couldn't be a group that is organized around their particular oppression, but understanding that the central umbrella that'll hold up the opposition is class, class transformation. 
And Dr. Rod, I, I know I'm in, uh, I'm infringing on your time, so I, I, I'm going to get off and listen uh, to the rest of the show. But as you were off, or before you came on, I was making the uh, the the I was encouraging David Feldman, bad David, uh, to check out the work of uh, Ian, Professor Ian Haney Lopez, at, uh, who has done some amazing uh, work. He's a political scientist and a law professor, uh, and he. Uh, the the data is pretty clear. A race class narrative is actually a winning narrative. Uh, we can win super majorities, but we have to embrace one uh, or together. You can't throw uh, race out. You can't throw class out. You have to actually recognize or gender either. You have to you have to recognize all forms of arbitrary divisions between people that separate us from each other. And if we want to win, we need each other. And so we need that alliance and we will adjust to it. But the the, uh, the handle of the umbrella that holds it all up and protects us all is class. It's what unites us. Well, before uh, we go uh, very quickly, uh, let me thank David Cobb. This was great. And we should mix this up. Again, uh, uh, this was spirited. Thank David Cobb. How do people contact you? Check me out uh, either at Cooperation Humboldt, which is the, the local solidarity economy work that I do, www.cooperationhumboldt.org. I also have the honor of serving as the co-coordinator of the U.S. Solidarity Economy Network, uh, which is uh, uh, arguably one of the, the leading edge on a post-capitalist uh, economic system uh, coming out of economic training. And then lastly, if you are on social media, you can hit me up on Twitter, uh, David K. Cobb, or on Facebook at David Keith Cobb. Great. We will see you next week, same time, right? Same time. Same time. Uh, 7.30 Eastern. It's a pleasure chatting with you, Dr. Prada. Hey, I, I, pleasure. I, inspired. Right on. Inspired Thank, by you. You. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Bye, y'all. Bye. Uh, Dr. Harry Fraud, uh, we only have five minutes. I wanted to ask you about Britney Spears. And, okay, I, and well, I, that's not a joke. I think Britney Spears has captured our imagination yeah. is because her case is an allegory for what's wrong in the United States because she is controlled by her father who has netted over $200 million from her and doesn't allow her more than... 24,000 a year. I think that's a little high. I think she's worth about 50. Is it that high? She's worth 60, but he netted 130 from really? the, uh, Las Vegas. He spends a lot on any, paying off anyone who has any ideas to liberate her. Well, he, she doesn't have her own lawyer, even though that's a right of every axe murderer to have a lawyer. Right. And the lawyer he hired for her was paid to retain. This is, uh, I have accepted an opportunity. Oh, hang on. $20,000 a year. Uh, he pays people to imprison her. And she made a lot more money. He, she's supposed to be too demented to be able to function on her own, but she knows all the songs and all the routines and gets out and do it. Does it? She did have a problem. She did have a drug and alcohol problem. She did need temporary help. But without her permission, and illegally in California, they changed it to permanent custodial rights. What do you think happened? Do you think that he saw an opportunity or he orchestrated this? 
I think he saw an opportunity. And when she had emotional trouble, which she had, he banked on it, literally. And he is the ultimate capitalist. This is a capitalist guy. As long as the money lasts, he's there. And although she only has 60 million left just from Las Vegas alone, she got 130 million. You know, she, from the Xfinity series, she got 50 million. And she's such a, a an allegory because she became famous at, at, you know, in about the 2000s and a little before when the country was going much more right wing. And she became this icon of the sexy little girl who is an object for the sex of men, but who doesn't know what's going on herself. And she knew exactly what was going on. According to these documentaries, she's brilliant. She is smart. She's very smart. But in that was what they were selling with all these little virginal girls, that they're the sexy one only for the spectator, but they don't have the sex. And it right. was a general disempowerment of women. Also, the combination of what they do to the American people is what was done with her. She's exploited. They take her money and she works for them and she creates their money and then they take it and use it to imprison her. Just like what happened with Obama and the banks. With no strings attached, they rescued the banks with so much money that the banks could keep lobbying to keep their own illegal crap going. And they did. So that and it's just an allegory for the corporations like Amazon. They exploit the workers who get, whose labor creates the kind of money that allows them to hire the most expensive law, um, union breaking firm to destroy the Obama, um, Bessemer, Alabama union drive. And also they medicate her in order to control her. And one out of 10 kids in the United States is medicated usually with Ritalin, which was proven to be a conspiracy between the drug company and psychiatrists to create a diagnosis of ADHD. Kids have a lot of energy, particularly boys, and they ought to have a curriculum in school that uses their energy, not be dumbed down with drugs and medicated. That there is, you know, the United States medicates people. One out of... I think it's five women is on medication. One out of 10 kids is on psych meds, which are very profitable. The whole mental health field is usurped by psychopharmacology because you have to use the diagnostic statistical manual to get insurance coverage. And right. it was written with subsidy by the drug companies to pigeonhole people's pain and plug it into a medication. Before you, you go, have an interlocking system, and she represents the interlocking parts, which is why I think people are captured by her. Before you go, you are one of the founding mothers of women's liberation. Bill Cosby, 60 women have come forward to say they were raped by Bill Cosby. When drugged by Bill Cosby. And drugged. Felicia Rashad, who played Claire Huxtable on The Cosby Show, the day... We were all surprised when the judge ruled that they were going to throw out the charges. And she tweeted out, 
you know, a, a horrible miscarriage of justice has been corrected. Yay. And she is the dean of fine arts at Howard University. There was a, a backlash to this and she had to issue a statement bravely saying, I thought it was very courageous. She said she does not support rape. I thought that was very courageous on her part. What uh, I'm being sarcastic. What What is going through the mind of somebody like uh, Camille, the wife or Felicia Rashad, who see a miscarriage of justice when it comes to Bill Cosby? Well, I think partly they see what a lot of black women who are raped, why a lot of black women who are raped or beaten don't report it, that black men have gotten a terrible time, that they're the most arrested and the most picked on and so on. So they think they have to be in solidarity with black men, even though they're rapists. They're, they all support, not they all, but there was huge support for O.J. Simpson, who murdered Nicole Simpson and a buddy of hers who was over at her house and practically confessed it but got away with it. And I really don't think if some woman had sexually damaged 60 men who came forward, and then no doubt tens, if not scores of others who haven't come forward out of shame, I don't think he would have been let off. I do think that this is a backlash against women which is part of our society and part of these judges that were put in during the Bush years, both Bushes and Trump. And the DA, the DA who worked at the deal that ended up getting Bill Cosby released, ended up becoming Trump's cabinet. Uh, his lawyer during the impeachment. That's right. Oh, no, the Acosta was who let off Epstein. But the the current uh, the guy who got Cosby the deal. Right that got Cosby off, ended up being uh, Trump's attorney during the impeachment. Is there is there a hatred of these women who were raped to to do people like Camille, to people like Felicia Rashad think that Cosby's the victim because he was a married man and they knew he was married and yet they went out and had drinks with him. And they Not went necessarily. Back. Sometimes he just wanted to give them advice and offered them a cup of coffee and drugged them. However, I think. Do they think that they, they deserve the to be raped? Black Is, men are the biggest victims and therefore we should cover for them no matter what they do to us. OK, they don't think that these women deserved what happens to them. I don't think they're even thinking about what happened to those women. I think they're thinking about black men are picked on. Here's this black man who was revered as a father who looked so good. Don't ruin the image for black men. Black men are in trouble enough. And so they identify with and defend the black man, no matter how savage he is to how many women. Right, right. And we've just learned from Michael Wolf's book that Donald Trump was thinking about pardoning Jelaine Maxwell. Yes. And he wanted to know, is she going to flip? How dangerous is she going to be to us? Yeah, uh, well, he have paid her off then. Also, he flew on the Lolita Express where you get to rape underage girls on Slave Island. And so did uh, Clinton. And so did all many. So did Leon Black of Apollo International Management. So did Les Staley of Barclays Bank. 
and all the flight logs have been lost, just like all the tapes of those rapes that they found when they blew up the door of his mansion and blew up the safe. Somehow they're all missing. By the way, there I kind of brought this up last week and I didn't have time to go into it. And we have Professor Hussein waiting. But this mm-hmm. is important to to remember. Netflix spent, I don't know, $50 million on a 20 part documentary covering Jeffrey Epstein. They 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 and they touch on Bill Clinton being on the Lolita Express, but they don't really look into it. And they they had like $50 million that they spent. Um, they probably spent $50 million promoting this alone. Right. It was produced by a guy named Patterson who writes these political thrillers. And sometimes he writes nonfiction. And he wrote a nonfiction book about Jeffrey Epstein. And this series on Netflix is based on his little book. Well, Patterson also happens to write political thrillers with Bill Clinton. Not surprised because it's an interlocking group of men and they all covered for each other. Netflix put out what many consider the definitive documentary on Jeffrey Epstein and it was all about the victims, which is important. But yeah. they but they they had all this money to hire investigators. They knew that Bill Clinton was on the flight manifest. They hint at it, but they never discuss Bill Clinton's relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. And it's produced, by the way, by a guy named Patterson, who writes thrillers with Bill Clinton. Of course, it's look, it's an old boy network. Yeah. And um, of course, that's why, you know, everybody accepts it's a suicide. The inmates testified it was in the newspaper for one day that they heard screaming from his cell at that time. Usually you don't scream and yell before you kill yourself. Plus, his roommate was taken out of his cell. And that's against the rules. They have to you have to have a roommate for three months if you try to commit suicide. Somehow they moved his roommate out. The light was broken outside his cell. Oh my goodness, so many coincidences. They had two people watching him who were working double shifts. You know, that there were so many circumstances, but it was a cover-up. It yes. was a cover-up of their role in the exploitation of young women and which the CIA was part of because they got the tapes. Somehow they all disappeared. They're probably in some treasure trove at the CIA right now. So they could blackmail people if they wanted to. And Netflix, again, the the victim story should be told. But that documentary is prurient. It focuses like 90 percent of the story about what these girls go through. And there's something salacious Yes, there is. About it's that. It's a voyeuristic yes. view of sex abuse. Instead of doing the digging that needed to be That's done. Right. But Patterson was covering up. I too hard because I, I gave talks on that. So I dug. I could find the stuff. They could, too. To be continued. Dr. Harriet Fraud, thank you so much. Capitalism hits home. And it's not just in your head. Thank you. So much fun. Thank you. So much fun. Thank you. Professor Adnan Hussein hosts the Mudgeless podcast, and he also hosts Guerrilla History with Henry Huckamacki. He's also chairman of the Religion Department, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. A lot to 
to go over. Thank you for being here. How was your July 4th in Canada? Did, do you uh, celebrate it? it went off without a hitch. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, lots yeah, of talk. Obviously, actually, you know, what's interesting is July 1st is Canada Day, which is, I suppose, the equivalent of U.S. Independence Day, July 4th. So really at the, around the same time, there are these two different um, national holidays of these neighbors. Um, July 1st doesn't get much attention in um, uh, the U.S., I don't think, but July 4th is, people are aware of July 4th, um, I guess, just because the U.S. looms large in public culture and consciousness uh, here. But of course, nobody was uh, celebrating uh, right. other than expats. And I did receive some you know, messages uh, from uh, Democrats abroad and groups like that um, about July 4th events or activities. But I don't really go for, you know, a lot of explicit patriotism and especially there's a lot of other things to do. Um, and this year, July 1st, uh, Canada Day was under quite a lot of pressure um, because of all of the recent revelations of the indigenous uh, they toppled statues of Queen Elizabeth and Queen Victoria. That's right. I, I almost, uh, you know, posted uh, that on Facebook uh, uh, for you, David, because I knew that uh, you must be mourning, you know, uh, such uh, atrocious attacks on the symbols of British sovereignty that mean so much to you. Um, so I, I was thinking of you during that time. Um, but, you know, very interestingly, the statue, by the way, the statue that they should be toppling is the one of Princess Di that just got. I don't know what the hell the boys were thinking when they commissioned that. That is she looks hor anyway. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, no. Just that. I mean, also um, the equivalent of uh, George Washington in Canada, Sir John A. Macdonald, I think I've mentioned in the past is from Kingston. So there are a lot of monuments here and. Um, the city council did vote to remove uh, the statue of Sir John A. Macdonald in the main uh, city park across from the courthouse. Um, and um, they haven't yet decided what they'll do instead. Um, but that was a pretty momentous. Why? Decision. What did he, what, because of what? Well, because he was himself uh, um, credited, if you want to use that uh, language, with uh, the residential school's policy and had made a number of remarks about the necessity of, uh, you know, performing some kind of uh, forced assimilation of indigenous people. And that's why he uh, seems to have come up with this uh, sort of policy. Why is he considered the George Washington of Canada? Yeah, well, because he was responsible. He was the first. Other than the fact that he was a racist. Yes. Well, I mean, he was the first prime minister of Canada. Okay. And of course, um, in a settler colonial country like Canada and the U.S., you know, these initial, uh, you know, the initial political class um, of, uh, of uh, leaders obviously had a lot of ideas about the supremacy of their particular culture and the need to dispossess uh, the indigenous population in order to found 
the sort of state uh, that they were interested in, whether it was a republic or whether it was uh, some kind of democratic uh, legislative uh, form within a constitutional monarchy, which of course was Canada since it remained part of, uh, and to this day, uh, you know, Queen Elizabeth is the head of state and that's why there are statues of her, What that's why she is on the money. And the um, she sends a person who's called the governor general. Of course, that's become something that is uh, chosen locally, but she is the queen's representative as the actual head of state. And they do have certain powers like being able to uh, dissolve parliament, you know, and, you know, there are some functions that are still significant uh, that um, are derived from the queen being the actual head of state of Canada. And so when did they bring down the statue of Macdonald? Uh, that was actually about a week or so ago. It, it preceded um, Canada Day by it was the week before um, Canada Day before. So July this was 1st. dealing with the 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 graves, the unmarked graves of first. Yeah, there was a protest that, um, you know, there had been agitation about this for some time in general, but it really gained momentum as a result of these recent revelations. And so a protest movement emerged with an encampment around the statue demanding that the city council um, uh, remove the statue. And they also did. Um, I actually was kind of interesting. Uh, they shrouded the um, they shrouded the the statue with a kind of cloak uh, in red and th threw red paint on the base of it where, you know, it uh, describes who he was and instead put, you know, some counter uh, characterization of Sir John A. Macdonald and, you know, talked about uh, children and the genocide and, and so on. And so for a few days, um, it was quite interesting because um, nobody did anything about um, this defacing, if you want to call it that, or you might say this comment on the uh, on it. And I think when we were talking about statues last summer uh, during the Black Lives Matter uh, protests and um, you know these monuments being uh, toppled earlier that summer, we talked about well, what are the ways in which one could really engage history in a meaningful sort of way, since these monuments are commemorations of a certain narrative of history, but they leave so much out. And at the time, I had thought that perhaps certain kinds of adjustments to existing monuments would be, you know, an interesting way to dramatize the multiple narratives and the full kind of account of history. And so that seemed to be for a few days what was taking place is that you had the image and the emblem of the colonial, you know, white kind of prime minister, founding father figure uh, being celebrated with this other kind of layer of historical memory being asserted, you know, in this in this way, it was kind of very powerful uh, in some ways. So I wonder if leaving it that way or commissioning something that would have provided a counter narrative would have been one strategy. But I think uh, most people uh, seem to have supported the idea of just removing the statue, relocating it to his gravesite at a cemetery in the west part of the city. Um, but so, there's did you have the kind of conversation about. we uh, have in America? Because we can't even get Jefferson Davis taken out of Statuary Hall in the Capitol. Jefferson Davis seceded, led the secession, let you know, fought 
against the United States in the Civil War. He was president of the Confederacy, and he is honored in Statuary Hall in, uh, in the Capitol. And the, in America, they say, well, it's a part of our history. And, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. you can't whitewash it. And yeah, but you shouldn't be celebrating That's these right. people. Yeah. Well, that there's a difference. I mean, you know, uh, this is was something that always has agitated me. And I know that these discussions last year, we had similar ones about the way in which people make claims on history um, and say that you can't uh, whitewash or erase history. Well, you know, but this is what is being portrayed and represented isn't exactly a full and complete understanding of history. And in fact, actually, that's one reason why some people feel monuments are really quite dangerous anyway, is because they're not a good way to engage in public history or these kind of statues. And so Gary Young in um, The Guardian, he's a commentator, a columnist for The Guardian, wrote an interesting piece a, a month or two ago that was about how all statues should go. Um, Basically, uh, because they tend to celebrate um, individuals rather than movements, you know, it gives a very uh, incorrect impression about what actually historical change is about or the broader and more inclusive history of nations and peoples. And, you know, so we need a different kind of way of memorializing. It's history. paganism. So people say you can't get rid of this because that's our history. So, well, that's not actually your whole history. That's not being that's not portraying it a certain way. It's a symbol of a certain image and a certain narrative. And this is the problem is that so many of these statues came in the teens, 20s and 30s as part of a, you know, an attempt to rewrite the, the, the narrative, the lost cause narrative, you know, the idea of celebrating the Confederacy and recovering it by suppressing the fact that it was built on slavery, that it was a racist ideology uh, for a new form of white identity politics in the South. And. Um, you know, you really have to have a longer perspective to be able to see that this image is something that's recent and invented in, you know, enough period of time before the contemporary to make it seem as if it's always been that way. But only if you don't really study history accurately and over the whole period of time. It's an example of what the great uh, historian uh, Eric Hopsbaum and his uh, fellow co-editor Terence Ranger both editors of one of the great historical journals, academic journals, past and present, um, called The Invention of Traditions. And they had a very famous volume that looked at the way in which so many things that we think of as traditions that have gone back since time immemorial, that we've always celebrated or remembered history this way, rituals, public theater, symbols like uh, these statues and so on, are often a very recent uh, vintage and are part of a particular way of trying to construct a new national identity or a position within a new kind of nationalism or patriotism. And I think that's what we've seen in the United States and that what we're seeing now in Canada. Uh, and as we saw since last year, is some attempt with wrestling with changing our understanding of history, which gets to this whole issue about critical race theory and the invention of this as the boogeyman, partly because there aren't really direct and good ways to confront 
you know, the fact that basically the whole narrative is is really about a crude narrative of history rather than actual critical race theory, which is some legal legal theory. Um, so I think we have to be a little more insistent that people need to understand history in a much more thorough sort of way. Otherwise, you get caught in all kinds of traps like this. So you're not saying the level of stupidity in Canada, certainly not in your parliament that we're seeing here in the United States when it comes to the statues. Well, I mean, I know that, um, you know, Canadian nationalism is somewhat predicated on being just as good as the United States. So I guess maybe to be a good Canadian, I should say, yes, they can be just as stupid as the United States. When in fact, of course, actually, Canadian nationalism is all about trying to make what I would consider rather small variations and differences within a kind of common you know, settler colonial state history and liberal multicultural, multi-religious uh, sort of democracy under capitalism, that some of these small differences are turned into huge differentiations of, you know, Canada being different from the United States. And actually, I see them as actually you know, pretty close, you know, like, for example, the same residential school policy that Sir John A. Macdonald seems to have invented and was important in the late 19th uh, century in Canada through to the 1990s, um, you know, is something that the United States picked up on and, you know, developed itself. And there were Australians and other, um, you know, statesmen, you know, uh, if we want to call them that, but any political figures who studied and were interested in Canada's policies of reserves, how it organized Indigenous people, of the residential school system, that then they tried to adopt and learn from. And so you have something of a collective project uh, that each has its own histories, but they clearly saw themselves in relation to one another. And I think that's definitely the case is that in North America, Canada and the U.S., while they have different histories, of course, um, really do also have a lot of fundamental and structural similarities that need to be appreciated at the same time. Well, we talked about the lost cause, the Civil War. Let's talk about the lost cause in Afghanistan. Oh, yes. Canada has troops serving in Afghanistan. Uh, no longer. Um, there was a pullout of Canadian troops much earlier. Um, I think the UK, for example, stayed in and there were a couple of other allies and there was a really, you know, a lot of anxiety actually about that. I would say it was quite contested when uh, Canada pulled out its troops, um, all of its troops, uh, because, um, you know, any time and there was a lot of anxiety during the Iraq war. Uh, Canada didn't end up joining that. And I would say that the political class in Canada was really quite nervous about um, opposing or at least not uh, endorsing and participating in the U.S. policy in the Middle East. So uh, but that did happen earlier. Um, so we don't have um, Canadian troops in there, but I think this whole story is very interesting. I mean, we've talked a little bit about um, the uh, withdrawal um, of, of U.S. troops. There still is so some tell talk us what, about Bi what is Biden, Biden's policy is what? Well, his policy, you know, it's not completely clear whether all troops will be removed. There's some talk uh, that I've noticed about maintaining a thousand 
troops and um, private contractors and so on to provide security for diplomatic missions, embassies, and to secure uh, the Kabul International Airport. And I think that will be controversial already. The Taliban has announced just, I think, uh, yesterday or earlier today that um, after the deadline, they will regard any security forces, whether private contractors or actual military soldiers deployed in um in Afghanistan as, um, you know, occupying forces. So they're not planning on drawing a distinction between those, but there had been some talk and you can understand and see why there would be some talk is because there hasn't been a political solution actually uh, established. The negotiations with the Taliban were really about the U.S. simply insisting that territory under the Taliban control would not be, um, you know, a haven for al-Qaeda or other terrorist sort of groups. And so that negotiation, you know, has been achieved. The Taliban has agreed to that. But the U.S. agreement didn't include anything about you know, a political solution for Afghanistan, for including the Taliban in some kind of, you know, multi-party government or something. So what we're, you know, looking at is the possibility of the return of the kind of situation that emerged the last time the U.S. pulled out uh, of Afghanistan when the Northern Alliance was controlling the North, basically feudal warlords that had their own kind of private armies, but a fiction of some sort of elected political status. And the Taliban emerged to end the you know warfare between these particular groups. And that's what we're seeing is that already um, they control, you know, a quarter to a third of the country and are pushing forward in the north north um, and uh, Afghan government forces have either uh, withdrawn and fled back to Kabul or in two provinces up in the northeast of the country in uh, Badakhshan and I'm forgetting the other um, uh, other province right on the border with Tajikistan one of the former Soviet uh, you know uh, republics but is now its own uh, its own country borders with Afghanistan and in um, Afghanistan there is a fairly large Tajik minority, um, a number of these troops were cut off from being able to flee or go anywhere within Afghanistan. So they've crossed the border into Tajikistan and are basically fleeing and are unwilling to kind of fight the Taliban. So although President you know, Ashraf Ghani claims that Afghan security forces will be able to maintain the peace and prevent uh, the Taliban from taking over the entire country, it's not very clear whether that's a credible you know, credible claim. So with the U.S. pulling out without having had, um, you know, any political talks among these parties, it's very unclear about what will happen. And I predict that, you know, we'll see that the Taliban will continue to take uh, territory um, and it'll be a very you know, a very interesting situation to see what the Afghan government will do uh, and whether politicians, many of whom in Afghanistan already have family, they've sent their families abroad. They're not living, you know, in in Afghanistan, many of them, their families, whether they're going to stick around and try and contest uh, uh, the situation and establish some kind of government. Um, We're told the that the Taliban are misogynists. They don't believe women should be allowed to go to school. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, they have an extreme conservative um, 
religious ideology and interpretation. Um, it's a ra- very radical kind of uh, Sunni ideal, which is why they were uh, a haven for radical Sunni jihadists. Um, what this is going to do, because one of the things they did last time is that they persecuted very much the Shi'i uh, uh, ethnic minority, the Hazaras in, in the country, is if they continue to persecute um you know, all of society and also mark out different ethnic because they're basically a Pashtun. Afghanistan is a, you know, a raft of different uh, uh, ethnic uh, and ethno-religious groups and orientations. The principal core, you know, are these Pashtun tribes of the south um but there are as i said tajik a tajik minority that speaks persian uzbek minority that speaks a turkic language they're the hazara peoples who have their own language and are shi'i in orientation and so what's going to happen is that there are interests of neighboring groups that will you know it'll be a lot like what we've seen in syria and northern iraq is a lot of proxy uh positioning geopolitically and iran if the taliban really takes uh, over will you know like the last time they got involved in the situation in afghanistan to protect the hazara uh, minority and to stop uh, this extreme sort of persecution of shiites likewise pakistan always had sort of thought of the taliban as a potential uh, ally uh, keep the country somewhat fragmented keep them ideologically close to pakistan so that afghanistan doesn't become an ally of um, pakistan's main concern which is india and the situation of kashmir but you know the the, the pakistan has, has has really departed from being in the u.s orbit it seems at this point and that's going to be a very interesting outcome of this as well the u.s recently was requesting and was interested in establishing a new cia sort of base in afghanistan uh, in pakistan because pakistan has basically um, not allowed u.s forces to act um, directly through facilities and a, a real genuine obvious presence in pakistan since about 2011 and they're not about to reverse that at this point and i would say what we'll see is that there's increasingly um you know alignment between pakistan and uh, china and they're not going to really need the united states which had been you know a, you know that they had sort of leveraged their position as absolutely crucial in order to stage any operations inside of afghanistan they had used their strategic geographical position to try and have u.s support military support and to try and put pressure on India. And that to me is the real story here is what's going to happen, in, you know, in the kinds of alignments in the South Asia generally, is China going to sort of, you know, have a strong presence by, uh, you know, making an alliance, uh, they already have all kinds of commercial alliances and so on with Pakistan, it'll pull it out of the US uh, orbit. Um, or are we going to see a kind of regional solution which is what's really needed to solve the kashmir situation bring you know pakistan and india into some kind of you know working peaceful relationship that would then allow the rest of the region you know really to begin putting aside some of the major conflicts or is it going to go the other direction that the u.s has sort of left it doesn't have any leverage and what's going to start happening is that some of the other regional actors are going to try and use proxies within a Afghanistan to pursue their geopolitical interests or protect, you know, groups and populations that they have some affiliation with. So it's going to be very interesting. I think this fall, it'll be, 
you know, uh, worth watching to see what happens in the in, in, in the U.S. withdrawal, whether they really fully withdraw uh, and um, if they do, um, you know, what the Taliban's position will be and from whom it will uh, receive uh, support regionally. That will yeah. be kind of interesting to see if Pakistan gets really involved in, in, in uh, Afghanistan. Before you go, uh, Trump wanted to get out of Afghanistan. They wouldn't let him. Biden wants to get out. We'll see if they, whoever they are, uh, let him. It's been called the graveyard of empires, mm-hmm. Afghanistan. We went in there in 2001. We've been there 20 years. What did America look like 20 years ago? How were we viewed by the rest of the world 20 years ago? And how are we viewed now? Well, I don't know. You know, at the time, there was a certain amount of sympathy for U.S. involvement. I think it was totally mishandled the way uh, they got involved. The U.S. got involved instead of trying to figure out some way to bring a kind of criminal, um, you know, enforcement approach and using cooperation to isolate, uh, you know, Al Qaeda and these groups. Um, They, you know, ended up invading, um, lost all of the initial goodwill and sympathy that people had because it wasn't leading to an improvement generally um, more broadly in Afghanistan. That poor country has basically suffered war for like the last 40 years. You know, I mean, this is absolutely devastating. We're going to see a return to people that started going back. But now, you know, we might see people the Taliban again. What what is there? What is in Afghanistan that would make Russia... And America's so concerned about it. Natural oh, gas, wonderful carpets, but uh, you know, I don't think. Uh, what, what what is? It can't just be the the worrying it's, about it's the people of Afghanistan. I, I think it's it's where it's located. Um, basically, if you want to connect South Asia to the Middle East, this is, uh, you know, one way uh, in which that is going to happen. I know that there are always these and, you know, you have a huge energy we have market. Planes. We could fly over these. I don't understand. This isn't the days of Marco Polo. We right. Want to yeah, transport. That's, that's true. I mean, you know, it, it, it it's a good question. Um it's just it's one of these border areas and in these kind of between oil major world regions and that always creates or pits um, you know, major powers against one another because this is sort of the, the area of limit and where they connect with other other sort of world regions. Um, so but it's you know, it's it's obviously was a graveyard for the British. Um, it was a graveyard for the Russians, for the Americans. Um, so you would think people would learn that perhaps the best thing to do is, you know, let Afghan people alone uh, to figure out affairs on their own. But of course, you know, other groups in the region are also not interested in doing that. And so that definitely complicates the situation because Pakistan looks at it as its backyard and it wants to control it so that it, um, you know, isn't uh, undermined in its confrontation with with India over over Kashmir, for example. Right. To so be, to its be geostrategic key. position, the fact that it's in between a lot of other groups that have ambitions makes it an unstable frontier zone for all kinds of uh, competition between groups. To be continued, Professor Adnan Hussein hosts two tremendous podcasts, The Mudgeless Podcast and Guerrilla History with Henry Huckamaki. Henry had an interview that I'm not going to be able to run tonight because we're having 
technical difficulties for a change. Uh, Professor Adna Hussein is chairman of the religion department over at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. I hope to see you Thursday for the professors and Marianne, if you can spare the time. Thank you. Look, we I just scratched the surface. Thanks so much, David. Thank you. Let's, let's stay in Canada where Mark Breslin is standing by. He is, God, he looks like he just went swimming with his family. You look good. You look rested. He is the president and founder of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy chain in North America. You look great. You look tan and rested. Well, you know, David, I'm rotting on the inside. <laughs> nobody really knows. I'm rotting on the outside, and I'll tell you, I'd rather rot on the inside. Sorry? I'd rather rot on the inside than on the outside. That seems to be my problem. Certainly, if you have a 50-year reunion of high, your high school class coming up, yes, you'd rather rot on the inside. <laughs> so, um, anyway, um, hey, Cosby's out. Yeah. Look at that. What do I think of Cosby being on the loose? Yeah. I hear instead of drugging women's drinks, he's just making them listen to my podcast. <laughs> well, um, it's interesting because, of course, it raises all kinds of moral issues. And the moral issue I have that this is suggested, of course, is if I, if I slip a roofie to my, my dog before I fuck him, <laughs> Is the greater sin the bestiality or the rape? <laughs> now, I asked my rabbi yes. that question, and he said, you know, it's very interesting because there is a story in the Talmud <laughs> about a farmer, his cow, and some Manischewitz. <laughs> so, I don't know. He never told me the answer. He said I had to find it within my heart. So... I have to beat the chat room. I haven't looked at the chat room, but yes. that would be a roughie. A roughie. Yes, if a you roughie. give your dog a roofie, it's a roughie. Roughie. Um, would you? So you just celebrated, I guess, or maybe you didn't, the 4th of July. Yes, I did. Did you celebrate it? I don't. My people don't celebrate the 4th of July. Exactly. That's what I expected to hear. Now, you know, in Canada, only three days earlier, July 1st, that's our version of July 4th. That's our national uh, holiday. That's when Canada was formed through the British North America. You, you celebrate not declaring your independence from Great Britain, which is something to cherish. I, that, like that, We made a big mistake. Yeah, I think so. So what do you celebrate on Canada Day? But um, we did not, sorry, Dominion Day. Uh, somebody corrected me. The voting um, machines. Day, you celebrate the voting machines. Celebrate it this year. Can't hear me. I can hear you. Oh, okay. You were touching you, your ear, um, and we did not celebrate it this this year because of all these uh, these horrible things of the, these native kids being found, and they found more of them. I think it's up to a thousand bodies now across the country, and there will be more. And so we canceled most municipalities canceled all their uh, all their celebrations. Now, my question to you is this. What would it take in the United States to cancel 4th of July? <laughs> what horrible thing would have to happen 
before they said, that's it, no parades, no fireworks, no, you know, talking about how great a country we are. What would it take? Tell me what it would take. To cancel the 4th of July. Yeah, because I was watching CNN and I saw, even in the middle of the fact that we're still not finished a pandemic, uh, shots of Nashville and there's an amazing concert going on with 100,000 people in the streets. Nobody's wearing masks. Uh, Same thing out in California. It's everywhere. But what would it take to actually say, no, this is a national tragedy. We cannot, cannot celebrate the 4th of July. What would it take? Make it up. Uh, 9-11 had happened on July 3rd of that year. Would there still have been? Yes, then the terrorists win if we don't celebrate July 4th and give it to That's right. Yeah. Well, I thought it was interesting that they showed also on CNN a huge concert. I can't remember who was involved in it. I think the great Sammy Hager was playing in Fort Lauderdale, and there were also like 100,000 people there, and it was only like 10 minutes away from the, uh, the building that fell down in Surfside. But right. that's not going to bother them. They're still going to have a good time. Because that's what Americans do. Is that, they is have that, a good time. But we're, but we're not having a good time. Well, we, you're pretending rather well. No, we're, we're, dilute, we're stupid. And we, <laughs> we, we think, all right, if I eat this food and I go here and spend this money, it'll make me happy. And it, and it doesn't. Is there anything good about us? I'm beginning to wonder what our redeeming qualities are. Well, you know, uh, William Blake, the great romantic poet, says that energy is eternal delight, and I can't fault the Americans for not being energetic. Um, So, you know, you've got that going for you, but it was more energetic maybe 40 years ago. I think there's a lot of self-doubt now that's crept in. But um, I like the American character. I like it when I go to the States and I'm in the pool you know, in Palm Springs or somewhere in Florida and everybody is so garrulous and everybody wants to talk to you and everybody wants to get to know you. That doesn't really happen in Canada. Everybody kind of keeps to themselves. Um, And I know all of these are cliches, but some cliches are based on some level of truth. So I I like the the outgoingness of it all. Too bad you're so outgoing you go into other countries and... (laughs) Because their governments. Uh, uh, too bad they're so outgoing that they go out to the native population and give them smallpox. Mm-hmm. But you are outgoing. You know, it's, it's a plus. Donald Rumsfeld died, and I look at America, and too many of us don't know what we don't know, and we just mouth off and do whatever we please and think whatever we want with this. Uh, this sense of uh, privilege that, that we must be right. And we're really, when you look, when you watch TV and see what we're doing down, in, we're just idiots. And, and we think somebody's taking care of us. Like the, the condo that collapsed, people just assume that can't happen. There are inspectors. There's a, a board at the condo that will look into this and keep us safe. We're infants, and we're, I don't know. Uh, well, to be fair, that condo is, was one condo, and there are other countries in the world where that would happen on a monthly basis. So, you know, I mean, it's terrible. And I still say there's something more than meets the eye here. I, I just don't understand why a condo would fall all at once. Certainly there's a piece of masonry that would fell off, fall off first. 
Where do you where do you like to vacation in America? You you vacation. So you're what do you miss? What city do you miss the most? Well, you know, I, I love Palm Springs, the Palm Springs area. Um, There's no place in Canada that you can go that doesn't have the warmth. Have you been to British Columbia lately? Yeah, it does. It's a great place. I love I love the West Coast of Canada more than I appreciate the East Coast. But it's still not warm enough. Have you been there recently? Well, no, I know there's a heat wave going on. In fact, it's a real problem because a lot of these places that people live in don't have any air conditioning because it rarely gets to be that hot. Um, And there's no place more lovely than the the Vancouver Islands or Vancouver itself when the weather is really nice. Um, And I remember going there once for a week in July. We went. I, I did my meetings as fast as I possibly could and ran to the beach. And I was on the beach every single day. It was great. But you only get that for maybe a month, six weeks. But in, you know, Palm Springs, you have it all all the way year around. I mostly travel, frankly, for the weather. The weather here can be incredibly oppressive and and cold. So, yes, we go to Palm Springs. But that's not the only reason. There's lots of reasons I like, I like that area. Um, there's more culture probably per square mile in the Coachella Valley than there is anywhere else. Because a lot of people are there, the transplants, they're cultured, um, they've moved there from Texas, New York, um, the, you know, Los Angeles. Um, they're successful, they want culture. There's art galleries. There's, there's a street in Palm Desert, which is nothing but art galleries. Um, and it's fantastic to walk down that street. There's um, all kinds of um, interesting acts and cabaret and there's a real gay influence there, which is fantastic. There's a Jewish influence, which, which is fantastic. Um, I love the colors of the desert. I like the color of the sage and silver and uh, terracotta. I like the fact that the buildings are generally not high rises, but are all low. Same thing in Santa Fe, um, which is also a beautiful city, but again, doesn't have the warmth, literally the physical warmth. Um, I like the fact that everybody's a transplant. Everybody's there because they want to be there. They weren't there because they were happened to be born there and they're just too lazy to move somewhere else. They want to be there. And so there's a lot of great things about it. Politically, um, as you go uh, east, yeah, as you go east from Palm Springs, it becomes more conservative. So Palm Springs itself, take a look at the voting behavior, which I was always curious about. I finally looked it up. Palm Springs is pretty solidly Democratic. But as you go towards Palm Desert, it becomes Republican. But not crazed Republican, but, you know, kind of Mitt Romney Republican, kind of I want to protect my 401k Republican. Mm-hmm. Um, me, I've always believed myself, actually, to be a Warhol Republican. <laughs> Can I admit that? Warhol was a Republican? Yeah, I'm a Warhol Republican. I'm pro-business and pro-orgy. <laughs> Andy Warhol was a Republican? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so was Joan Rivers. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah, no, Andy Warhol. I mean, I don't think he was a... Uh, you know, I, I don't think he was active in politics, but he liked money. I mean, his, his art was all about money. He painted dollar signs. How much closer to Ayn Rand do you have to be for that? <laughs> now, I know that it's a bit, he did it with irony, but nevertheless, you know, irony is always based in some level of truth. So, um, no, a Warhol, a Warhol, I believe, was a Republican. I think you're right. I think I read that somewhere. I think yeah. you're right. July 10th is coming up. You're doing a national show, Coast to Coast. I am. But what I really like to talk about is that we did our first big live show um, out on this gorgeous patio uh, in a like a converted inn at the edge of Toronto. And it was a big success. 
We can only put 100 people out on the patio because that's all the government will allow. But uh, it was a, it, everybody had a great time. It was a beautiful place. It's like on the lake and you can see the, the lake and there's uh, breezes coming through the pavilion, although it has a, a roof. Um, so if it rains, then it's OK. Uh, but um, uh, we're going to do it every we're doing it every Saturday night. Great. And um, yeah, so it just felt so great to be back. And I went on stage. Not really to do material, but just to welcome everybody and to thank them for showing up. And uh, the whole vibe was terrific. It just felt like I was back in my life, which I have missed being in my life. Wow. It's interesting because some people I've spoken to say they don't miss traveling. They don't miss the clubs and they're not looking forward to it coming back other than the money. They say some friends go, you know what? Uh, I I got healthy. You, David, David, let me tell you when I I mean this. It isn't the money. It's the money. (laughs) (laughs) It's also the fact that I have a need, a deep seated need to kibitz, Mm -hmm. to schmooze. Um, I'm doing shtick with the waitress who brings me my food at the restaurants I can finally now go to outside. I can't stop. I've missed that so much. Talking to strangers. I've got lots of friends. I talk to them all the time. But I love talking to strangers because they don't know what to expect from me. And so there's a real fun feeling of, you know, I I say this to some some of the students that I have in this comedy course that I that I, I'm responsible for. Comedy isn't just something you, you do. It's something you live. And if you're really living it, it doesn't matter whether you have a stage or not. Your stage is in your mind. And I need that to keep going. But, you know, my wife and child, they've heard all my jokes. They've heard all my routines. They've heard all my riffs. They've been trapped in the house with this guy for 15 months. I feel so sorry for them. Um, but these people out there who are, you know, bringing me a, a steak, they don't know anything about me. And I can do the A material easily. I don't even have to go down to the B material. We're social animals, but we get rewired. The machines do change the makeup of our brain. Do you think there are some people who have adapted to the quarantine and say, you know what, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be a shut in, but I'll do my podcast from my apartment. Oh, I'm sorry. That's me. Uh, that Some people have decided, you know what, it's not so bad uh, just staying in my house and not having any human contact. Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of latent agoraphobia um, that people have. And I think a lot of the latent agoraphobia is justified. It's a pretty cruel world out there. Um, Is it cruel because we're home watching television? I'm sorry? I think it's cruel because we're home and our only mirror that we get to see the world through is television. But if you're out in the world, it's not that cruel. No, I find it crueler because I find that television is distilled Um, in the same way that if you watch comedy on television, um, you know, on the Just for Laughs shows, you see a completely censored version of of what it really is. So, no, I find the world can be a very cruel place. I I don't have as much trouble dealing with the cruelty. Um, And it isn't always cruel. Sometimes it's wonderful. Sometimes people are great. 
but it certainly takes the um, the guesswork out of things if you stay home. Um, I, I know people who have said, well, um, I'm not going out so much anymore. They tend to be older people who are caught up in a lifestyle of going out, who are caught up in the habit of going out. Where are we going out? We're going out because we always went out. They maybe really didn't want to go out all the time. My parents did not go out obsessively. They went out to see their relatives, but only once in a while did they go to a movie or right. go to a restaurant. This wasn't a lifestyle. This was, you know, a treat. But, but these things aren't treats anymore. They're just expected. Everybody's expected to go do their part and get out there. Right. Right. I bought a new phone. I went 10 days without a phone. Oof, I couldn't do that. It, it's pretty good to go 10 I days. It's a luxury to go 10 days because I have I have a, uh, you know, you can message me. And there are ways to contact me if it's an emergency. It's really nice not to have a phone. Anyway, I got a new iPhone. And with it comes... What did you get? Huh? Which one did you get? The Apple II. It's push button. Yeah, no, it's good. The one with the crank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I don't know, I just got, you know, whatever they... I just need a phone. With it comes a free subscription to Apple TV. That's right. And I started watching 1971, based on your recommendation, the year music changed everything. It's one of the best hours of television I've seen in a long time. I am astounded. Howie Klein, who ran Reprise, Warner, Warner Brothers Records, said 1971 wasn't anything special to him. And I read a list that you gave me of the music that came out in 71. It's, you know, even Karen Carpenter's song Superstar, which is, you know, came out in 71. Every grace, Stairway to Heaven. It, it, it's such a well-produced documentary. So thank you for turning me on to that. You're welcome. Now, I, there's something on Apple. Um, have you seen the looming? Oh, no, that's not on Apple. There's a couple of things on Apple that I really, really liked. Uh, there's a mystery, and I can't remember what it's called. I think it's eight episodes, uh, and it's about a, uh, a prosecutor, and his son is accused of murdering um, one of his schoolmates. He's about 12 or 13 years old. It is a, an incredible series. So what is Apple TV? Because I just, I, I downloaded it. I saw that thing. I started watching it. Is it an alternative to cable? Well, it's, another streaming, it's another streaming service. And, you know, um, any big company now that's in the media has to have that kind of, that territory. Does it have market. The Godfather on it? I'm sorry? Does it have The Godfather on it? Well, I don't think so. Okay, then I'm on it. Then when it, when it expires, <laughs> I signed up for Paramount Plus because it had the Godfather. And I well, I don't think we get Paramount Plus in Canada. Oh, I think it just came. Or you just got Disney, right? Sorry? Yes, I have Disney. I, there's not a lot on Disney for me to watch. I don't, I don't like the Marvel Universe particularly. Um, but I did see Hamilton again. I saw it live and then I saw it. And I think In the Heights is... Is In the Heights on Disney or is it on Netflix? I'm, now, there's something I want to recommend. If you like Ham, I don't know. If you don't like musicals. I like, I, I, yes. I, I've been, I came around. What did I watch the other night? 
There was some, there was a musical I watched the other night. I can't remember, but I liked well, you it. Have to go back to like Oscar Hammerstein and and like love musicals from the the forties and fifties, and then take it all the way through to really appreciate what musicals are. And none of them today are anything like the the sublime work of that era. But um, uh, Lin Manuel Miranda, before he did Hamilton, uh, had a Broadway show called In the Heights. Uh, which I thought was fantastic. And they made a movie of it. It's on whatever streaming service it is now. I think it's Netflix. It might be Amazon Prime. I don't know. Um, it got terrible reviews. Nobody seems to like it. But I thought it was fantastic, and I, I urge you to see that. Okay. Also on Apple+, Plus, um, there's a great Beastie Boy uh, doc. It's wonderful. So I recommend it. And I'm not even the biggest Beastie Boy fan, but uh, but it's a terrific documentary. Well, and those are the children of successful fathers, right? Yes, generally. It's, uh, one Israel of them Horowitz, is, his son? Horowitz is, yeah, it's Israel Horowitz's um, Friedman? son. Who? who? And, uh, um, the other guy, there's, there's Yauch, I, don't, I think he's, his father was a diplomat. And, and, and um, Friedman, Bruce J. Friedman's son is... Am I wrong? Seriously? I don't think so. I'm, I'm wrong. No, no. Another Jew. Wrong Jew. Wrong Jew. Wrong Jew. Wrong Jew. Uh, and are you reading? Oh. No? No, I'm taking care of my child. Well, you look great. You went to the tennis club today and you went swimming? I went to the tennis club today. Had a great time. We got there at one. We stayed there right through till six. Had dinner. It was great. Great. Mark Breslin is the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy chain in North America. And I'm so glad uh, it's coming back. It's coming back slow, but it's coming back. Yeah, I was downtown yesterday. I was on 14th Street on the west side. And uh -huh. I almost started to cry because... I, you know, they took your wallet. I they know. took my it's wallet. They they did, yeah, especially on the west side. You don't realize how much we lost until you see it again. And they're just seeing people walking around and enjoying life. It's been missing for a year and a half. I know, David, but you just contradicted yourself because earlier in the in the broadcast, you said, you don't care if you ever go out again. I was that was I was saying, are there some people who are like, oh, I see. Um, okay. you know, for comedic effect? I, I, I portray an asocial human being, but believe me, my body is covered with carbuncles, which speak volumes to the human interaction I have. People are disgusting and they carry germs and disease and uh, be careful who you hang out with because they will drag you down. If you if you pick the wrong friends, they will ruin you, right? I always was very lucky that I was able to pick the right friends. How's Joel? Joel's doing great. Joel never is anything but great. Okay. You know, he got kicked out of his house, in the apartment that he was renting in in Walkerton, which is like a, is that where the water nowhere. is that where the water was poisoned? That's right. Joel was part of the lawsuit. He got like eight thousand bucks or something long ago. Anyway, he wants to stay there. He he's settled there. He has friends there, and he was going crazy because he was kicked. He was. They asked him to leave. And he found something like amazing. He found a stone farmhouse uh, on a farm where the, the guy said, I don't really need my that extra house. Why don't you 
housed it for me and I'll charge you some rent. And he showed me pictures of it. It was lovely. <laughs> Joe always falls on his feet. He Good. always lands on his feet. You don't have to worry about him. You grew up with him, right? Yeah, we've been best friends since we were 16. He lived like right across the street from me. And is he still the person who makes you laugh the hardest? Oh, yeah. No question. I mean, I can watch professional comedians and I can laugh, but nobody actually makes me laugh like Joel. It's like my friend Jeff Tatarian. Mark Breslin. I'll tell you exactly the relationship. He is the Neil Cassidy to my... uh, um, Kerouac? uh, Yeah, Kerouac. Wow. Wow. That says a lot. Thank you, Mark Breslin. I love you. Hopefully I'll talk to you next week. I'll talk to you. You look week. great. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad to see you. Uh, you look great. It's thank great you. to see you. Thank you. Well, thank you. Let us do this. We have Professor Marianne Cummings coming up. But if Dan Frankenberger is here, we can do community billboard. Shall we? Are you here? Well, it's time for. By the way, did you notice that we're having technical problems? Did you see the. I can't get the. Everything looks good. Oh, there's some playback problems. Let me see if they'll Let me just see. Do you see me? Yep. You do see, see a me. picture. You don't see a picture. Can you hear me? I can hear you, but I see your still picture as if you turn your video off. Right. Yeah. Something happened. Uh, so I can't play Henry. Now I'm back, right? Not yet. Nope. You don't see me? Oh, I have to turn this back on. There are a hundred little things that you have to remember. And if you forget one of them... The whole thing goes down the shore. <laughs> Nothing works. Yeah. It's just, it, it, it's, uh, I don't know. Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. How are you today, my pretentious douchebag? Doing good. You just mentioned Henry. And the last time I saw uh, Henry Hakamaki, he was walking around his shipyard selling pocket lint. <laughs> Mike Rowe is going to do the show on Thursday. His book is a bestseller. Fantastic. Uh, uh, and who did you see at uh, office hours and hours? I definitely saw Andy Brown. How's Andy Brown doing? Andy Brown is doing great. He yeah. was standing at a sugar shack talking to a caterpillar. <laughs> <laughs> There's a Don Rickles impersonator. I have to send this to you. Uh, he bills himself as a Don Rickles impersonator, a tribute act. He's so horrible. Not even close. It's all rhythm. It's uh, it's incredible. Uh, well, we have Professor Marianne waiting. Why don't we look at our community as we once again join the brilliant Dan Frankenberger? Oh, it's not working. Oh, there it is. The David Feldman Show is my beat. Is that working? Can you see that? Yep, it's working. This is Dan Frankenberger driving the streets of L.A. looking for stories for the David Feldman show. Okay, we have, uh, is this, uh, who is this? What is this? This is Tom Weber. And he did uh, a drawing of James Dean. Wow, beautiful. I have to have Tom on the actual show. Uh, uh Again, he's great. That's amazing. On this one, he said, last night I did a piece that stylistically looks, took its cues from pop art. He said he was thinking Andy Warhol and Roy 
Lichtenstein and uh, seemed a fitting approach for a cultural icon as he chose his subject. And he taught us how to draw during office hours. Yep, there's a handful full of people participating in his lessons, and uh, yeah, it's really fabulous. Right. And this? This here is Alberto Camus. Giacometti. That's not, oh, Giacometti, that's Giacometti? Giacometti, is that how you say it? You would think it would be a thinner, just be very stringy. The artist, Alberto Giacometti? Sculptor. And he says, uh, this is a brush pen sketch with Faber-Castell pen hatching. Edited. Giacometti is one of my favorite artists. He's a, he's a sculptor and he also he paints uh, people who look like they've been stretched out like Turkish taffy. That's his. Uh, so I thought Tom would paint him stretched out, but I like this. No gimmicks. Maybe next time. <laughs> and this looks like it's Glenn Costick. Now that is delicious. What is that? That is his 4th of July dinner. It's a salmon. With peas, beans, rice, carrots, asparagus, and black bean gravy. Beautiful. Even the salmon looks like it looks like it, it looks like it's chicken. That must be from the ocean. It's flaky. Yeah. Yeah. Looking good. And and what is the rice? Is that farro or rice? Um, he just calls it uh, just plain rice. Salmon, peas, beans, and rice. That is a healthy meal. It looks like short grain. Yeah. And here's a, here's a loaf of bread he baked last week. Whole kernel bread with pumpkin seeds. Whole kernel. Well, I got to get an oven. He gets into the seeds on top of the bread, and it always looks gorgeous. Yeah. I'd just be eating crust all day. I know this place. I was on yep. the phone with my daughter, who was telling me all about the... spent almost a week with Dave and PA and Andy and Sarah. The four of them worked around the farm and... I guess they did some work on hammer and sickle. I was on the phone. I, I don't know how many hours my daughter was just giving me a blow-by-blow blow description of what she did, what she was exposed to, that I have no idea how it's like she milked a cow and she did some things with a rifle. And it was amazing. Chopping wood, baking Chop- pies, yeah. all kinds of things going on. Yeah. And that is the B&B that Dave and PA offers. Yep. Up. Dave in Pennsylvania and his wife have uh, a cottage that they rent out through being Airbnb. And you can find. Uh, find the birdies. How what is it? It's tinyurl.com birdies country cottage. B-E-R-T-I-E-S country cottage. TinyURL.com slash Birdie's Country Cottage. TinyURL.com. That's just so beautiful. And and she just says, it. you just sleep. It's just so quiet and beautiful. Thank this you, Dave big, and Pete. As, as the sun is setting a few days ago, he sent it to me uh, earlier today. Yeah. Thank you, Dave and PA. And uh, my daughter has friends for life, Sarah and Dave. And what's his name? Andy Brown? Andy Brown. The hoodlum. Yeah. Who is this? Um, that is James Carraway. You're long kidding. Time, long time listener, James Carraway. And, um, and- he sent me a bunch of pictures over the last few days, and it turns out he builds a lot of things. He built this plane. You're kidding. So this is his plane, and like I said, he sent me a bunch of pictures. Is that a glider? This one today. That's a glider, is right? It? I've been flying this for 31 years. It took me eight and a half years to build. 
It goes 200 miles an hour on 118 horsepower. That's James Carraway in uh, Northern California. You're kidding. That's not that's a glider. That's like, holy cow. Explain yourself. Is he here? I'm not sure. But Who are these geez. people in our in our chat room? That's unbelievable. He built that? He is here. Yep. James Carroll, I see him. Explain yourself, James. Yeah. This is a, and then we'll, he sent me eight or ten pictures of a bunch of different different things that I'll bring up over the, the can you raise your coming weeks. Okay. It's alphabetical. Just go to the J's. Well, James he, he, to, I, I, he didn't raise his hand, so he's probably... Uh, does he know uh, Captain Cully? I'm not sure. Oh, okay. He, he, he might know him uh, a little bit through office hours, because he hangs out at office hours. an amazing sometimes. group of people. My, even my daughter's impressed with... You know, you know how hard it is for your kid to be impressed by yes. you? She's, anything she's <laughs> anything to do with you yeah all of a sudden like my daughter's gone wow this is pretty amazing I go, yeah <laughs> yeah this old fucker's got something going on that's right. <laughs> <laughs> all right that's great and i believe we have a cartoon from the invisible ninja yeah, explain what this is to our uh, listeners segment of invisible invisible ninjas uh animation and this one is Invisible Ninja hides in Faldo's bedroom as Faldo makes a call to return to the to return the sex doll he just destroyed. Right. So, well, we should explain this to the listeners because it's a minute of your time where you're not going to be able to enjoy the the visuals. But what the Invisible Ninja has done is he's taken real time audio from the David Feldman show and then drawn really funny a really funny cartoon to the audio. And we're going to play these, and then when we're out, I guess they're about 13 one-minute segments, then we have to get him to draw something that might involve more, a little more audio, so the listeners can appreciate it as well. But I love this stuff. This is uh, work from the Invisible Ninja. Custom-made love, buddy. How can I help you? I don't like the way you're behaving. Oh, uh, I, I do apologize. Uh, can I get your account number and I'll help you out? It's 11,234. Thank you for that. Let me see. Well, hello, Mr. Feldman. Pussy. I, I hope that the replacement doll didn't come in broken as well. It's not broken. It's been fixed. It could be tighter. Oh, okay. Well, I see. Um, yeah, no, we would be happy to do that. FBI, you already have, if you're listening to the snarly bitch. Let's fight it out, you MFer. I'm a bit of a phone bully. <laughs> Not at all. It was a pleasure. We're going to get this overnighted, and since you are such a valued customer, we're going to go ahead and cover that shipping cost. So you have a great night. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> Oh my God, that's not good. I have to take care of a little business. <laughs> that's the invisible ninja. Uh, the drawing is that I, he's decided that I have an inflatable doll of myself and that I made such passionate love to the David Feldman inflatable doll that it popped and uh, you really do have to see it to appreciate it. So 
you're muted. Hang on, unmute yourself there, Danny. So you can uh, you can go to David's YouTube channel, which is a good reason to go and just go to the community billboard section. And you can watch it, or you can go to um, Invisible Ninjas uh, Twitter himself and check it out at People's Comic underscore. Right. So it'll be in both places. Check it out, and if you want to send anything to the community billboard, send an email to dentfeldman at gmail dot com. Right, and we have. Uh Office hours every Friday night. If you would like to attend office hours, go to davidfeldmanshow.com and hit attend a live taping. If you'd like to sit in the Zoom room with the, uh, the, the, uh, hang on, I'm trying to bring in Professor Marianne. Uh, if you'd like to be in the Zoom room, go to my website and hit the attend a live taping. We also have a YouTube channel. Please subscribe to it. And we're cutting up the episodes now so somebody is in a hotel room uh thank you dan yep great great job as always dan frankenberger joining us i don't know are you in michigan professor marion yes i am in michigan i'm on the enclosed front porch of my parents cottage wow on one of the thousand little lakes in lower michigan it's just you know beautiful area Ben, ben Burgess is is at uh, at a cottage somewhere in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's about, about a half hour's drive from Ann Arbor. Wow! And all of that area, it's mostly state of uh, states forest around here because it wasn't really easy to farm, although they did farm. But it was just a lot of. A lot of wetlands, a lot of uh, forests, a lot of woods, and it's just beautiful. It's just, you know, really pretty and peaceful, which was good because um, while everybody else was in the second half of office hours and hours, I actually visited hell. I I was actually visiting hell on Saturday, and hell is an Amtrak train air conditioned stopped in Indiana with a dead engine and no plans to ever get moving ever again. All right, hang on now. You know I love you, but when when you're talking trash about Amtrak, you know me, middle class Joe. Yeah. I, I love taking the trains, but I just like I the last three times I was an Amtrak and I used to take this. It was uh, the Wolverine between Ann Arbor and Chicago all the time, like since the 80s. But, um, but the there was no air times, conditioning. Uh, it's, been, it's taken me eight hours, nine hours and nine hours. I'm going <laughs> to push back from Chicago. I don't know what's going on here. I think they're. Uh, having to share the tracks with the freight trains or something. Even but, uh, sitting, anyway, even when the train isn't moving, it's Amtrak is a delight. I love Amtrak. Even, you might not get there on time, but wherever you're going, you don't need to be there. Well, as long as it's moving, I'm usually pretty happy on a train. I'm actually very happy on a train. Yes. But uh, moving, not moving and not air conditioned, and, you know, not able to get off the train, I thought, oh, God, this is like an episode of The Twilight Zone. Yeah, but it, we've it's a lot better than being on the tarmac. 
You know, you might be right, because at least you feel you could jump off the train, you right. know, when it's not moving, which a lot of people were thinking of doing. Um, train, but, the but, trains, I know this is hard to believe, but there are a lot of people who've never taken Amtrak. I'm telling you, you don't need to, wherever you think you need to be, you don't need to be there as quickly as you think you, you need to be there. There's internet. The best way to go someplace is on Amtrak. It's the you you get off the train, happy, refreshed, and you miss it. Right? Have you ever? I've never had a bad train ride. I have some well, grandparents. I mean, so, I mean, really, it was beautiful when I was in when I was in school in Ann Arbor because I was literally four blocks away from downtown Chicago because I was four blocks away from the old train station in Ann Arbor, which is gorgeous. It's now a restaurant. Um, but they still have the old building there and uh, I'd hop on the train and then four hours later I was in Union Station which I think is a beautiful interior Jimmy Hoffa had a place interiors in all of America I think didn't Jimmy Hoffa have a place on the lake I think in the Uh, Irishman I saw I'm sure he did yeah I I mean I I thought you were going to ask me where I thought he was now I think he's in one of the lakes. No, he's, uh, no, it's common knowledge. He's uh, in a cement block in the overpass of the Walter Ruther Expressway, you know, that runs north of uh, Detroit. I've had people point me, point to the exact spot where they think he is. Now, Walter (laughs) Ruther, was he UAW? You know, like, you know, interrogate that electronically now. You know, you can find dinosaur bones buried in, you know, like a hundred feet of rock. I'm sure we can find Jimmy Hoffa. Was Walter Ruther United Auto Workers? Yeah, that was the United Auto Workers. And there's a stretch of highway that's named after him that runs north of Detroit. So anyway. The the word was that he was a a giant stadium. Jimmy Hoffa was buried at giant stadium. But uh well, what, well, let me give you a proper introduction. Marianne Cummings is a professor of physics, and she is also a parks commissioner for Aurora, Illinois. One re-election by a landslide. And you you seem really relaxed. So you're in a cottage. Are you by yourself? No, I'm by myself. Yes. Um, my parents, uh, my parents have left, and it was very pleasant. Since I'm all vaccinated, I could finally get to see them after over a year, right? Which, which was nice, and uh, we just had a very, we just had a very pleasant time here. Um, I came off of a minor victory um, as Park District Commissioner. You know, I take personally the health and well-being of both plant of, of all three plant, animal, and human life in the area. And uh, there was going to be a fireworks stand off of our bike path uh, that was like within 600 feet of a egret and blue heron rookery. I mean, there were at least 12 nests in the trees on this island in the Fox River that I counted. So I guess they got them to move some like 600 yards further away but I told people, like, they had the bike path closed off. I says, why is this bike path closed off so far? Well, because we want people safely away from the fire, from the debris. And I said, well, 
the nests are like right up there. You know, it's like if it's dangerous for somebody, a full grown human being, it's dangerous for those one, those little fledglings up there. So what does rookery uh, mean? What is a rookery? It's, it's like a nest. Uh, when they say rookery, it's a collection. It's, it's an area where birds have nests and at Fermilab, we had a snowy egret rookery in the trees uh, next to the cooling pond just west of the main building at Fermilab. And you could go up onto the 13th floor and you could see, especially in the evening, all the parents coming into the trees, like literally three dozen white snowy egrets in the tree. So they're waiting birds, but they have their nests up in the trees, hmm. as do the herons. And it's... Um, I mean, the, the Fox Valley, uh, the, the Fox Valley River is just a haven to wildlife of all kinds. Uh, in, the, in the rivers nearby, we have American eagles. We have American eagles on the Fox Valley River and now spreading to little creeks nearby. There's a, uh, a bald eagle that flies uh, up and down the creek right next to where we have our garden plots in the park district. So I'm out there once in a while and see it. So, you know, um, Things have gotten better in areas like this. I mean, when I was a kid, the uh, standard operations of, of uh, urban planning were just to completely plow over everything and utterly sanitize an area of just about any capacity to grow, except for rose bushes. And uh, since then, the trees have grown. They've uh, preserved wild areas. They've uh, the rails to trails are beautiful. I mean, these bike paths are the old commuter trains, and they're just lovely to go down. So we have them. So anyway, uh, that was my that was my uh, little minor victory was to at least I, I want if we get this this whole area declared because the the egrets have going back to the rookery. The, the egrets have been showing up for three years. I think if they show up next year, we can officially. Uh, apply to the uh, Illinois Department of Natural Resources a, a designation as a protected area. So they just have to find an abandoned parking lot to you know shoot off the fireworks at. Besides which, as a, as a mama, as a cat mama, I'm getting more and more sensitive to you know my poor little animals being freaked out when they hear the fireworks yes. going off. So you know, it's enough. Are uh, are cats sentient beings? We, we've talked about extraterrestrials and sapient beings. Boris Johnson surprises me by what kind of legislation he is either introducing or supporting, considering that he's Great Britain's iteration of Donald Trump. There is currently a a, a, a bill before Parliament to uh, make lobsters sentient beings. They're actually holding hearings. And uh, this is something that when he was running for prime minister, Boris Johnson said he would get to the bottom of this and they would hold hearings as to whether or not animals are sentient beings. Well, uh, you know, who have to I just be remember a line from Wall Street where Gordon Gekko says wasps. Hate people, love animals. But anyway, apart from that, I'm glad to hear it because a thing that traumatized me as a kid was my grandmother coming to the house and my uncle, and they had two big live lobsters. That's the that's and the big issue. Put them Lobster. in the bathtub. 
And then my mother came home and they had a big pot of boiling water and they put the live lobsters in. And I was stunned. I was crying. I was like seven years old and I saw those lo- one lobster trying to get out of there. And I'm like, what are you doing? And my mother is saying, oh, they can't feel it. And I'm going, oh, what? I couldn't believe that, you know, my mother who would be so nice to puppies or kittens and here are these creatures that clearly don't want to be in this pot of boiling water. Oh, does an octopus, does an octopus get sad? Do bees feel joy? Can you teach a squid new tricks? And does that make them sentient beings? And I, I ask those questions of a lot of my fellow humans. <laughs> so, you know, do people feel joy? I have no idea of a certain set of people feel joy. I mean, if joy is losing yourself, I mean, you know, sometimes once in a great while I'm feeling lousy. I get absorbed into something, painting, whatever. What's the longest you can paint? The longest. What's the longest you've gone where you've just completely lost yourself painting? Probably close to three hours. Because just, just because holding holding the chalk, holding the pastels or the oil pastel oil sticks or something, it's just you begin to feel it in your neck, you know. But uh, but have you tried sitting? Oh, I do. You know, I've I've sat outside and done plein air, but. Uh, I think I really do. I, I, it, the sort of painting that takes a break on its own. It's just like, ooh, I'm running out of energy here. And I just have to, like, go away. And so yeah. what is a okay. typical, you do paint each day? No, I do not. And I should, but I don't. But Professor Tom Weber has gotten me to, like, draw a little. I mean, when I... I wasn't able to, I, I heard him the other night, but I was getting ready to leave on Saturday, so I couldn't partake in the drawing. I was amazed at what some of the people in office hours were showing mm-hmm. on their work. But Tom was such, I mean, his approach to drawing was so great. I thought, I need to just flip and sit down and draw. When it did you realize, when too. did you realize, because your, your Landry showed me some of your paintings last year. I couldn't believe I, I, my reaction was I thought, when did Renoir or Cezanne <laughs> get in a time machine and visit the 21st century? I couldn't. He said, who is this? I go, well, I, I'm being serious. I, I said, I, it looks like some impressionist from the 19th century. Got transferred. Yeah, the uh, oil pastels, they're a little tricky. So it's, you know, sometimes it's just. It's not like doing a fine pencil or, or line drawing. You have to, now with the soft pastels, now there is a trend toward hyper-realism in pastels and they sell pastel pencils. So you can get in there at a real granular level. And I thought, well, what's the point? The, the, uh, the skill of pastels is being able to render a lifelike if you want to do that type of way, but in a, an impressionist way with as few with, with a few strokes make a suggestion that people's eyes and brains fill in because uh, as we now know the vision is not a direct sense vision people who see for the first time because they have these corneal transplants are almost universally disappointed 
and put off and disoriented by experiencing vision because they think that vision is going to be direct like a sound or or touch or the sensation of moving and it isn't and you know that when you start trying to draw and the thing that's on your paper doesn't look like the thing you're looking at because you have to start thinking of shading and perspective and all this kind of stuff you know you learn it when you're a baby and you relearn it when you draw and then you relearn how to like you know enhance your reality by editing you know you, you get to edit what you emphasize in a painting which is kind of the joy and beauty of of pastels and and both oil and soft pastels as opposed to photography which is this completely different art in itself so uh yeah that's uh but i did give my mother her birthday present which was my painting of a jar of olives Aww. another painting of a windex bottle and she was like ecstatic over it. Well, that's great when did when yeah, did she realize Tom that- was like painting Monet's and you and you're showing his uh, his work based uh, based on a Monet and you wanted us to get into competition. I'm sitting here looking at my uh, Windex bottle going, ha, I've got something for Tom. And if he wants to try and do Van Gogh, I, I'll just do an Ajax can. <laughs> We were just talking about Warhol, so... Uh, oh, well, Warhol, yeah. Warhol, he was commercial. I mean, he was as bad as Dolly, you know? And Dolly, at the, I was credited, somebody had quoted him saying, I could crap on paper and sell it, which was probably right. I think near the end of his life, his wife and his agent, I mean... It, there was just scribbles and he was just signing names to crap and they were selling it. And it, you know, it was a little sad, but uh, anyway, I have some um, questions. I've been kind of like mostly offline. Anything happened today? Well, I have some questions. Uh, So I made a promise that I would not uh, talk about the person uh, Jim Earl is associated with. (laughs) Uh, I just don't want to, you know, but what is going on with the young Turks? I know you watch Kyle Kalinske. I know you watch the young Turks or follow the well, young I Turks. Well, I used to. Um, yeah, I kind of wondered what happened to the young Turks, too. And, of course, we know that I think a lot of it is kind of simple. I mean, he did take, it wasn't just cats and, it was, it was several investors that were connected to Hillary Clinton, including one of the major fundraisers for the Clinton Foundation that were investors. But something weird kind of happened because there was the shank, I later, you know, l- listened to their coverage about a couple days later of the 2016 debacle. And Uger was just out of terror against Democrats. He says, I'm done with the Democratic Party. I am done with them. I mean, these people are just so horrible. We've got Donald frickin' Trump as a result. And uh, then he takes money and he kind of backtracks on that. That, Okay, that, you know, let me just, here's what, that we've discussed that. So we discussed it. So, you know. He has a big operation there. If he takes money from Jeffrey Katzenberg, does it compromise him? I don't know. I have to find out what he's saying. What is going on, though, with Syria? What what is the what is the story with Syria 
and the accusations that... Okay. Oh, well, you know, that's crazy because, I mean, this is a bigger story. It's just that there are so very few independent reporters. And it doesn't matter if you're Fox News or MSNBC or ABC. I mean, the owners are almost always uniformly pro-war. And occasionally you get somebody like Jeffrey, Cat- uh, Jeffrey Sachs that was on Morning Joe years ago and talking about Obama's biggest mistake was when he went in and uh, started a dirty war in Syria to depose uh, Assad. Now, that's always a bad idea. It's always blown up our face when we try to go in there and do regime change. You know, there's like over 200 countries in the world. And somehow we are only concerned about democracy in those countries that either have oil or we want to put a pipeline through. <laughs> so well, what is anyway, the debate? Just, what is the, there, what is the operations? What is the uh, accusation? We talked about that. What, so, the accus- is the accusation that our friend or who used to be my friend doesn't think Assad is... A bad guy, or that well, that's he- bull crap. They, you're t- okay. They were attacking the Young Turks. Were attacking Aaron Mate. Aaron Mate has been an independent reporter since his days. He was working for Democracy Now, and he worked for Real News. But basically, I think we have to reel back. Um, there's been reports of chemical attacks going back from 2013, and there was a chemical attack. And I even at the time I thought, well. That would be really dumb for Assad to do that, because the one thing that would bring the whole world's ire on him was to gas his own people. Well, uh, a MIT prop by the name of Theodore Postal, who's an expert on musicians and, and weaponry, did a study. And he concluded that, no, this was not aerial bombed. You know, this wasn't from the, that the, this wasn't aerial bombing, that this was placed on the ground. This is 2013. This is the report that um, was was first given to uh, Obama, and he backed off the red line threat that he made to right. Assad because it was. And, and by the way, remember it was John Kerry that sat down, talked with Assad, and basically the Syrians gave up all their chemical weapons at that point to Russia. To us, <laughs> I mean, they just basically dismantled. All right. So Syria's what is the? But what is the charge? But the thing is, and again, in 2017, there was a bombing. Theater Postal, again, looked into this. And remember, even the Democrats were applauding Trump going in there before the U.N. Uh, inspectors could go in there and figure out what happened. Trump is bombing Syria. And even Dick Durbin is praising Trump's resolute. You know, he became president that day. And I'm like, sick. I'm going, what are you guys doing? So again, um, this uh, this latest bombing. There was also reports, particularly Duma, where Assad again was attack- was uh, the, the Assad's army was attacking the civilians with chemical gas. Well, reporters like Aaron Mate and Robert Fisk and some of the people over at the BBC went to Duma and extensively interviewed people, and the doctor said, "No, there wasn't. This wasn't a gas attack." This is when you have tons of fine dust kicked up because they're bombing all over the place and people die from breathing the dust, but people also get sick. Okay, 
But there was also, in conjunction with that, a UN inspectors that came in so it, uh, in 2017, and the original report basically was very doubtful. They didn't think it was likely that it was Assad. That's the initial report. Well, they didn't think it was. They didn't was think altered. it was chemical weapons. Yeah, it was uh, that. It was it was chemical weapons, but chemical weapons specifically uh, uh, from an aerial bombing. And so the the, by, the long and short of it is is that they um, got rid of the original inspectors. They doctored the report, and this was a, a series of emails that got revealed. Now, people have later said, well, there was really just a few people dissenting, and uh, they, that wasn't the majority of the conclusion. But okay, even if there were a few, that should be in the report. So why was it altered? So. Aaron Mate and the Gray Zone was following that report. Now, to me, okay, uh, people, if you're trying to figure out what happened so that you don't have an all-out war in the Middle East, to call people like Aaron Mate or Robert Fisk, right before the, he, he died, they were trying to smear Robert Fisk, who is just a, you know, a longtime independent veteran reporter with an enormous reputation because he came up to the same conclusion. And, you know, to call people like that pro-Assad or denying that Assad is a hideous dictator would, was exactly like the people that told people like us who were marching against the Iraq war that we were pro-Saddam or pro-terrorists or any of that nonsense. It's, it's crazy. And the fact that the left is doing it is really disturbing. It's, it's really disturbing. And you know, we don't have a left or right or. Well, what 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 is what was the left saying? They what what were they saying that we shouldn't be going to war with Syria? We should. We've been at war with Syria. We occupy almost a third of Syria illegally. What Biden just did a week or so ago, bombing. So what, what, but what so is the split between bomb. what is the, places? This thing that seems to be causing the young Turks to unravel. I mean, I'm, what I see on Twitter is Cenk talking back, shadow boxing with Twitter. He's under attack. My old friend seems to be orchestrating this. What is the battle over? I know it's forced the vote, but what is well, it about Syria? I, I that you know, I don't really know why he started taking off as, after Aaron Mate. I mean, he's like Aaron Mate is like one of the most soft-spoken guys, you know, like on Twitter. But he basically has been accusing him. Both he and Anna were just losing their minds. I saw that clip. I thought it was it was almost I don't know. I, I it was I kind of laughed at first. It was so over the top, but. Uh, Anna was like basically saying Aaron Mate is just denying that that Assad's army kills children, just preposterous stuff. And then Shank started saying that, well, you know, he is supported by Russia and Russians. I mean, this is the most comical, cartoonish, you know, version of McCarthyite smearing I have ever heard. I don't even know what's up with them. I mean, their own audience doesn't really buy it. And so I don't know. I, I think that the problem is. It's, it's not so much, you know, a fight on the, uh, within the left. It's like, why is it that the very few reporters that are actually going out who are not pro-war, who are going out and find, trying to find out what is actually happening, are getting smeared by people who are nominally leftists? 
I mean, there's so few independent reporters that will actually go to an area and interview people and try to figure out what, because it's dangerous. It's dangerous to do this. Remember, but, but uh, are they getting, or, the or is it just, has, or is it just saying, Jimmy? Uh, is it, is he it kidnapped in Syria? Is it yeah, Robert, um, Richard Engel? But I is mean, it, is he it, actually was in Syria many years ago when he got kidnapped, and that was pretty harrowing. So, you know, um, but this fighting that's going on, are trying to figure out what's happening. This fighting that's going on between Kyle yeah. Kalinsky and Jimmy and Anna and Jenk. It's about something that has nothing to do with Syria, right? I'm not sure it does. I mean, the fact is, is that, you know, the Young Turks has definitely taken a very a more corporate mainstream turn in the last four years. That is undeniable. I think part of just this nonstop Russia dating they were doing, okay, yeah, Russia and the United States have been digging with each other for like, what, 75 years, you know, since the end of World War II. And the fact that they carped on it to the extent that, you know, even people in the Bernie Sanders uh, campaigns were maybe unwitting stooges of the Kremlin was so ridiculous and uh, over the top. But Is that what the Young Turks are? It's, it distracted from the Democrats and people on the left trying to really figure out what the hell happened that we had Donald frickin' Trump. You know, why was it even close? I mean, it, it's, it was close the last time. Uh, we might get a worse Trump if we don't figure out why, I mean, and Trump, what was disturbing about this last time was Trump was gaining among Hispanics and even African-American males. So what's what's happening? There's something that they haven't that the left hasn't figured out yet. And we're going to continue to have this very destructive, divisive type of politics because nothing that the Democrats are doing or the Republicans are doing are making the lives of most people in this country better. We are continuing the wards. We are continuing the kids in cages. Even marijuana is a freaking still, you know, uh, class one drug. I mean, we are evicting people now, like by the hundreds of thousands. We are not, you know, anything good in the last stimulus bill is only going to last a few months. So let me let me ask you, tax cuts are forever. So so the idea is that Russiagate was an invention to distract the Democratic Party's attention away from the real pressing issues yeah, that have to be I, I addressed. It did. And and I think I don't know if it was just a grand conspiracy to keep this conspiracy going, but it certainly worked out when you basically want clicks or eyeballs. I mean, uh, Rachel Maddow's ratings, her ratings started to approach Sean Hannity's ratings when she was night after night reporting about Russia. And the how much of this is Obama and Hillary when Trump left? How much is this is this is just the arrogance of people like Obama and Hillary thinking the only way we could have lost is this, if, if Putin interfered? Well, I think it's arrogance, but we actually know what happened. As I said, uh, the, the the reporters from Politico, Amy Amy Parnes and uh, her co-author, I can't remember it offhand, were embedded reporters. And they talked to people. People were talking the day after the election because people were walking around in the campaign in a state of other shock. So people were talking. And what had happened 
Uh, people had told them that they just got out of an executive meeting with Podesta and Robbie Mook and the other people in the campaign, and they decided that they would be, you know, talking up all their media buddies to, uh, you know, push the narrative that Putin stole it. That they hadn't really even talked about up to that, but they had to settle on a story to explain what happened. Okay, you know, and that to me, all right, I could see where some of the mainstream media would do that, but it was supposed to be outlets like the Young Turks, whose, you know, whose, whose founder and CEO were ranting, was ranting against the Democrats on election night to like, okay, it could be Russians, but come on, you know, it, the Russians could be doing it, but we also, we are also digging with them, and by the way, we massively interfered with their 1996 elections, which ended up with us having Putin. That's a whole long story. But but can't both things be true? I mean, that's my position. My position has been, I read all about Russiagate. I found it fascinating. I happen to think, I live in New York. I happen to think this is one big money laundering operation, that the Russian oligarchs are taking KGB money and dumping it into empty. I see the empty buildings. They're all empty. It's because Russian oligarchs own them. So... Can't two things be true at the same time? That yeah, Trump well, is a tool of Putin? Reality is multifaceted. But then, you know, these Russian oligarchs are actually dumping money into the United States, taking it out of the country, something that Putin absolutely doesn't want. You know, these are people, these are the thieves, the people that just stole the public assets, uh, you know, post uh, the Soviet Union plummeted tens of millions of Russians into poverty. Naomi Klein describes this in several of her articles. She says this is classic shock doctrine, capitalism. But it can all be true. It it doesn't have to be one. We're actually opposed to to Putin. He didn't want, and this is like many years ago, but Putin doesn't want the money flowing out of Russia. He doesn't want these people, you know, buying up overpriced real estate in America just so that they can, you know, have some kind of money, as we would say, ruble laundering. Uh, it's something to change the rubles into dollars. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. Well, we, so. we have to wrap it up. To, to, uh, you get the last word. To me, what little I know about this is all of it's true. Yeah. And so I don't understand what the infighting is. It's got to be about something bigger. If, you know... I, watch. I don't know. I, you know, I don't know these people personally. I, I don't think there was any. Now, yeah, I think they went after Jimmy because Jimmy was a door because Jimmy was one of the few places where people like Aaron Mate and Max Blumenthal and people who are reporting narratives that go against, you know, right. the pro-war military industrial complex here. They're one of the few outlets they can go on. They don't get asked. I mean, Glenn Greenwald used to get asked, used to be on uh, Lawrence O'Donnell's show. He's not, ever since Edward Snowden, he's not asked there anymore. I mean, it's there's very few outlets where uh, independent journalists can go on. And I think, so... So I what guess, are the stories uh, that are, the, what, I, I before you go? Maybe uh, Shanks Beef, before before you go, Aaron what Mate, are the stories? Mate went on Jimmy Dore's show, and those shows get way more views than, right. than the Young Turk shows. Uh, before before you go, what are the stories know. that that are you consider undercovered? Julian Assange. Yeah. Syria. Yeah. 
Well, that's actually a, a nice, uh, that's a little ray of hope right now because suddenly that uh, story that came out is suddenly uh, put Julian Assange back on the radio. And again, it, it's people like Jimmy Dore's show and a whole bunch of like Katie Helper, Matt Taibbi, all these people keeping that alive when like even the Young Turks were smearing Julian Assange. I, I thought, what are you doing? What are you doing? Oh, that's right. You know, you started doing this after you started taking that money. Right. Because WikiLeaks, to, even now, is, you know, is still an operation, is still revealing what the powerful don't want us to know. We'll continue to do that. But, um, you know, I think the powers that be, that they want to make an example out of Assange. And I think that's going to be a little more difficult now. Um, and there's been, there, there's been rallies all over the country on behalf of Julian Assange, and I'm, I'm happy to see that. And so, I don't know. It, it's like, I, I think there's a, another thing which is, would be a much longer conversation, but it's the same uh, argument. It's the same kind of problems you run into with progressive campaigns. You have people who want to get into office, but then you have people who want to make a career. I mean, they're young people, but they want their next job after your campaign. So you're always fighting this careerist versus idealist thing. So a lot of young people in the young Turk sphere, they want to have those MSNBC contracts eventually. Uh, and whereas the really independent journalists, you know, they know they're never going to get those contracts. You know, so there's a... There's a there's a kind of a something that's just beyond any given topic. So uh, you know, and plus, look, Jimmy and Shank have a they they know each other personally. So I don't know these people. So you know, when sometimes friends turn into enemies, there's just a whole bunch of nonlinearities that can't be logically understood. And uh, so, is it about the business? Yeah. Anyway, that's a, that, that, that's all I have to say about that. However, okay. are, you know, the people are there is turf wars on, in on the social media platforms. Yeah. Because hey, uh, it, it's it, and of course the networkers are trying to like YouTube has recently been changing their algorithms. So even I'm like getting things like you know what you may want to watch. Rachel Maddow, are you getting why would I want to watch that? But they're changing the algorithms so you know people are getting network and more conventional outlets rather than the usual shows they go to or shows that would be similar to what they're interested in right so that's why places like kyle kalinsky and katie helper's show and everybody had an enormous drop in the number of subscribers over a month because the algorithm changed so yeah, I don't know. Maybe people are trying to show mainstream media that, oh, yeah, we can be well-behaved children. Now, this is my complete opinion that it's, I don't have facts to back these up. But, you know, so I, I think that it's partly personal, but I think that there is there is a real battle, you know, for information. And, and the... The powers that be, I mean, the permanent state or whatever you want to call it, are always going to be trying to either buy out the left or to attack the left. Right. And that's that's a story that's way older than this little kerfluffle. Uh, well, 
Professor Marianne Cummings is Parks Commissioner, Aurora, Illinois, and she is a physics professor. We'll talk to you Thursday for the professors and Marianne. By the way, we're cutting up all the episodes and posting them individually now on YouTube so people can see the individual segments as well. Thank you, Professor. Okay. Peace, everyone. Yeah, I don't. uh, Professor uh, Mike Steinel is about to join us. I don't watch Jimmy's show. I don't watch The Young Turks. I don't watch Kyle Kalinske. I watch Sam Cedar. I get most of the turf war stories from Sam's show. Oh. And I I still like Jimmy. He doesn't like me. I like Jenk and Anna. I, I think there's room for everybody. This infighting going on seems to me more personal than it is... Uh, uh, on the substance, it seems to be. It has to be personal because, yeah. as I said, you know, it made no sense for even Shank, even if you took money, you would be a lot smarter than that. It sounded like Shank was really something really got under his skin personally. Yeah. In all this. And well, I, I think it was the force to vote. I think it was. Between Shank and Aaron Mate before yeah. that, that triggered it. Um, I'm not sure. You know, I don't know what it is. I know that Jenk is a businessman and the people who run the New York Times are business people. And if you're going to build out the kind of organization that Jenk wants to build out, you have to be a bit of a capitalist. I, I, I don't know what his politics are completely, but I know that if you watch the Young Turks, like the New York Times, you're going to get... Uh, a leftist viewpoint and a centrist viewpoint. What little I know of the Young Turks. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't understand why people are turning on Anna and Cenk. I I do know that they've built a pretty big successful operation with about 70 employees. I'm looking at Digiday from three years ago. The Young Turks Network employs 70 full-time staffers They have 30 more employees under contract. Cenk has always dreamed of figuring out a way to do this, do this big, to go really big, to to have something approaching MSNBC. And he gives other people shows. They're not that big. According to Digiday, the Young Turks, uh, their network has 30,000 subscribers who pay at the very least $10 per month to receive ad-free programming. So he's got a big overhead and uh, Yeah, got it's tw- not like the days when it was uh, Cenk, uh, Ben, and Jill. I right. mean, that was when I kind of started listening in. And I, and I have a membership with them that, that dates back from those days. So right. I'm still on their membership list. But I think that um, so he got twenty million dollars in funding. That, um, but when you start threatening people with blackmail, when you start smearing, and when we, you start the sexual harassment thing, like paid by the Russians. Come on, you know this is this is not professional on their part, and it just really betrayed. It would you can't let this the personality thing just kind of bleed out like that, and then people feel like if you. If you're lied about, then you feel like you have to. If somebody's like, you know, just slandering you, you have to answer it, you know. And then 
then it goes, uh, then it kind of spirals out of control. And, uh, you know, I wish they wouldn't have done that, but they did. So, so in the meantime, a lot of people have been trying to figure out, well, what the hell is happening in Syria? So I guess there's a little bit of a booby prize on the side that people are reading up on what the hell is going on there and you know what we're we're actually occupying almost a third of it and you know i think that at least there's that and there's also a little more interest a lot more interest now in julian assange so right you have this little twitter and facebook and youtube dust-ups and people might want to know well what the hell are we actually talking about here and so that's good and people more people are reading about what we've actually been doing in syria and if they start reading about you know operation timber sycamore then that we might have a population that are saying what the hell are we doing there you know doing so great thank you uh so uh, the Young Turks got $20 million in funding from Jeffrey Katzenberg in 2017. And at that time, Cenk was putting out 30 separate news shows covering politics, our culture, sports, and more. So he's, you know, employing a lot of people. $20 million is not going into his pocket. It's keeping people working. I do understand he was anti-union. I'd like to know more about that. I just don't understand uh, why this is taking up so much oxygen. But there I am uh, using some of that oxygen. Are you there, Professor Mike Steinel? Hey, I uh, made a video, but here I have two things. One is uh, David Feldman presents What Was I Thinking? The Incredible Insignificant Music of Mike Style. Is this the new album we're putting out? That's our album cover. I think? like it. I like it. You two things. Uh, I know you okay. have a new song. We're having tech problems today. But uh, earlier I was able to play this. You did the soundtrack and played the heavy as a drug dealer in a 2015 ABC after school special that I'd like to show everybody. <laughs> Do you remember making this and doing the soundtrack? It was it was sure. warning people about pot. Let, let me see if I can. Let me okay. see. Uh, <laughs> let me see here. Hang on. I'm uh, I found two things here. Give me a second. I could use some of that $20 million that Cenk got from uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg. Where is this? Hang on. Ugh. Come on. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I uh, I sent you two things. Well, I sent you uh, a new song. Did you get it? Yes, but first I want to show you a young... Okay, show me what you've been working this on. This is a young... No, I didn't work. I found this. It was an ABC after-school special <laughs> that you you did the soundtrack for, the score, and you played the heavy mic in a show about... Uh, an after-school special about uh, the perils of smoking. Was it Reefer Madness? Oh, here I am. I like it. 
You become more dependent on one another, but your pleasure in each other's company becomes less satisfying, and you depend more and more on the pills to help. Finally, the pills are not enough, and you're ready for the second act of your three-act tragedy. You've heard Mike and the group talk of toking up a joint. You know it means smoking marijuana. Mike is more experienced than you in the ways of narcotics, but until now he has never suggested that you toke up together. But the pills don't give either of you the desired effect any longer, and in the insecurity of your relationship you feel a need to find some new experience to bind you together. So a suggestion that only a short month ago would have been repulsive now is considered. The smell and the taste are anything but pleasing. It makes you cough and your throat becomes dry and hot. You feel like you're floating. You concentrate on one object, a tree in the distance. It's called fixing. As you concentrate, time slows down. You hallucinate that as you dream. This is called tripping. Your depth perception is affected. If you had to step off a curb or get out of a car, you would probably need help because the distance might be exaggerated. On the other hand, distance might seem to diminish. As with alcohol, the problems don't disappear, they only temporarily seem to vanish and return with jarring force when the effects of the drugs wear off. But when you get on narcotics, it's like starting a never-ending downward tailspin from 30,000 feet. You become less sure of yourself, your surroundings, your friends. Quarrels are more frequent with your parents and loved ones. You try to convince yourself you're right, but deep inside you know you're not. You lose your sense of values. You think of little else but another blow-up, your newfound language for smoking marijuana. You've completed the second act, and the third act curtain is just about to go up. You don't know it now, but when it does, it's the beginning of the end, the point of no return. Wow, it's amazing. <clears throat> I can't hear you. I listened to the music, I think that is beautiful That's, trumpet yeah, playing they, on they, your they part. They should have put scarier music. That's sexy music. When please. did you record that? Mike? That was back in the 50s, David, when I was four. <laughs> Mike? Uh, I heard that. I thought, oh, I got to play that for Mike. I have, I made a music video. Every week I promised I would make, take one of your songs and make a music video. Yeah, okay. So and I, I apologize. Last week I said those videos are horrible. And I didn't, I didn't, um, that was uncalled for. I shouldn't have been so hard on you. Because I know you're trying. I really tried this time. And I try to, you know, I'm learning After Effects and I'm just trying to, because I, I really, I want to earn some of the money I'm going to steal from you when we go public. Okay. And I, 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 I love that. In that one video, the guys in the duel and they both shoot <laughs> and then they just walk away. Well, I want to be, guy, the, guy puts it, the guy on the back, he, the third man, he puts his hat back on and they all just smile and they walk. Is that a real thing? Did they actually shoot? Yeah, they were wearing bulletproof vests. But you have put together a catalog of songs for the David Feldman show. That's yeah, impressive. I've got the playlist for this for the album. I want to. It's pretty impressive. So every week, it. every week, I'm going to use your mm -hmm. music to show off my directorial skills 
because mm-hmm. I think I can make extra money directing music videos. Mm-hmm. And so I took Hard Times in the City, another theme song that you Ooh. wrote for me. One of my favorites. It's, all back. of it's great. And every week I'm going to produce a music video. I think this is my finest work. Really, I do. I wish we could. Uh, I'm playing it in a very raw program here, but it, uh, I'm not doing my work justice. But this is uh, Hard Times in the City, uh, written uh, and performed by Mike Steinel. Uh, it's a new music video that uh, I directed. I hope you enjoy it. Can't wait. Can you hear it? Got you- it. Sounds good. I like this I have a knack. I I do. I have a knack. (laughs) There's a story behind that. There's a there's a whole narrative that I painted using pictures that people. uh, Did you like that? I loved it, David. I think it's the best, the best work yet. The question is, are those turtles really having sex, or is that just a... It's a metaphor. A sex game. It's a sex game. <laughs> I'm oh, that's gonna, funny. I'm going to make a, uh, a, a new music video every week until, <laughs> until you say, you know what, I got better things to do with my time <laughs> than give this pathetic hump. Music. So you have new music for me. You have to. We're having some technical problems. Okay. What do I have to do? Mute. No. Uh, you have to kill some time while I try okay. to play it. So let me. Let me. By the way, you you read your Charlie Parker book. Yeah, that was well received. I thought I was. Did I he was really pawn his? Whether, did he really pawn it? Yeah, he always he was always pawning his instrument. 
Wow. One of his most important concerts, he shows up in Toronto. I was going to ask Mark Breslin, the, uh, <clears throat> the Silver Rail was probably, he probably has been to that bar. And uh, he, um, that instead of playing the what was billed as the greatest jazz concert ever, Charlie Parker uh, shows up without a saxophone. It's Dizzy Gillespie, Charlie Parker, Charles Mingus, uh, Bud Powell, and Max Roach, greatest group ever. And um, Bird shows up without a saxophone, and they have to go to a music store on the um, <clears throat> after it's closed and get all they can find is a plastic saxophone. And that saxophone later sold for $144,000. Is that Christie's. the one you mentioned in, in, in the book? Yes, the Grafton saxophone. And it sold for how much? $144,000. Just because it was played by Charlie Parker? Yes, because it was ephemera. It had, a, it had a whatever, pro provenance? It had provenance, yeah. I see. But, um, yeah, and, and, and uh, he didn't even know the, the, the concert was being recorded until afterwards and uh it was a big stink um and um finally charles mingus didn't like the way it was recorded he went back and dubbed in his which was odd for the time 1953 that he could do this but he he dubbed in his bass and for years i i thought the bass sounded a little strong for that time uh i had the recording and then the crowd was just going nuts he dubbed in crowd noise because the concert was a f complete failure. Matter of fact, Bird was only by because uh, he cashed his check at the gate. <clears throat> Nobody else got money for the gig. And he came all the way from New York to Toronto. But anyway, uh, it's a fast. That's where the book starts, and it's a fascinating thing. But uh, he he dubbed in crowd noise, <laughs> and the album has been around for you know since 1956. Uh, the greatest jazz concert ever. You probably see with it's Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, and uh, it's the last time that Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie actually performed together live. And they were, you know, I always thought they were like uh, kind of partners in crime all throughout the bebop era. But turns out they were similar stature, but they only collaborated for a, a, a number of months, you know, as a as a team. And those are remarkable. It was a remarkable uh, collaboration. But uh, anyway, that book, should, should I do some more on Friday? Absolutely. Chapter? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Well, should we play? Uh, you have a new song. We, we all know that Richard Branson is going to beat Jeff Bezos into space. Mm -hmm. This seems to be the new thing. Yeah, so I wrote this song. You know, I have trouble. My ideas are overflowing sometimes. And I, I didn't finish. I got women in bikinis or girls in bikinis wanting to make, wanting to be friends on Facebook, which I did live last week. Loved By the it. way, I had, they must have heard that because I got like 10 more invites from uh, oh, strange, really? strange women. Well, they want names. They, yeah. <laughs> Hilarious names. That's my show. That's women in bikinis listen to my show and then they contact you on they Facebook. Must. Yeah. They, I'm wearing my Tex Zimmerman garb. A lot of people don't know that I have a uh, alter ego of Tex Zimmerman, which has the Dylan band. And this is my hat. 
they seem to gravitate toward the text. I have a Tex Zimmerman uh, Facebook page and a Mike Snell Facebook page. These women in bikinis tend to like Tex, hmm. you know? So I don't know. I'm wearing the hat all the time now. Okay. Know? Let us listen to Billionaires in Space. The sounds. Okay. The sounds. Yeah, let's do it. This is new music from Professor. Do you want me to do a music video for this next week? Yeah, you could easy because you could put all these people in it and rockets and things. Mm, I think yeah. it would be great. Okay. Uh, all the all the content you need to put in there is in the song. Okay. Billion billionaires in space. New music from Mike Steinell. about the temperatures on the western coast forget about medicare for all it's just a ghost don't worry about the billion children with nothing to eat cause we got billionaires in space ain't that neat Forget about the banks that are too big to fail. Forget about those politicians with their souls up on sale. Don't worry about the climate that is out of hand. Cause we got billionaires in space. Ain't that grand? Bezos, Musk, and Richard Branson, too. I guess they got so much money, they don't know what to do. They're headed for a weightless 11-minute ride. If you got a lot of dough, you can be right by their side. People lying about elections, right and left. Tuition going up, kids smothered in debt. Voting rights seem like they're going right up in smoke. But we got billionaires in space, ain't that woke? Forget about those citizens so mad they attacked the Capitol Dome. Beating on the police, then running back home. I know democracy sometimes seems like a hollow shell. But don't worry, we got billionaires in space. Ain't that swell? Prisons that are busting at the seams. Don't worry 
about a generation that have forgotten about their dreams. Don't worry about people coming to shoot up your school. Cause we got billionaires in space. Ain't that cool? God, billionaires in space, ain't that cool? We got billionaires in space, ain't that cool? <laughs> Professor Mike Stein, you're just the best. You are. You're the best. You know, that for some reason, sometimes the tracks that I send you, I'm not sure if you guys add compression or something, but that that, what, that didn't sound right to me because the, there wasn't enough bass or drums. They kept dropping out. I do notice that when I listen to the podcast on my phone, which is just audio, those tracks play better than when if I watch it on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, because for the podcast, we add more compression. There's an equalizer and it boosts the vocal. Is it, So you're saying that what, what what are you hearing? You're hearing too much bass? Or well, not see, I, I maybe I mix. Here's here's the deal. I, I mix the vocal too hot. That's what I I'll, I'll try to because I really wanted to be it in front. But it was a little too hot, so it was cutting out the bass and the drums a little bit. Right. It kind of every now and then would go. But but it usually sounds okay, like I say on the on my phone. Right. Right. Hey, I've been I've been doing some sketching. Yeah. Yeah, I've been. <clears throat> I got inspired by Tom uh, Weber. From Office I Hours, did, yeah. Yeah, I did one in color of you. I hope you like it. What do you think? That looks pretty good. <laughs> it looks like two tortoises copulating. Oh, that's good. Oh, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that looks like something. Yeah, that looks like if you're at like a, a wedding and they hired a, a caricaturist who hates the people he's drawing. That would be what I, I'd go I traced home with. It. I, I traced that one. Oh, you but traced looks, that? That looks like you. That's pretty good. I love to trace. Here, um... This is when I did freehand. That's you and uh, um, Jim Earl. Ah, but <laughs> that's freehand. That's you there, okay. Jim Earl. <laughs> it's horrible. And this is one with your eyes going. I thought I, I googled how to draw eyes, and I like the eyes, shifty eyes. Yes, this is shifty, uh, shifty Feldman. Yes. Wasn't he your uncle who was in the mob, Shifty Feldman? Shifty Feldman. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to write a song, The Ballad for Shifty Feldman. He can only drive an automatic, though. No. <laughs> and he carried one good. as well. He was in the mob. Mike Steinel. Hey, the guy you had I'm at sorry? the end of last week's show called in from Florida. Is he a comic? He was funny. Oh, he writes for the uh, our, our special events. Benji. That's Benji. He was good. You Benji. Know? He said, what did he say? Uh, yeah, I watched the documentary on marijuana. I'm going to watch them all that way from now on. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember the rest of them, but that was pretty good. Yeah. I thought, well, this guy's great. Mike Steinell is a jazz trumpeter, composer, and educator. He taught jazz studies at the University of North Texas from 1987 to 2019. 
author of the highly acclaimed Essential Elements for Jazz Ensemble, Volumes 1 and 2, Building a Jazz Vocabulary. And your latest is called? Oh, well, well I got this novel coming out. No, but you have the, a book uh, on jazz first. What, what, what's the... you? What's your Dorrance publications, but also got a jazz book, Running the Changes. Running the Changes. Yeah. And Song and Dance, the Mike Steinel Quintet featuring Rosanna Eckerd. It's put out by Origin Records. I listen to it on Spotify. What's the website? Where's the store that people can go to? PendersMusic.com. PendersMusic.com. In Denton, Texas. They can buy it there. And you can buy it other places, too. Um, that group is going to play a, a live stream a July 28th, Wednesday. I'll be reminding people. Uh, you can watch it. It's uh, at, the, at the wine bar. They're doing live stream concerts throughout the spring and the summer. Great. And, and our jazz festival is coming back. The Denton Arts and Jazz is going to do. It hadn't happened for two years because of COVID, but it's uh, happening in, in October. We get a quarter of a million people come and watch jazz and other kinds of music um, at, uh, at our park, in our beautiful uh, Quakertown Park, which has a very terrible history because it was, they cleaned out a black community that was there, Quakertown, and moved them so they could build this park. You know, it's a horrible legacy, but... Uh, the town recognizes it, and there's plaques, and, and uh, you know, we have a pretty good uh, relationship, I think, racially in this town. It's, pretty, it's a pretty progressive town all, overall. Anyway. All right. Uh, well, we had a uh, holiday weekend. <clears throat> According to, what is the organization? The Gun Violence Archive. Over the past three days, how many shootings were there in America? How many do you think? How many people shot or how many shootings? Shootings. 200. 379 shootings. Wow, it's low. How many people died from those shootings? 80. 142 people in America Jeez. died. Oh, my goodness. Chicago, 92 people were shot, 16 dead. Philadelphia, 28 shot, 7 people died, 21 injured. And Dallas and New York, uh, each, 36 people shot, 5 dead in each city. And this is what they'll say. They'll say, ah, you still want to defund the police? It has nothing to do with the police. No. It's about guns. Definitely. Get rid of the guns. Get rid of the guns. Pretty, yeah. uh, pretty grotesque. But, you know, if you don't pay attention to what's going on in the country, we're doing pretty good. That's what yeah. I say. Just don't pay attention. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. You like the, you like the billionaire song? I love it. That's good. You know, that I, I told after I wrote it, my wife was listening. She listens downstairs and and then I played it. I'm mixing it. She's that's a good song. And I said, yeah, I think this is a real protest song in a way, you know, because it's so stupid that was how much is being spent on sending those three billionaires and the people who pay to go 
how much is being spent on that, you know? Imagine if they uh, pay taxes. Imagine if Jeff Bezos had to pay taxes instead. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing, you know. Well, let's hope he stays in space. Let's hope he what? Stays in space. Yeah, and some of those things are not going to be that long. They're going to go up and they're going to flop around for 11 minutes. Yeah. Uh, I think think, uh, Branson's just 11 minutes just above. He's... They're not even going into space. They're going to, well, they're going, what's the term? There's a different term. Suborbital? Yeah, they're suborbital. Which is good because Bezos is subhuman. So it's only appropriate. You're pretty hard on that guy. Uh, I think it's good to be hard on him. I don't think you should make fun of the way he looks. I think he's not, he's, he's not as handsome as you, you know. I, I think way, he is I think grotesque. you're a very handsome man. And I, I've discovered that. You have really, you're very symmetrical. So when you were drawing, not here so much, but you know your face is very symmetrical. So you should have done well in the mating department, according to scientists. Is that uh, true? Yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, I was always having trouble uh, keeping the mates away. (laughs) So many mates wanted to mate with me. You have no idea. Okay. I wish uh, I wish you were right, but you're. But Jeff Bezos is is the worst human being on the planet, and so for twelve minutes, it will be Bill only Gates on the planet. It'll be Bill Gates. Je- the only way Jeff Bezos can't be the worst human being on the planet is to leave it. That's what a horrible human being he is. And he's hideous. And we should all, when we take a dump, we should say, I'm going to drop a, a Bezos. I got to go do a Bezos. That should be part of our language. Everybody should say, I'll be right back. I got to go drop a Bezos. That should be his legacy. Yeah, but, you know, the thing that bothers me is that the media... It's just all over it. They love it, you know, and the, and he's taken that 80 year old uh, astronaut lady or astronaut. What do you call it? <laughs> astronaut. Yeah. <laughs> An astronaut who mm-hmm. uh, never, you know, because of uh, bias. She's 80. She's more like a gastronaut. What's you know. that? She's more like a gastronaut at 80. <laughs> anyway, he's taken her up. Uh, Bezos is doing that. Mm-hmm. And and that gets all sorts of like warm feelings on uh, CBS News. But meanwhile, what you know, such a waste. Even the fact that there's three people doing the same thing. Yeah. You know, pool the money at least. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Anyway, that's all I got. Isn't it great that Jeff Bezos and 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 Richard Branson and Elon Musk using their money and, and the and the, 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 their animal spirits, isn't it great that they were able to pull off something the United States government did in 1961? Isn't that amazing that only 60 years after the government did it, corporate America can put a man in space suborbitally for 12 minutes? It's amazing. But if you just, if the government just steps out of the way and lets free enterprise do its stuff 
we can do man it's competition it's competition we can it's amazing jeff bezos is doing what alan shepard and the u.s government did in 1961 or 62 i think it was 61 right yeah boy that was really i remember but, I mean, what are we celebrating I mean, here five in the morning on saturday and what, what we're celebrating going into space we did this 60 years ago why is this we a story to the moon 60 years ago 50 years ago. 50 years ago yeah and we should go back i just don't want amazon getting credit for something that the government pulled off very successfully thank you very much 35 million tax returns are unprocessed. 3% of the IRS's phone calls are getting answered. Why? Because we haven't increased the IRS's budget in 50 years. That's why. Pay your taxes. All right. We got to wrap it up. Yeah, we got to wrap it up. Hey, thanks, buddy, for playing my song. I oh, yes, it. of course. That's part of the uh, exploitation where you thank me. Yes, I for, do thank you. For uh, for the music. <laughs> You're the best. I love you, buddy. Thank you. I love you right back. See you later. Thank Bye. you. Dan Frankenberg. Er, should we wrap it up? Let's do it. Let's do it. You don't think I can name everybody who was on the show? I hope you can. This is a great one. This was a great one. We had tech problems, but we had Dave Cyrus, John Roths, Ethan Hershenberg. Jim Earl, Howie Klein, David Cobb, Dr. Harriet Fraud, Professor Adnan Hussein. Then we had you and then Professor Marianne Cummings. And then we had uh, you skipped Canada. The big Mark Breslin. Yep. I almost forgot that. And then we had uh, Professor Mike Steinel, Billionaires in Space. And major technical problems as usual. But what are you going to do? The segments flowed really good into each other today. I think you're right. I think yeah, you're right. The yeah. overlap was awesome. Yeah. When uh, when uh, David Cobb was hanging with uh, Dr. Fraud, that was really sweet. Yeah. Nothing gets done here without you, sir. All right. Remember, I'm David Feldman. Happy Fourth of July. Remember to uh, stay strong and protect the weak. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. To tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way Thank you.
Apologies to Henry Huckamacki. He had a pre-tape of a great interview that he did with his mom, but due to technical problems, I cannot play it uh, today. So we will fix the problems. And this Thursday, when we live stream once again, we will play Henry's interview. I hope to see you then. Thank you so much for joining us.